It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy too. He'll tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. Joe, he's a new talking man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show to get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. Thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. That's Professor Mike Steinel. I think he's stopping by a little later on to defend Steely Dan when Liam McEnany joins us in the uh, 40th hour of our program. Welcome to the mop-up for, what is it, November 30th, 2020. I'm David Feldman in Manhattan, where it's windy and rainy. One more month to go. The question is, are we going to miss 2020? Are we going to look back and miss 2020? Here to join us, here to answer that question, is Gentleman Farmer, comedy writer and comedian, live from Deerfield, Massachusetts, Please welcome John Ross. How are you? I'm good. I have a. I wrote a theme song for for my segment. Oh, because we already have one. Oh, do you? Yeah. Go ahead, play it. Well, it's not working. God damn it! <laughs> it's on. oh, hang on for one second. I wrote you a theme song. Okay. That's, it? That's your theme song. That's good. Thank you. How are you? Did you have a theme? Did you write a, a theme song for me? Or for you for the show? For me. Great. How does it go? It's time right now for Johnny Ross's segment on the David Feldman show. <laughs> he's got a lot to say and he's not getting paid. He's got a lot to say and he's not getting paid. Did you have a nice Thanksgiving? I had a lovely Thanksgiving, a lovely vegan Thanksgiving. Why vegan? Because your daughter is... Because the whole family is hardcore vegan now. Though, I've reintroduced eggs. Local pasture-raised eggs. I missed my eggs. But uh, other than that, yeah. We're we are vegan. 
you were the one who said, and David Attenborough did an entire documentary about this, that eggs are a perfect food. Yeah, I, you know, I, I, I don't mind putting them in there. Anyway, let's not. How was your Thanksgiving? We did the show. It was one of the best Thanksgivings I've ever had because I, w- I was the center of attention. I got to be the crazy uncle who also got upset. I got to own the lips. No, it was great. We did the show. A lot of people, I don't know if you know about this, but there's a pandemic and nobody was allowed to travel. So, by the way, you know me. I do. People thanked me for doing the show on Thanksgiving. Yeah. Like it was a sacrifice. What's the truth? You have nowhere else to go. <laughs> Nothing else to do. No one wants you anywhere. You don't want to have anyone. Right. Uh, yeah. So, yeah. So, Cleanup was nice and easy, I'm sure. <laughs> yes. And I got to come across as a martyr. So people yes, thought, wasn't yeah. that wasn't that nice of him? To, it was great, though. We It really was. Yeah. Is, now, I, I heard you mention Liam. Is he actually going to be back on the Liam's, show? This is a revolving door. This is like the Pentagon. People come and go. They, they go off into the real world and they come back. They go off in the real world and make some real money. <laughs> <laughs> This is public service. This is, exactly. this is a public service. Liam came back to me. Everybody comes back to me. Well, I'm, except I'm, certain people. I'm hoping to escape. <laughs> I'm, I'm tearing the bed sheets up right now. What did I'm, you, so it was a vegan, did you have a, a raw pumpkin pie? I was looking, I was actually going to try, maybe this weekend I'm going to make a raw pumpkin pie. It was not raw, but my daughter made a delicious pumpkin pie. And uh, she made vegan cupcakes the other night that I'm telling you were the best cupcakes I've ever had. They tasted like super high-end hostess chocolate cupcakes. Unbelievable. They were so good. Um, I made, eh, who cares? I care. (laughs) We have a big show planned. I'm easing into it. So what, so you've changed the name of the show to the mop-up now. We call this segment the mop-up. What do you mean uh, the segment? It's the show. Every it's week. the show, but I, it's the David Feldman show. We just call it the mop up. That's like a nickname for it. Okay. We're mopping up the mess. But didn't you have another nickname for it earlier, a month or two ago? You were calling it. And then there's office hours. And then I don't know. It's a lot of different there, names. There are a what lot about, of projects. That what I've, about got. The- I'm, I'm, I've got a, I'm balancing a lot of failing balls in the air at the same time. I understand. How do the Feldman fans have a nickname? Are they a thing? Like, I'll ask him. <laughs> Are they like the dent heads or something? Like what do they call? Well, there are a couple people who, because I've, I've been referred to as a uh, dented headed douchebag on this <laughs> show. Apparently I have a dent. Well, apparently you're a douchebag. <laughs> what, well, what's the so people have suggested dent heads as as there? Yes, Dan Frankenberger in our newsroom, who does the community billboard. His mm-hmm. email is uh, I think it's dented at Gmail. I think something like that. People yeah. need to know how to identify themselves. You know, like Taylor Swift's fans are Swifties, and, and oh. Uh, yeah, I believe so. Oh, Dent Feldman is the name of Dan's Gmail. Right, but they, but they like uh, Jimmy Buffett's fans, or I think they're called Parrot Heads. 
Really? I'm not, yeah. So fans, I t- tend to identify in, um, I can't remember uh, more off the top of my head right now, but I was wondering if, if one had come up, you would think they would, if people are spending the, this kind of commitment that they would come up with a name for themselves. Uh, manic depressives. Uh, the, the, I call them chin waggers behind their back. You call them a lot of things right to their face and a lot to their face. So how honest, so do you think Biden really won? No, no, of course not. Yeah. I was, uh, I had a wheelbarrow (laughs) full of ballots that I would take down the river. Of course. uh, So scale of one to 10, how disappointed are you that it looks like we're not going to have a civil war? Pretty, pretty disappointed. I, yeah. I, I was hoping that I'd be on your couch hanging yeah. out. Yeah. Well, I was, I was growing mutton chops, getting ready for <laughs> the Civil War. I was getting, I was getting my letter writing skills. Uh-huh. My dearest Erica, <laughs> the Battle of Home Depot has <laughs> There's still time. We could still have a civil war. I was looking forward to it. Me too. Yeah. Now, what would you have done during a civil war? You'd be good during an apocalypse. I don't think you'd be too valuable in a civil war. It depends. I mean, I I don't think I would have gone out and fought, but I think uh, I would have put up fellows who were on their way Mm -hmm. to go fight down south. I'd give them a good warm meal and and tell them, you know, to come back with... uh, a confederate ear. Yeah. You're a fragger, quite frankly. If I if we had been a little older, you and I would have ended up in Nam together. And by Nam I mean which pick a joke. Which one? Um Pan Am. Um The good one though. There's a better one. Um What's the Nambla. I <laughs> I came home and they called me a baby killer when I came home from Nambla. Anyway, uh, does Nambla even exist anymore? I uh, ah, yeah, I was going to catch yeah, you. Okay. What about you? Would have well, go ahead. Remember Rick, Ren- Mick Re- was it Rick Reynolds' joke? No, who was it who said I? They would like stump whenever they would like stumble over a word or something, and like somebody in the audience would laugh. Mm-hmm. They go, "Hey, I had a, I have a speech impediment. <laughs> I, I got this in Nam, right." I'm over there. I lost my wallet and uh, Jim Edwards used to say I lost my luggage and <laughs> my luggage and uh, that was like 80s, early 80s. Yeah. There was a lot of Vietnam veterans jokes. Yeah. And uh, anyway, it, you know, it was the first experience I ever had with the politically correct because I used to tease Vietnam vets. I one of my earliest bits was how come there's no monument to the draft Dodgers? I, I don't remember what it was. Uh, and people would walk up to me and say, that's really insensitive. A lot of these guys came home really. It, it hurt and you're, but the, all the Vietnam vets loved it. It was yeah. always people protecting somebody else. Right. But there were two kinds of Vietnam vets. The ones who went through it and were okay enough to come to a comedy club. <laughs> <laughs> They, they were fine. They were like they had a good sense of humor. There were other ones who weren't in the comedy club who, if you said the wrong thing to, it wasn't going to go so far. Right. I used to pass my, I'm 
not quite old enough to have been a Vietnam vet, but I looked old enough. And I, I used to say to the audience, I for this, you treat me that I came. I went off to Vietnam and I came home and they called me a baby killer just because I killed babies. <laughs> Nobody laughed and I kept doing it. That was my problem. So what was your question about? That should be the name of your autobiography. What? Nobody laughed and I kept doing it. <laughs> I have a Madisonian fear of the mob, John. I, my comedy bit is like the Electoral College. Uh -huh. I, you, can't, you can't trust the masses to pick the right punchline. You have to filter it. You need a filtration system. And there, there needs to be some uh, court filings before people decide whether or not to laugh. <laughs> but you would have fragged. You would have. Who are you waving at? No, I'm wondering why that door got opened. I, but now it's closed. Okay. Okay. If you and I were in a civil war, if we were fighting, you yeah. would not have obeyed. For example, if we were at Milai. Okay, Milai was that was the, the, Colonel Cali uh -huh. ordering a massacre. Yeah. You would have disobeyed. You would have said, I can't believe he's making us do this. It's like ninety-eight degrees. These kids won't shut up. I'm schwitzing here. I haven't had any water. F him. Let him let him do this massacre himself, and you would have walked away. You wouldn't have fought. You, you don't follow orders. That that sounds like me. <laughs> it does. You're not a team player. I am. Well, I am in sports. I'm a team player. That I find interesting about you, because in all honesty, I think of you as the kind of person who would frag his commanding officer. I hope I'm pronouncing that properly. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, if we had a couple of drinks. And <laughs> I could see you not approving of the mission and, and killing your commanding officer. I've been on projects with you where you speak up. What projects? I, we, I don't know. We've worked on yeah, stuff. We've never worked together. There's a reason for that. I know. But, but haven't we worked? We've never worked. We've No, we never have. Because every time, like, I want you to recommend me for a job and you won't do it because. You're better than I am. We, we worked on Rick Reynolds' pilot together. Did you come in on that? Yeah. I don't want to mention names, but there was somebody there. I'm not mentioning any names. I, I didn't work on the pilot, really. I came in. No, after. we worked together. No, no, we worked together. And we, I'm not going to mention any names. But one of the people there, let's just say, okay. had hit the end of the road in terms of show business. Right? It was pathetic. I need names because I don't know. No, who you're ten talking years about. older than us, and we thought this guy, this is the end game, and it ain't pretty. And now he's worth a billion dollars. Don't mention the name. Oh. Are you talking? Did he go on to co-create? Yeah, 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 yeah. Oh? But I remember uh, going to his house and thinking. Oh, I never, never went to his house. Yes, you did. You went. You I, went. Oh, I think we both worked on the show, but at separate times. All right. Anyway. I didn't, I remember looking at that guy going, this is pathetic. Yeah. And I remember using his bathroom. Yeah. And he had copies of Variety in, in the toilet. But, you know, first of all, I'm against reading on the toilet. Wow. That's the first he, thing. He, he would read on the toilet Variety. And I thought, this is not, I don't want to be this guy. He chain-chewed Nicorette gum, I remember. And it was like 
he had quit smoking like five years earlier, but never stopped chewing the gum and, mm -hmm. you know, constantly chewed the, the nicotine gum. And, and may, may have stained his pants once. Um, it was, you know, who's a baby. That was like my first ever sitcom that I ever worked on was that. Yeah. And the other baby writer was uh, a young man named Matt Selman who went on to be executive producer of the Simpsons for, and the head writer of the Simpsons for many years and is fabulously wealthy. And, uh, but Matt and I were two baby. Why don't writers. we break into his home? This guy would abuse us like, and say, you know, nasty things. And, you know, he was just a general jerk. He would like, anyway, but no, well, not I, Matt Selman though. No, not Matt. He would, the, the, the head writer who we, whose name we won't mention, who went on to produce a super, very famous show. Um, that, that was only done as a gift. You know that, right? That story. The other super, the other super famous guy let him come on board on that as a favor because he was about to lose his health insurance. And you now know? he's gone off to, uh, yeah. Yeah, now he's crazy. Um, but anyway, um, he was wearing white pants. This is great. Right. And, and this is one of my favorite stories. You know, this one, you, what I asked you to tell me this, this and your father okay. in so, Normandy, so, but go ahead. This is, wearing, this is worse than your father in Normandy. I think he's wearing white pants and, um, he, and he's just being abusive to us and just a total jerk. And now he's got to go up to casting and he's casting like, models like not supermodels but models for some scene i can't remember where they're gonna have beautiful women and he's like going yeah i'm going to that you guys aren't going to that i'm going to that and uh you know he says like some you know more derogatory stuff to us stands up turns around and there's literally a blood stain on his butt like <laughs> it looked like that on you know a raspberry uh, pop chart and he, and and he's he's got like a red stain on his ass and he's literally a bleeding asshole and me and Matt, like look at each other and like we can't look at each other or we're just gonna like scream laughing like looking down and biting and, and he turns around to say like some one more like <laughs> asshole thing to us, and, you know, to tell us what to do while he's gone. And we're like, yeah, you should go. And, and he, yeah, I don't see all those beautiful women. Like, yeah, you should go do that. Yeah. Well, I ask you to tell me that story once a year. I remember I was working on a show uh, and I've never forgotten that story. That's why I don't wear white pants. And uh, yeah. so what I used to do in my office because of that story, I have you know, some during hay fever season when the Santa Ana's come through in L.A., I sneezed a lot mm -hmm. and my door would be shut. But the walls were really thin. And you, I, I every I would do this because of your story. I, you'd hear this <laughs> underwear. <laughs> and like. So whenever I sneeze, it was I, was I was calling for a fresh pair of underwear after I sneezed. So then it got to the point where the the bit got so tired. Every time I sneezed, the whole office would scream, "Underwear! Get him underwear!" And I go, "What?" 
just had a big case of underwear in the, in the uh, craft service room, you know, <laughs> with like a snitch on the top with, so they're like sticking out like Kleenex. So you're like just rip a brush. And depending on the meal that they're having that yeah. day, we're having Mexican. I'll take the boxers. You know what? It's Mediterranean. <laughs> give me some. Give me some briefs. It's, it's yeah, going to be a light day. <laughs> you put all the toothpaste picked up so you can easily grab those. <laughs> uh, and now he's a billionaire. And you have the little travel pack. <laughs> That you take with you in the car. It just has like three pairs, you know, and you keep it on top of your visor. <laughs> you know, well, we should change the subject because we've got Mark Ring coming up at the bottom of the hour. That sounds professional saying bottom of the hour, doesn't it? Hmm? Yeah. Did you, did you like yeah, that? Sure. Maybe I'll even I, say hard know. break. Maybe I'll say hard break if, you, if you're kind to me. I'm not <sighs> sure how that works on a podcast, but go right ahead. <laughs> Uh, I felt sorry for the guy. I did. I said, I don't want my, I said, I will never allow myself. I'll know when to leave. I'll know when to leave. And then he, then he got fired and we all thought we were going to, uh, lose our jobs. Remember you weren't there. I was, he I was, just, fired. yeah, right. He got fired and we all thought, Oh my God, a new showrunner is going to come in and, um, we're all just, he's just going to clean house and replace us with all his, uh, people but instead he just changed he was, the he just changed the chairs uh it was he just alan changed the seat cushions did you know alan kirschenbaum i knew his dad freddie roman oh so alan came in and uh and nice replaced guy. him and and was the greatest guy and in fact i'll tell you this quick story and then we can go he's sort of responsible for me because at that point i was just a stand-up and i was trying to be an actor and uh, I only got that job because Rick, um, you know, Rick wanted that other asshole, uh, bleeding asshole fired. And 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 uh, TriStar. Oh, I thought you said you wanted my asshole on fire. OK, <laughs> so Mark Green is here. We got to keep I, okay. I'm trying to, I, you know, John, you took it into the gutter. Yeah. Well, anyway, Alan Kirschenbaum was a great guy. I'll yes, tell you that was. story time how yeah. that how that guy got fired and how he got replaced how i got the job because he got was going to get fired then got fired anyway and then alan came in and alan kind of launched my showbiz career right right, right. anyway yeah. yeah well let's talk about trump while we're waiting for mark green to to come in we have a couple more minutes with the great johnny ross who has a terrific twitter feed fun with friction there's no justice in this world no, I, there is I, I, no I justice. You write great tweets, and Jennifer right, yeah. Lopez writes, "Remember to breathe," and a million retweets. And I'm going. I don't get it. Why, Here, I'll what? read some of my tweets. That's what we, that should be a segment on your show. Johnny Russ reads his tweets. Okay, because no one reads them except I think some of the people who like my tweets are your listeners. Um, uh, let's see. This one. Uh, well, okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. Doc? Donald Trump's vowing to make it very difficult for Joe Biden to take over the presidency. He's saying before Joe can gain entrance to the White House, he must be able to repeat five words. Person, woman, man, camera, TV. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> the, you the next one gets the sad trombone, even if it's brilliant. 
Uh, is that going to make you mad at me? No, not at all. Uh, uh, yeah, I, I, any sound is better than no sound. Uh, <laughs> Donald Trump and his allies are filing lawsuits all over the country in an attempt to overturn the results of coronavirus. <laughs> That's funny. I like that. I like that. Uh, okay. America is transitioning. What are its pronouns? That got a big laugh. The chin waggers in the chat room are responding. Do you hear the wind blowing? The weather outside is frightful. Uh, I wish I knew the next line of that song. Um, well, you're... Uh, so what do you want to say about uh, Trump? Are you... Uh, you happy? You happy now? Am I uh, am I happy? Yeah. No. It, it, it this is this is you know we're about the same age. I'm a little older than you. This reminds me of standing next to a urinal with my grandfather waiting for him to finish. There's just this slow <laughs> trickle. It it won't it, I was ex I wanted to go down to Trump Tower on November 3rd. And, you know, have it VJ day, you know, have it be over. Yeah. And, and right. kiss sailors. I mean, what's uh, <laughs> you can do that anyway. I know. Well, I just, I, was it well, VJ I, day well, or BJ day? I always forget. Go little ahead. Of, little of both. <laughs> well, um, I, I think one of the things that's sort of disappointing is that the people are sort of celebrating that our, uh, institutions turned out to hold fast and to work. And it's kind of like, it's such the bare minimum that, that we can celebrate that, uh, you know, an election was, you know, brought to the breaking point of almost being overturned and a couple of courts, you know, held up and it was like, yeah, okay, we're not going to overturn the election. It's right. Like, it all works perfectly. Not really. And we still have 70 percent of the GOP who believes that Trump really won the election. And and supposedly smart pundits are saying, really, you believe that Joe Biden got more votes? Doesn't seem possible. It's like, well, that's what you think is not really the measure. It's how many people actually. Anyway, is so, he going away? Are they going away? Things aren't going to get better, right? Th things don't improve with him. They're going to you're going to be more fascinated. You and I are going to be more fascinated by Donald Trump once he's out of office and the media won't let him go. They will not let him go. But but hopefully people like Letitia James and Cyrus Vance also won't let him go. It'd be nice right. if, if there were federal. Uh, I don't think any of us believe that Biden will let the federales go after him, though they totally should. But I don't think he can stop the locals from going after him. And I said a long time ago that all roads I agreed with Pelosi, all roads lead to Russia, including the one out of the White House, and that that's where he was going to end up, or at least somewhere without extradition treaty. Oh, you mean moving to Russia? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah, he, he, he'll finally, you know, they'll greenlight Trump Tower and he'll live in the top three floors and have like some kind of giant mansion from which he'll sort of run a communications business of some sort, which is mostly internet based where he'll tweet his bullshit and he'll get a lot of attention and he'll take his pot shots from over there and people will file lawsuits and he'll call them all fake, but 
they won't be uh, enforceable. I mean, that, that's. I don't think Melania is going to go for that. <laughs> so I mean, that would be that would be tough on the marriage, don't you think? She, I don't think she wants to go back. Um, yeah, it, it it would it would probably impact their sex life some. Do you believe Russia was behind his getting elected? Because a lot of people who come on this show say mm -hmm. that's amateur. That's to, to think that is naive. It's just an excuse for the incompetency of the Democratic Party. Do you believe he wouldn't be I, I, there but for Vladimir Putin? Well, I believe the answer to uh, almost every single question ever posed is, a little of both. Right. I, I don't think you, you sit and say, you know, wow, if not for Russia, he totally couldn't have won. Or, it, you know, it, Russia completely put him in or they didn't have anything to do with it. It's somewhere in between. I mean, Paul Manafort was giving, uh, what's his name, Kalimnik, the, the polling data from the, the campaign. Right. What was he doing with that? If not going, right. hey, and, and they had those mills. I mean, all these things existed. They had these mills that were pumping this crazy information. I mean, there's a reason people still believe that there are people drinking this blood and you go down in the basement of a pizza and uh, of a pizza place and you can order a baby. And, you know, people believe this stuff. And there were Russians definitely pumping. There's a reason everyone hated Hillary Clinton more than they hate cancer. Right. And the Russians had something to do with that. And if you're going to say that didn't sway a single person's vote, then you're crazy. But, you know, but a lot of things can sway, sway the vote. A lot of. Yes. Like not and, campaigning in Wisconsin. Right. And to, like, I'm not going to point to any single thing. It took a village to lose that election. Yes. Uh, yeah. But, you know, did Russia play a part? Yeah. And now can you say, do, does America try to influence other people's elections? Yes. Also true. All right. these things are true. But, you know. What is the, the single thing that you think saved us from having a civil war? I, I, there's one thing in my mind that prevented rioting in the streets. Uh, I, I'm trying to guess what you're going to say. Fox calling Arizona. Yeah, I, I think Rupert Murdoch. I think they got spooked. I think they actually thought this is going to, this could be ugly. It'd be good for business, you know, yeah, it, but this I, could I, be. I don't know that there is as much of a, a conspiracy as you like to believe that there is some, you know, trilateral commission. No, I, I'm, I'm just saying, no, no, I just said Rupert Murdoch. Right. So one guy makes a decision and then everybody else falls in line and does whatever. I think there was enough individual people who looked, uh, you know, like Shepard Smith is now out of Fox and he's at where is he at? CNBC. CNBC. And he's supposed, you know, and he was a guy who was at Fox. I think there's and what's his name? Chris Wallace. I think there's enough people who are not absolute nuts like Lou Dobbs who would take an order that says, just say that the election went this way in this state because I said so, as opposed to reading actual results and going, hey, I got to call this the way I see it. I think there was enough of them that that's what happened and not that some, you know, mind controlling guy just I can say this is the word and it comes down from on high. And I don't believe that with Rupert Murdoch and Fox yeah. News and Roger Ailes. I think, I think it sort of happens somewhat. 
I, I, I think on individual decisions on one thing like that. I, I think Fox News is a tuning fork. I think Rupert Murdoch, when Roger Ailes was alive, when he rang the tuning fork, everybody vibrated at the same tone. And you knew not you just knew not to go against it. And uh, I don't know. Well, it could it could have been different. It could have if Fox, because if you look at the Republican Party, certainly in Washington, D.C., if you look at Lindsey Graham, they were all towing the Trump party line. Did you I know. Did you read that Washington Post article about the 20 days after? And they pointed to that, that his plan going in was get enough states to get far enough to go to be able to declare victory that night. And and if he could do that, then, you know, he he felt like he had a better chance. But once Arizona was not in his column, he it the fight kind of then dragged out into the coming days. But I think ultimately it still would have come down the way it came down at the courts. I don't I, I don't think people were ever going to go out in the streets and start, you know, I think a lot of the people who are out in the streets are out there mostly for show. Right. Uh, I thought Mark Green was going to join us via the Zoom, but I think he's joining us. I hope he's joining us via, via phone. So let me, I think we, I think we have Mark Green coming up. There he is. Hi, it's Mark. Hi, Mark Green. It's David Feldman. It's, Can you hear me adequately? Yes, I thought we were going to do this on Zoom, but we're we're live, so we're we're going. We'll do it by phone. Oh, unless okay, you want, can, unless you no, want to no, do it on I, Zoom. No, we'll do it this by works. phone. This works. Let me say goodbye to John Ross. John okay. Ross, follow him on at on Twitter at Fun with Friction, and I look forward to talking to you again, John. What what a treat as always. Thank you, John. Same to you, my friend. Happy holidays. We don't we don't say happy holidays on this show. (laughs) When's Hanukkah this year? Well, Mark, do you you know what what holiday I celebrate? Kwanzaa. I said no. What I've done is I've combined the best of Hanukkah with the best of Christmas, and I call it Hamas. We say happy Hamas. (laughs) That's that's fairly funny. Let me say goodbye. Really funny. That was funny. Sometimes I'm funny, John Ross. Thank you, John Ross. We'll talk to you next week, I hope. Mark Green joins us. His latest book is Wrecking America How Trump's Law Breaking and Lies betray all he co-wrote this book with ralph nader he also wrote another book with ralph nader last year entitled fake president decoding trump's gaslighting corruption and general bs all of those books are great stocking stuffers and you should go out and buy these two books they're they're brilliantly written and fun to read and educational and trump isn't over for those of you who think, well, he's going gently into the night, these books are worth reading. Trump is going to be in the rearview mirror at the end of January 2021, and 
then he's going to be right in front of us again. And his legacy remains. He's not going away, is he, Mark Green? Uh, no, he, he will be during what's called the interregnum. The what, uh, seven weeks left until January 20th, where he could wreck America uh, even more. In fact, Previously, he was uh, somewhat constrained by uh, a Congress, an anticipated election, possible impeachment. But now those things aren't on the table because he's going to be gone and uh, Biden's not going to sue him. However, I might disagree with you slightly. I do think he'll be in the rearview mirror in that Trumpism isn't gone. You know, a third of America just salutes whatever uh, stupidity he utters. But it's not 50%. And he may think that he'll stay prominent like now. But, you know, with without hail to the chief and uh, flying in on Air Force One to 20,000 people at rallies, and without the pulpit of his office, I think the magic may be gone. I mean... We'll hear about him, but he's not like the uh, ultimate president. And I don't think he'll run in 2024 because he was hard enough to swallow for four years. And I don't think he got 46 and 47 percent in two elections. He wants to run and lose again. Uh, I don't think he's going to be happy about that. I want to introduce you to my audience because some of them may not be familiar with who you are. You have a, a resume that is more padded than Twiggy's decolletage. I mean, it, it's I don't even know what that meant. You have a resume that it's just uh, let's pretend I didn't say that you were the president of Air America. You were the first New York City public advocate. You've written by last count. I believe you've written five thousand two hundred thirty six books. Uh, Twenty four. 5,224 okay. books. Oh, How many books have you written? I've written or edited 24 books. Look, but, I trade them all for one Robert Caro, Master of the Senate, or a power <laughs> broker, but I didn't have that option. <laughs> You've written with James Fallows and right. Ralph Nader, and you ran. So I, I guess I, I want to talk about Trump, but I guess we should do it through the prism of your experience in Manhattan. Because you were almost mayor of New York after 9-11. You ran, you were the Democratic nominee. You lost to Bloomberg by something like, what, 10,000? How many votes did you lose to Bloomberg by? Thanks for reminding me. <laughs> I won that Mark Green, and I lost 50 to 48. Um, the original election was on September 11th, 2001. Sound familiar? Yeah. What, I, so it, was, yeah. it was chaotic. It was postponed. I became the nominee. And then, uh, unlike Trump, Mike is intelligent and honorable and rather wealthy and spent $75 million when that was a lot of money. Right. But uh, it freed me up to prepare for this interview. <laughs> <laughs> and so you were the first New York City public advocate. And then right. you, and I'd like you, you did that between 94 and I guess 2001. Explain what a public advocate is. 
It's amazing well, that we have that, and we don't have anything like that at the federal level, do we? Uh, no, maybe the uh, government accountability office that right. is an entity. The public advocate in New York City is elected. So you're not dependent on a mayor who could remove you for cause. You're elected on your own. And the job is to be an oversight over the executive uh, because if he has a horrible appointee, if he's trying to hide misconduct, the public advocate can make it prominent. For example, I had a guy that your audience may never have heard of who was the mayor while I was public advocate, Rudy Giuliani. No, doesn't ring a bell. Yeah, he's no. a piece of work. Then he was kind of a smart, energetic, nasty POS, uh, and he's proven it out to the world, frankly. And it's odd. Uh, New York City got this idea in the 70s, imported from Sweden, which had ombudsmen to watch the king 200 years ago. And now it's the same thing, to watch not a monarch, but an elected official. And very few of any other uh, jurisdictions have it. But it, I, I did a fair amount in those eight years in terms of lawsuits against Giuliani. So is it like a reports. permanent independent council looking over the executive branch? Yes, it is permanent. It's in the city constitution. I established its ability to sue the mayor when Giuliani tried to keep hidden all the substantiated civilian complaints against cops who uh, ran roughshod over people of color engaged in racial profiling. I won my case, and it was disclosed, and this was, you know, a couple of decades before um, all the uh, problems of George Floyd and everyone else we've seen since. Okay, so New York City has Mr. Williams. He's now our public advocate. It's a great idea. If, uh, don't you think? Yes. Uh, I, I honestly think it's great. Look, I, I spent uh, a couple of decades with Ralph Nader, who is a sort of unelected public advocate. Or I think he's one of a kind in mm -hmm. terms of watching government and corporations uh, so they don't steal from us or violate the laws. Uh, and so it, it works at that ombudsman uh, level. Uh, special interests try to get rid of it, but they, they always fail. So the idea of go, going writ large with this and looking at the Justice Department, would there be anything wrong with a, a special counsel, a permanent special counsel, looking to put the president of the United States and everybody who works under him on trial? Or does that slow down the gears of government? Well, that's conceivable. What we have now um, is a semi-important possibility of a special counsel when there has been um, apparent misconduct. It's like, is there reasonable cause to create a special counsel? Uh, no, if Donald Trump cheats at golf, which he does. Mm -hmm. But yes, if he's obstructed justice, as he repeatedly did, according to the Mueller report, the evidence is right there. When he urged his counsel, Don McGahn, to lie to the prosecutor, Robert Mueller, uh, about wanting to fire 
uh, Mueller. And that's just one of many examples of, uh, of uh, obstruction. And so uh, uh, this is a ripe issue, not merely because Trump is exceeding the speed limit during the interregnum. And uh, <laughs> they just established uh, uh, that uh, they could uh, have firing squads in the future. Yes. yes. I'm not kidding. Oh, yeah. Thank goodness. I've been waiting for that reform. <laughs> you know why? why? Be- because the chemicals uh, are cruel and unusual. They can't get their hands on the, the proper chemicals for the injections. This, well, is, this is more humane. Here comes Biden, who is the first uh, president in memory who's against the death penalty. Uh about uh, uh, be that as it may, I mean Trump could invade a country. We saw how it apparently Israel, probably with the acquiescence of Trump, uh, killed the leading scientist in Iran. Right. Which, whether the audience thinks that's a good or bad idea, is not my concern right now. But you don't do something like that with a president who's going out the door, and then you become a poison chalice around his neck or something that he hasn't uh, he hasn't done. But what we, we, we try to do during for this interactive is warn people that he could do a lot of illegal things or uh, undesirable things without accountability. That is like the title of our book. He could continue wrecking America even though uh, he's been defeated. Or worse, go all fascistic. The word isn't allowed to be used, almost. I've never used it until this year. But, you know, when he tries to ignore elections, imprison predecessors, pardon friends, lie 23,000 times, I mean, um, could he go all the way? And well, let me ask you, you're, you're, you're the, you wrote this new book with Ralph Nader, which everybody should buy for, <laughs> for the holidays, Wrecking America, How Trump's Law-Breaking and Lies Betray, Betray, Betray All. You, to prep for this book, you write that you read the biographies of Lenin, Hitler, and Mussolini. Yes. Has Trump read them? I don't think he's read the Bill of Rights. <laughs> I really don't. I'd be shocked if if he could prove that he read a biography of any predecessor. Look, but he has instincts. This is what I wanted to ask you, because you grew up in New York. You were the public advocate in New York. You ran for mayor in New York. You must have run into Donald Trump and Rudy Giuliani. There's no denying that 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 Donald Trump understands something that Hitler, Mussolini, and Lenin understood. There's nobody, there's nobody whispering into his ear, is there? He's, he's doing this on his own, right? Well, it, it, it's, uh, it, it's unseemly to compare anyone to Hitler, but people say that because of the genocide. Well, Hitler had better taste in architecture. I mean... Okay. Um, I am reading a new biography of Hitler now, plus uh, Obama's memoir. And, and they're rather two different people. <laughs> now, putting aside genocide, right. which 
ideally is unlikely. Although his complete indifference uh, to the uh, COVID-19 pandemic, you know, he's tweeted about his election a hundred times, zero about the pandemic, which had four times more infections this month than the prior month. Right. I mean, this is people are dying because of his incompetence. But did he read such things? I don't think he, he, he's not curious. He doesn't read. He doesn't listen. The thing that he had in common with them, Lenin, Hitler, Mussolini, is first, he came to attention because of his ability to talk. I mean, I'm not persuaded by him, but, you know, he's entertaining. And the others, that's how they each got well-known. Uh, second, they were ruthless for power. They would do anything. Now, uh, Lenin did it, obviously, because he believed in communism. Uh, Hitler did it, obviously, and it's all throughout his uh, uh, the biographies. He thought Jewish Bolsheviks were destroying Germany and the world, and uh, we know the result. And, and, and so, and all of them, of them, we call it out disinformation or gaslighting, they would make things up all the time, assuming that the public would never catch on. I, I just finished a paragraph in the, in the second volume of Ulrich's uh, two-volume biography of Hitler, where for uh, four months he was telling the public, we're about to destroy the Soviet Union. He had invaded it an ill-advised move, uh, in the East, uh, saying we're about to win. And then one day he had to announce, well, we've lost the Sixth Army entirely, 100,000 men. Um, but let's talk about uh, our glorious Germans who fought and died. Mm-hmm. You see, and, and while Trump doesn't have anything like that to say, his 23,000 on big things, like the election was fraudulent, like he tried to bribe the president of the Ukraine, it really put him in league with current despots. You know, like Putin and Xi and China, Bolsonaro, and in Brazil, Erdogan and Turkey. And so America came quite close after a 240-year run of, you know, presidents who were great, mixed, or awful. We've never had a president who was this incompetent, deceitful, with what George Will called a gangster administration. He has a natural criminal mind that whatever he encounters, so it's good news or bad news, his instinct is to say, is to focus on uh, vanity, uh, money, and power. Right. So he can't help himself. Perhaps the the reason he lost, I think, is because he was funneling all the money that he could into his own pocket or his defense attorneys, that he was surrounded by people who 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 are gangsters and they see money and they can't help themselves. It belongs to them, not the the Republican Party. But you you have a BS detector in this book. Yes. But it, um, but is it also a uh, playbook? Well, Trump, to his credit, forgetting his value system and his character, he has 21 rhetorical tricks 
that keep working because of his credulous audience. And and so let's say he, he didn't do nine things to contain the coronavirus and hundreds of thousands are getting it and dying. They'll say, well, you know, the, the death rate per infected went down on a given day four months ago. And on that day, that statistic was trending good. Mm-hmm. Now, since then, it's gotten worse. He predicted it would grow to 15 deaths and nothing. 15 and 260,000 are different numbers. So he ignores, he cherry-picks data. He denies everything. Uh, and then he figures out what he's been accused of. Uh, he used the boy, you know, the wall. Uh, we're rounding the bend instead of uh, uh, evidence. He's theatrical like Reagan. He understands the body language and television like Reagan did, frankly. Uh, and some people buy it. Uh, to say he brags is <laughs> he exaggerates exaggerations. And he assumes that if he asserts something is done, we have the greatest economy ever. People are not going to research that. They go, wow, we have the greatest economy ever. Now, it's turned out that he's the first president in modern history to end his term with fewer people employed than when he started. That's because of the pandemic that he let run rampant. Really? Wow. And, and so it's it's kind of gimmick after gimmick. Um, and his evidence for any assertion, I've heard that. People are saying, I always want to say, well, people are saying you're a pedophile. I've never said that before until your show. Because right. I've been told no one is listening, so we're safe, right? <laughs> we're, we're safe. Right. In other words, if I ever did that, it would be horribly ugly, of course. He does that every day and accuses people. He, he said uh, Kamala Harris was a communist. By the way, whether you like or not communism or socialism, she ain't a communist. No. But he doesn't offer any evidence. He just engages in scandals, smears, and fears. And look, he, he he got by on a in a perfect storm in 2016 uh, because of the electoral college, Putin, uh, 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 others, Comey. But he ran it out of luck. You know, if you're going to be a con man, don't stay in the same place too long. You know, mm-hmm. Elmer Gantry kept moving around so people couldn't catch up to him. Well, he's been president for four years under a lot of scrutiny, and he did enough horrible things that uh, a good candidate like Biden could sink him. They weren't going to be fooled again by lies like they did about Hillary. You are from New York City. You understand how New York City works. So does Donald Trump, and so does Rudy Giuliani. Having been born in Brooklyn, there's one thing... I realized before I left New York City, promising never to come back, is there's no law in New York City. There's only power and money. And and that's kind of what Trump and Rudy understood. And and didn't Rudy, in the, the last-ditch attempt to swing the election, didn't he just think sharp elbows, power, and threat 
were enough? Because that seems to be how Manhattan works. Well, you know, I was a, a commissioner under Mayor David Dinkins. I was a consumer commissioner. And um, he was an honorable man. He obeyed the law. I'm sure he exaggerated from time to time, like any politician. Um, Jimmy Breslin, the late great uh, novelist and writer in New York, said, don't ask me about the law. Tell me who the judges are. Mm -hmm. And so we may see this on the Supreme Court now. You know, biased judges, they wear robes, but they're still partisans uh, under it. It is true that Giuliani and Trump are anti-Lincolns. Lincoln, among many other things, said, right makes might. And those two guys are thugs who believe that might makes right. And look, how many Republicans even now have publicly said the words, well, I'm not happy about it, but Biden won fair and square by 7 million votes. And they can't say it because they're scared, you know what, mm -hmm. of Trump, even though he's no longer going to be the president. And it's a rational fear because how he's destroyed people. The Republicans like Robert Corker, um, elected a, a officials like Senator Flake. Um, he's now trying to destroy the governor of, of Georgia, who's a Republican, Governor Kemp, yeah, yeah. who he supported. And so the Who's the biggest cheat? He's, he's one of the legendary electoral cheats of American history, Kemp. He, he cheated. He was the Secretary of State who ran the election that he was in. <laughs> Imagine the umpire who's the batter. Right. And he beat Stacey Abrams, who didn't go anywhere, but returned the favor and helped Biden carry Georgia. And we'll see. She's doing everything possible to have the two runoff elections help elect a Democratic majority Senate. Um, but anyway, it's an interim effect. Remember Machiavelli and the Godfather saying, better to be feared than loved. Well, Trump loves being feared. Rudy loves being feared. But when there's a new attorney general and a new head of the SDNY, the Southern District of New York, he's going to have to answer for a lot of his shenanigans in the Ukraine, where he took a lot of money, moved it around to try to top, to try to uh, empower the government that the slate that ran against the current president. So I think he's vulnerable uh, beyond looking like a fool when his makeup drips down his face. Why can't he even be disbarred? Shouldn't Rudy be disbarred? Could, yeah. um, I think he could be. Uh, Adam Schiff and others, Congressman Adam Schiff and others, have urged bar associations to look into how Bill Barr and Rudy Giuliani didn't enforce the law, but violated the law in so many ways. And, you know, you don't have to be convicted of a crime to be disbarred. You can be because you violate ethics. Well, those these guys are walking monkey wrenches at the, uh, at the uh, code of legal conduct. And 
I assume there'll be actually um, uh, Richard Painter, who is the ethics advisor to uh, Barack Obama. Uh, I'm sorry. I think it was Bush, right? It was Bush. I'm sorry. I caught myself and you snuck right in there and corrected me. You're right. It was Bush. And he has filed a petition to uh, disbar them in one of the jurisdictions where they were uh, uh, they were been practicing law. But first things first, make sure Trump doesn't further wreck America during the interregnum, and he's doing what he can now. And then to make sure that Biden succeeds on big ticket items, uh, the economy, the pandemic. Uh, race, democracy. So when he or someone runs in 2024, it's not just uh, skins and shirts, Democrats and Republicans. It's Republicans ran the economy and our health into the ground. Democrats pulled us out of the ditch. And here's the evidence in terms of GDP and health. Right. Because uh, midterm elections in 2022 and then in 2024 will determine not whether Trump comes back. But Trumpism is in the saddle again. Before you go, we've been talking with, I hope you come back. Oh, uh, thank you. I, this is, there's, it, there's so much that you can talk to when you look at your life experience. It's just incredible. And, and I want to ask you about New York City before you go. But let me plug your two books that you wrote with Ralph Nader. The, the latest one is Wrecking America, How Trump's Lawbreaking and Lies Betray All. It is more relevant now than it was before the election. And the other book is Fake President Decoding Trump's Gaslighting, Corruption and General BS. Both of those books were written with Ralph Nader. I have a question about Ralph Nader I want to ask you. But first, I want to go back to New York City. Yes. You you knew Rudy Giuliani. You knew Donald Trump. Had they not gotten onto the national stage during the past five years, would you have thought more positively of them? Well, you see, I knew them in different ways. Rudy was the mayor. The public advocate elected me was the number two city official under our Constitution. But since I was independent, as I mentioned earlier, I could sue him, expose him, criticizing a point D. So we were, we went at it weekly. Um, he didn't much like me, but I think he respected me. I didn't much like him. But he didn't have, he wasn't in the same medical condition he is now. There's something. Well, uh, he, uh, that's not my portfolio. Uh, he he's he's been altered by divorce and drink, right? And the need for know. money. I don't. I don't know. Look, he. he, he could he uh, pass the bar today? Could he, if he had to take the bar? Could he pass a bar exam? No, nor could I. <laughs> you're older. You, you forget the rules that you knew. You know, on your tongue when when you were doing it. Right. Now, Rudy is a moth drawn to fame, and so he's always performing. And so he says things that are crazy, but he doesn't say it in court now because he could be disbarred or prosecuted. But he did say crazy things in court in Pennsylvania. No, 
when, when judges asked him, are you alleging fraud in these right. cases? Right. He says, no. Right. And then at a press conference, he alleges fraud. Right. Uh, as for Trump, I'm afraid to say he was a joke before. And we made comparisons to Hitler, not in the genocide, but Hitler was regarded as a joke and a fool by the German intelligentsia and bourgeois. And he had very low popularity. And then a few brown shirts later, they thought that they could control him as chancellor. They were wrong right. because of his willpower, his talent at speaking and being driven, and his goals that played to the prejudice of the other. In Germany, it was Jews. Now it's Trump and people of color. Um, so uh, no one took Trump seriously. And in New York Ralph City, did. Ralph did. Which, well, one. <laughs> I didn't. Uh, but now we know what happens when y- you can find an Achilles heel, even in democracy. And how tragic to get serious that after uh, 44 presidents, one guy came very close to destroying a 240-year-old democracy. And still might. Right. Unless we, uh, unless some of his base uh, leave him in 2022 and 2024. Before, I I hope you come back. Uh, There's, you could talk about everything. I want to ask you about a phenomenon. When I met you, you probably don't remember that I met you at Barnes and Noble for one of Ralph Nader's book signings. This is one of the books you didn't write with him. And I Uh asked you about this phenomenon that I find phenomenal. A phenomenal phenomenon. You wrote a book with Eric Alterman, great columnist for the nation. Yes. I, sometimes it's the only th- he's the only thing I read in the nation. But I'm stunned by people like Eric Alterman who think they're Ralph's equal, that there are people who talk of Ralph Nader as though he, he's... Uh, and Eric Alderman is one of those people who thinks Ralph is just a uh, just a player, just another player. You don't. You don't think Ralph is just. Well, I, I admit to your audience that if I have a mentor, it's him. I've known him 50 years. I figured out we had 20,000 phone calls, so I know him. Now, Dave, you... I believe you're smart. Would your family say you're Einstein? They would not, right? My family? I'm smart. My family wasn't so smart. They they thought I was Einstein. I'm kidding. All right. Go go ahead. You see see the point. Yes. I have met an awful lot of the public authors and public officials that we now all know. I have – I called him earlier – one of a kind. I. It's easy to be Ralph Nader. If you're a human Google who reads everything, remembers everything, works 18 hours a day and are incorruptible. Incorruptible. That is, there's no one else. Now, he makes mistakes. People could say, oh, what about he, he shouldn't have run in the year 2000. Okay, uh, that's, that's a good point if you want to make it. But... He is so much more, that every time I speak with him, 
which is twice a day now. Let's say I'm no schlep, and I thought of one, two, and three things. Tell them, listen, I'll pause, because it's a conversation, and then he'll say, that's great, Mark. Have you thought of four, five, six, or seven? Right. He constantly cites a scientific study, a book of history, legislation in an earlier generation. And I and Eric Altman, who I got to know in writing this book, is very quick, is a good uh, writer, no doubt a very good liberal, but he, I'll tell you a funny story that maybe we'll... But not in, not in, doesn't come close to... to not even... That, that has, hasn't accomplished one one-thousandth of what Ralph's accomplished. Two things, and then I'll let you get back to your productive life. Uh, one is, we are speaking on November 30th, the 55th, uh, 2020, the 55th anniversary unsafe. of Unsafe at Any Speed. Right. His first and most famous book. Most people in lists of the 50 most important books of the half century include it. And since then, because of that book and him, we have Federal Highway and Traffic Safety Administration, state and local laws on airbags, guardrails, and we've calculated that 4.2 million Americans would have died if cars had stayed as unsafe before unsafe at any speed. Uh, that's a hell of a record. And, it's and that's not, just the tip of the iceberg. That's just the tip of the looks, iceberg. It's not looks alone. It's Ralph's it, uh, can't stop working, aspiring, and being creative. Second, Eric Alterman hates Ralph. Maybe there's some jealousy. I don't know. That's what I was going to ask you. That's the. I, I don't know. But it, you can question Ralph's judgment. To hate him is a little crazy. And so Ralph loves books. And when books are remaindered, you may know the author can buy them. Let's say uh, a book sells for $25. When they're remaindered, that they unsold. You can buy the remaining inventory, like the $2 a book. So Ralph bought all the remaining copies of a very good book Eric wrote uh, called What Liberal Media? What Liberal Media? Question mark. You know, it just fights all the fake media and the Rush Limbaugh attacks on the left-wing media. He bought all of Eric's remainder copies and then sent it to him. Notwithstanding that Eric Alterman hates Ralph Nader, just to show him what a generous spirit is like. Did Alterman ever get back to Ralph about it? He did not. No. No. To be continued. To, to, to be con Thanks so much. Oh, are Thanks you so kidding? I'm so glad uh, I, I, I got you on the show. And I, I would love you. Uh, well, now that I have your home phone number, I'm going to be, uh, you're going to have to call Ralph. We could tell Feldman to stop asking me to do my show. Uh, I'm going to, I'm going to be, asking. I wanted to ask you about the FCC. Uh, you were the president of Air America Radio and I, there's so much to talk about, but everybody right now, if you're looking, for a, a Christmas, Christmas, or a, whatever other holiday my people might celebrate. Stuffings. 
Stockings. Stockings, yes. If you want to put something in your stocking, there are two great books that you should pick up that Mark Green wrote with Ralph Nader. The first one is entitled Wrecking America, How Trump's Lawbreaking and Lies Betray All. And the other book that he wrote with Ralph Nader is Fake President Decoding Trump's Gaslighting, Corruption and General BS by both. You've written other books with Ralph. Now is the time to start reading about Trump because now they're bookends. You know, it's 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 history now. And these are two books when you when Joe Biden becomes president and you'll look at Trump and go, was he really did we really have Donald Trump as our president? These are two great books to understand the past four years. Thank you so much, Mark Green. Please. I'm very grateful. Hurry back. Thanks. And I'll say hi to Ralph. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. Well, this is exciting. That was great. Let us now go to Michigan, where Henry Huckamaki is standing by. He is the host of Guerrilla History, and he has a newsletter that everybody. Sorry to keep you waiting. We're running. Hey, no problem, David. Uh, you are. You also have a, a newsletter that everybody should subscribe to on Patreon. Go to patreon.com forward slash Huck nineteen ninety five. Let us get to the the bad news and the good news it it just feels like for lack of a better it it feels like we're masturbating with sandpaper when we talk about the news it's it's good news about the vaccines uh but the sandpaper is what's going on in this country yeah what do you what do you let's start with some good news well, before we even get to COVID, I just want to say Mark Green should have been mayor of New York. It's a shame that Bloomberg bought that election. And I also want to uh, commemorate two uh, deaths that happened this week in history. So during the course of this week, it'll be the anniversary of these deaths, the great Fred Hampton and the great John Brown, both uh, their the anniversary of their deaths or assassinations in the case of Fred Hampton and execution the FBI. in the case of John Brown. Right. The, the FBI. Those be, tell me about, tell us about Fred Hampton. Well, Fred Hampton was uh, one of the leaders of the Black Panther Party, uh, was a very eloquent public speaker, was in charge of a lot of the- Younger than you. Younger than yeah, you. I believe he was 22, 23 or something I think, like I think that. Even younger was... than that. Yeah. In any case, uh, he did a lot of the coordinating and planning for the Black Panthers. And was if you just listen to his speeches, he was just incredible. You could see why he would draw so many people in. And well, that scared the government. And so the, the government had to get rid of him. And, and that's what they did. Uh, but in any case, in, the in FBI. regards to John, that's right. The FBI. the FBI in regards to John Brown, by the way, uh, that just before let, let that sink in. Yeah. Before, oh, yeah. The, the FBI right. assassinated somebody who was 21, 22 years old because they were so eloquent and, and stood for such a strong and powerful message that it was something that the government just couldn't allow to continue. And, and, uh, if you think we're making that up, look it up. And I think Ian Faluna, they literally assassinated him in bed next right. to his pregnant girlfriend. Right. That's that's what our FBI does. Right. But hang and on then, for one second. You brought it up. Sure. J. Edgar Hoover, who was running the FBI at the time, feared the Black Panthers, 
feared Martin Luther King, Malcolm X. He he of thought course. that they they were the ones who were going to be the biggest threat to our way of life. And uh, before you honor the institutions like the FBI, before you your eyes well up at, about Comey, uh, you should know what your FBI does with your tax dollars, killing sleeping black men who yeah, were doing absolutely. what you talked about, yeah. about what the free left school, should free be doing. Lunch, or free breakfast programs, etc. Mutual aid. That was what the Black Panther Party was going out. They were getting into communities and they were changing the material conditions of people's lives for the better. And that was what scared the government. When you have the coalescence of a race-based movement and a class-based movement with one another, that's what scares the government. And they can't allow that to happen. And that's that's what ended Fred Hampton. By the way, I was looking up emergency authorizations. You know, the president of the United States can declare an emergency anytime he wants and suspend habeas corpus or in Trump's case, take a couple billion dollars from the Pentagon and build the wall with it under the emergency authorization. Do you know what the vast preponderance of emergency authorizations from the executive branch have been used for? To quell labor uprisings. That's what kind of what I was thinking. Yeah, it's a labor uprising is a national emergency. Fred Hampton, uh, yeah, and and yeah. John Brown. And John Brown, yeah, who, who was killed and, uh, well, executed. <laughs> A uh, hundred and what'll it be? Quite a few years ago, hundred and seventy years or so, hundred and sixty-five years ago. Now, uh, this is a man that Harriet Tubman called the greatest white man to ever live. This is somebody who Malcolm X, uh, when talking about his various organizations that he was running, said he would never allow a white man into any of those organizations. But if John Brown was alive today, maybe they'd make an exception. Wait, you're saying that Queen Victoria's Boyfriend, the guy who handled her horses after Albert died, John Brown, the one who had that 30 year affair with Queen Victoria, was a great white man. Or is that a different John about, I feel like we're talking about different people okay. here, David. But in any case, this last thing I'll say trying before to we, we get onto the topic at, trying to at get, hand. Uh, yeah, John Brown uh, is one of the really the greatest figures in American history and uh, Adnan Brett and I will be doing a bonus episode of guerrilla history on John Brown within the next week or so. It'll go up on our Patreon. Great. All right. Uh, Adnan professor just wrote, no, you're not. No, we are. We are. I, I can, I can assure you that we are, we've coordinated it all. He must be talking about something else. Okay. I'm just trying to sow dis. You see what happens when you read the chat, David? I, I agree with you. I'm trying to sow dissension among your ranks. So COVID-19. Yeah. Is there anybody getting a shot in two weeks? Anybody getting a vaccine? Anybody getting vaccinated? Probably not in two weeks. Okay, so uh, let me just lay out two things for you right now. Two vaccines have applied for emergency use use authorization that would be the pfizer vaccine and the moderna vaccine they essentially have basically a court hearing you could think of it like a court hearing but instead of being judges on the court it's scientists from the fda on the court okay and they're going to have a hearing 
they're going to be presented evidence from these trials, and then they're going to make a decision whether or not it is warranted for emergency use and whether or not they can start giving it to people outside of the trial groups that were in the phase three trials. Pfizer's, again, you can think of it kind of like a science court hearing. Their trial will be on the 10th. Moderna's will be on the 17th. It's possible that presented the evidence on the 10th and the 17th. So the, the, basically the jury will have gotten the data beforehand. They'll look through it and then they'll hear the case from those companies. It's possible that Pfizer's will be approved for emergency use on the 10th and Moderna's will be approved on the 17th. It's also possible that they'll just hear the case on that day and it'll be a little bit after that before the authorization is given. Once the authorization is given, both of those companies have already been producing the vaccine. So once that emergency use authorization is granted, they'll basically be able to go out and start giving vaccinations right away as soon as they can get it distributed to the places that it needs to be at. Distribution is a big problem that we're going to face. Uh, we can talk about that in a little bit. But so we're talking about like I, I read somewhere that 20 million vaccines are available right now in the United States. It once for December that they could get 20 million by the end of the year. Yes. That's, that's, that's Pfizer's pretty good. Hope is 20, 20 million. But uh, again, keep in mind that of the 20, uh, so both of those vaccines have to have two doses. So that's 10 million people worth uh, from Pfizer. And it'll be about a little bit less than that of Moderna between the two. We'll probably have somewhere around 15 million doses by uh, the end of the year available in the U.S. Pfizer has all 20 million doses earmarked for the U.S. Moderna only has half of the doses. Is there any way we can monitor by the end of 2020 earmarked for the U.S.? Is there any way we can monitor? So let's say there are 10, 12 million vaccines to go in December. Will we know what percentage of those go to the richest one percent? There's no way to find out, right? No, I am almost sure that there will not be the FDA has already drafted a plan with the CDC and has been working with the pharmaceutical companies on a distribution plan. The first priority is going to be frontline healthcare workers followed by elderly individuals, especially those that are in uh, assisted care and other group living facilities. But you know, this people is, with concierge, you know that people who have these concierge doctors are going to get, that would generally be the fear. But, you know, there's something interesting about these vaccines in comparison with basically every other vaccine. In, in terms of vaccines, every vaccine has a public arm and a private arm in terms of distribution and inoculation. You can either get it through uh, the government or you can get it through your doctor off, you know, going into a store and buying it yourself, basically. This is not going to be the case. There's not going to be a private distribution arm of this vaccine. They're only selling the vaccine to governments. They're not selling them to any smaller institutions, essentially. They might make an exception for NGOs in developing countries that don't have the governmental infrastructure to, to distribute it and administer it. But in terms of developed countries like the U.S. and the U.K., I know that there's a lot of U.K. listeners, in, in terms of these countries, th these vaccines are only going to be sold to the government. And then it's going to be the government's health wings to be in charge of 
what, who's going to be getting it. Essentially, you're not going to be able to go out on the market and buy it. It's, it's going to be entirely within the public sector. Right. Okay. So December is going to be horrible, right? Are there, did I read? It's going to be bad. Am I reading like a million new cases a day? I wouldn't necessarily go that far. Um, there's, there's a bunch of different models that you can look at uh, to determine what you think is going to happen. I haven't really seen very many models, at least not ones that use rigorous epidemiological data in them that are estimating anything nearly that high. Okay. I have seen ones that are estimating that if things go really, really badly, we could be seeing 400,000 cases in a day. But that's if things go really poorly and people aren't wearing masks, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. But we know that we're going to see a spike. We've had a lot of people travel for Thanksgiving even. Uh, If you compare it to previous years, there was a significant decrease in travel, at least airfare travel for Thanksgiving, uh, you know, Thanksgiving week compared to previous years. But even though there was a steep decrease, still something between 40 and 45% of the people that traveled last year, at least in terms of number of people traveling last year, still traveled this year. There was a reduction of about 55, 60%, which is a big reduction. But consider how many people are traveling for Thanksgiving every year. And then you reduce that down to 40, 45% of that. That's still a lot of people. Okay, David, why don't you explain what we were looking at for the people listening to the podcast? Well, no, I was just showing the, oh, okay. the peaks of November. Yeah, okay, so for the people listening to the podcast, David was just showing the uh, chart showing new daily cases. And you could see that we were in a massive spike. It kind of petered. It, it's leveled out a little bit in the last few days. But... Again, we have to keep in mind that the the test uh, positive tests are really going to shoot up about between five days and 10 days after the exposure events. And as I just said, we can expect that Thanksgiving was a mass exposure event. So in somewhere between three days from now and seven to 10 days from now, I would expect the cases to begin to shoot up again. And about two weeks after that, I would expect the deaths to start shooting up again. Now, we're seeing a decline in England. They've done a lockdown. There's something like, I think it's as much as 30% in some parts of Great Britain because of the lockdown. Mm -hmm. Lockdowns work, don't they? If properly instituted, yeah. So early on in the pandemic, there was a a lot of places, particularly in in Europe that were instituting lockdowns with varying levels of enforcement of those lockdowns. The problem was, is that early on the enforcement of the lockdowns wasn't particularly good. So when the first data came out, it looked like lockdowns didn't necessarily do a whole lot. I mean, they did a little bit, but it looked mostly like it was hurting the economy without being a huge benefit to public health. But after those initial data started to come out, Then we had countries that actually instituted lockdowns efficiently and effectively. And what did we see then? Lockdowns appear to be quite effective as long as you're enforcing them. It makes sense if people aren't getting in contact with other groups of people, you're not going to have transmission between different groups of people. It's sensible. So when we got these new data, it was pretty clear that lockdowns were relatively effective, but 
a lot of individuals, particularly those in the anti-lockdown group, were still basically cherry picking the early data from poor enforcement lockdowns, where they were saying, look, the economy is completely terrible because we made all of these businesses not able to work, not mentioning that people were still, were still getting together, not wearing masks, meeting up at their neighbor's house for a drink. And the numbers were still high in those areas because there was very little enforcement and there was a, very little uh, in regards to public health education. Something that you have to do is teach the public about why you're doing things and that helps with uh, adherence to, to protocols. So we've had groups that are against lockdowns basically cherry picking this data and using that. But at this point, there's so much data that's out there showing that lockdowns are fairly effective as long as, again, they're enforced, that it's pretty hard to make the argument against them from a strictly public health standpoint, at least. Right. Do we know if the flu is ravaging the world this year? When you think of all the precautions we're taking not to get COVID, do we have any numbers on the flu? Is it a benign flu this year just because nobody or fewer people are interacting with others? Yeah, I wouldn't say necessarily a benign flu. I haven't uh, done a lot of looking at the data regarding the specific strains of the flu that are going around in terms of the virulence of the strains themselves. However, the data does indicate that we're having a lot less cases of influenza in large parts of the world and a lot less mortality uh, as a result of influenza in large parts of the world. I don't have any numbers at the top of my head. I've just kind of glanced through some papers that have indicated that. The one paper that I've been citing for a while so these numbers are going to be outdated now. But the one paper that I did read through was from New Zealand, and it came out probably three months ago now, something like that. Time flies. Uh, but at that point in the year, New Zealand had had 96% influenza-related either hospitalizations or deaths. I don't remember which one, I, but I think it was deaths. 96% less influenza-related deaths at that point in the year compared to the previous year. And that was because New Zealand has very good social distancing uh, protocols and enforcement uh, and adherence. They have very good mask wearing etiquette and they made sure that people were not in, in high transmissibility situations. When you're not in a high transmissibility situation for one respiratory virus, you're also not going to be transmitting another respiratory virus in the same way. Right. So yeah, we have seen, I, again, I don't have the numbers at the top of my head except for that one relatively old study at this point, three months ago, but we do know that the numbers are going uh, down this year in regards to influenza. And the cold, the common cold you've taught us is a corona. Many, some of them are. Th about 30% of common cold virus, uh, of co common cold cases are caused by coronaviruses, the four common seasonal coronaviruses. There's two alpha coronaviruses and two beta coronaviruses. So, so what I was wondering over the weekend, and I wanted to ask you was if I use rubbing alcohol and I wear a mask and I'm very cautious uh, and we begin to pick up new habits. You're much less likely to get the cold if that's the question that you're going to be asked. And is that good for us? Should we, shouldn't we be getting colds? Shouldn't we be getting these in the long run, is that healthy for us? So, David, that's a great question. And it's something that hasn't been talked about a lot, but it's a great question. And you might remember from one of our COVID tone squares, we talked about the hygiene hypothesis. This kind of plays on that. So 
of course, we want to be wearing our masks and social distancing because of COVID. We want to cut the transmissibility of COVID and especially prevent elderly individuals from getting COVID because it can be particularly bad for them. But in general, you don't want to get it. However, a case could be made that especially young people should be trying to get the cold periodically to keep their immune systems up to snuff. This is what we talked about. Kids that grow up on farms almost never have things like asthma and the level of autoimmune diseases are also much lower among people who grew up on farms from a very young age. Same thing with the individuals who breastfed or were born via natural birth as opposed to serration section. When they have these typical bacteria and viruses introduced into their body over time, their immune system basically learns how to act properly drastic oversimplification but for our purposes it works it basically learns how to act properly and it prevents these sort of weird reactions things that cause asthma autoimmune diseases like crohn's disease for example crohn's disease is much much less common among people who grew up on farms uh things like that you know they had a lot of exposure as a kid born uh, via natural birth breastfed Etc. So the case could be made that by basically depriving ourselves of these periodic infections that don't really cause a lot of uh, major problems, we actually could be dysregulating our immune systems in some way, but there's really no way around that. You can't say, well, you might have some slight dysregulation of your immune system because you didn't get the cold for the last two years. Uh, yeah, but you also didn't get COVID. And the benefit of not having COVID definitely outweighs the potential detriment of not having had the cold for a few years so your immune system might have some slight dysregulation. The other point to make is that the people that really, uh, I don't want to say need, but the people that get the most benefit from these periodic infections are typically very young people, especially under the age of about five. When they get those periodic inoculations under the age of about five of a, a variety of bacteria and viruses, that's when most of the benefits to the immune system are going to be seen. Great. What's on Gorilla History? Plug your Gorilla Histories. Yeah, our latest episode was a bonus episode, and it's kind of related to the vaccine uh, conversation. So it was a bonus episode that we unlocked from our Patreon talking about some historic vaccine flubs. Uh, so we talked about a case where a, a poorly manufactured polio vaccine caused about 220,000 cases of polio in kids. We had a case where uh, flu vaccine was appeared to be causing Guillain-Barre syndrome. And then we also, in addition to the Dengvaxia vaccine fiasco that we talked about previously on the show here, uh, we also talked about the CIA fake hepatitis B vaccination program that caused polio cases to spike in Pakistan. And that was a covert operation to try to get bin Laden. So if you want that episode, That'll be the newest episode of Guerrilla History, and the next episode will be on the Nepalese Civil War, and we're talking with an individual who is one of the leaders of the war uh, effort, and as well as a three-times minister of the country after they wow. toppled the monarchy there. Wow. When are we doing COVID Town Squares next? I don't know, David. I'm waiting to hear from you on that. Oh, I thought we are waiting to hear from Dan on that. Well, okay, I'm waiting to hear from Dan. All right. Then. But yeah, we'll, the we'll, soon soon would be decent because, well, yeah, you know, we'll, things yeah. are, yeah. Yes, they, they yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, well, let's talk tomorrow. Henry Huckamaki is a immunobiologist. He's also an immunobiologist. 
And you should subscribe to his newsletter on Patreon by going to patreon.com forward slash Huck1995. Thank you, Henry. We'll talk tomorrow. Uh, sure, David, when, whenever you want. Okay, thank you. Let us now go. Let us now go to Toronto, where Mark Breslin is standing by. He is the founder and president of Yuck Yucks, the largest comedy chain in North America. Hello, Mark Breslin. My mother has a crush on you. You're muted. Hang on. Hang on. You're muted. Hang on. Got it. Okay. My mother has a crush on you. I, I know, and it's just wonderful to see that I appear. Uh, I appeal sexually to that demographic. <laughs> uh, I don't. I can't tell you how many times I walk into a nursing home, and I get cat calls and wolf whistles. <laughs> and I get my ass pinched. It's it's quite amazing. Um, you know, I, I've always. I'm I'm pushing almost seventy now. I figure I've got another ten good years left, and it's good to know that I will not be alone. <laughs> if you. Well, let me. I would assume you are a sex symbol in Toronto. I would assume that you you're married now, but in your without asking about your private life, I would say that would it be fair to say that during the eighties and the nineties you were a very happy man, a very happy single man. I I took my singlehood very seriously. And I decided to explore it as much as I possibly could. And I did a very good job at it, I, I will add. But I wasn't so much a, se a sex symbol as a socks symbol. Um, I always wore some of the nicest and wildest socks. Women would see these socks and they'd just go wild for me. So that's close. I'm only missing by one vowel. <laughs> well, you have a son. One yes. day you're going to have to explain to him, you know. No, more likely with what goes on in the schoolyard, he will be explaining things to me. Right. right. No, Dad, you have to understand. That's when the guy beats off on a girl's face <laughs> and then takes a crap on her on her tits. And I go, well, what do I, I need? A, that's what I need my boy for. Well, in all honesty, my I did try to sit my son. I'm telling the God's honest truth. One of my sons, I try to explain to him the birds and the bees. And he immediately started talking about coprophilia to me. And I said, we're done. We're done. Weren't yeah. you at, didn't you come to a dinner with Alan Abel at my house? Didn't we have. Maybe. The, the great prankster. I would have been in the 80s. I don't have much memory for, you know, things in the past. But no, it was. Yeah, I think, I think so. yeah it was, I think it was like 15, 20, maybe 20 years ago. My son came down in drag. In Los Angeles. Yeah. We went to in see the, the backyard. Yeah, in the backyard. Yeah, this is sort of becoming. You know, you failed to hold my interest. I'm sorry. <laughs> I, I guess I, I just... Uh, and this is what I worry about, actually, when I die. Yeah. And everybody's life flashes before their eyes. Mm -hmm. And I'm worried that mine will fail to hold my interest. <laughs> you know? Or, you know, you have those those things that happen. You know, you, you have that, that those flashes of all the things that really matter to you. And I'm scared that it will only be my pin numbers. <laughs> Six, four, eight, four, two. That's the bank. Ugh. Well, let me write that down. TD America, I believe, right? TD Ameritrade. Yes, that's right. 
TD Ameritrade. Yeah. I didn't give you the right one. So one of my kids was going through an attic back in Los Angeles and found family memorabilia. And there are all these idyllic pictures of of the girls when they were young. And I go, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And then what arrives in the mail, she found, she took a picture of one of my sons at the age of five. He had gone to a camp and they sent us a sad gram. My son was misbehaving at camp. We regret to inform you that blank, and then they write his name in, as having difficulty with, and the sad gram wasn't big enough. They, she had a write on the back. Your son is having difficulty with, she writes, swearing, following directions, licking, and pantsing people. Pantsing, she writes, is attempting to pull down other people's pants and or shorts. This behavior no. has no. been... That's de-pantsing. She's wrong. Pantsing is when you put you pull people's you put pants on people because you don't like the fact that they're not wearing pants. No, it's de-pantsing is the right. So term. she was anyway, wrong. She this was behavior wrong. has been constant all day, and if it does not improve, more drastic measures will have to be taken. Thank you for your understanding. So the form letter wasn't big enough to handle all my son's Rico predicates, and. <laughs> That was what brought me joy. All the other pictures of the kids when they were young and playing and being happy. Yeah, I'm not going to save that. But the sad gram from when my son was five years old, misbehaving. What? I'll tell you why. Why? I'll tell you why. Because I'm assuming your son turned out just fine. Yes. Right. So you think. <laughs> I'm just saying that I ran into him. Yeah. Uh, no, I ran into him at a Starbucks uh-huh. in LA not that long ago. And you know what happened? What? He tried to pull my pants down. <laughs> it was ridiculous. He thought it was the funniest thing ever. And, you know, I played along with it, of course, because I knew he was a kid. But really. Do you, here's what's unfair about this. I was talking to a friend about this. There are pictures of my daughters and they're angelic. They're doing everything they're told to do. And it's, oh, look at her. She's a, you know having a tea party in a dollhouse and they're all dressed up. And yes, my heart swells, but not as much as my son being an absolute terror. Yeah. What is because that? The, Why? Seriously. Because it, shows, because it show, first of all, you're a male, he's a male. Um, and that's your bond with your child because... My my son, my 10-year-old son, said something very interesting the other day. He said, Mom, you got to understand, I like to make things, and then I like to break them. <laughs> and I don't think that you'd find a girl who would say that, or would be a very rare girl who would say that. That's what, you know, build a fort, burn it down. <laughs> Whoever said that. It's it's a famous line from somewhere. Save the but village. You have to destroy the village to save the build village. Build a fort, burn it down. So that's very much a male thing. Um, my son told me, and he is the most, he is the least violent person in the world. But he said breaking things is the most fun you could possibly have. Now, do you think women 
again, this is dangerous territory because uh, we're making sweeping generalizations, but... And we always preface by saying we're making sweeping generalizations, and of course, there are exceptions to every rule. Right. But generally, go ahead. Boys, as I remember, my Cliffy, my neighbor, used to make model trains and planes and cars, and we go, wow, that's great. Let's set it on fire. And we would just get the kerosene and watch it burn. It wasn't good enough for Cliffy to spend a week building a Trans Am and putting all the finishing. I didn't think that's where you were going with the story. I thought you were going to tell me that the exciting part was crashing the cars, crashing the trains after he made them. That's what I thought you were where we were going. What setting things on fire like that could be evidence of some psychosis. But um, <laughs> thank you. That's okay. It's just a little psychosis, um, you know. But um, yeah, um, L. Ron Hubbard. Yeah. If you if you read Dianetics, and I know you have, you're, you're, we don't like to talk about your read it. It's by my bedside. Are you kidding? <laughs> this man this is, is what an... I read to my child before he goes to sleep. This man is an operating Cretan five or operating Cretan <laughs> five, whatever. But he talks about breaking, you know, making things and then destroying things. And Schop- not Schopenhauer, Schumpeter talks about creative destruction and capitalism. That that life is making and breaking. Yeah, I haven't seen a lot of that from women, but I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I'm just saying I haven't seen a lot. I'm not sure that that's the natural place, the default place that women go to. But it is the default place that men go to, including breaking themselves. Yeah, yeah. Women understand something. Uh, We were talking about Michelle Pfeiffer, the actress, Michelle Pfeiffer. Yeah, Pfeiffer. Yeah. And somebody said, well, where is she? And then somebody else said, she is married to David Kelly. She's raising kids. She acts when she wants to. But... That, that women seem to understand there are seasons to a life, seasons to the year. There's a time when you're an actress and then you do so. Men, we learn something and we keep, as you just said, we keep doing it till we break. We keep playing baseball till, till they, your doctor says you can't do that anymore. Women know when yeah. to stop. Women know when the night is over. No, no. Well, you know, many years ago, Gail Sheehy, if you remember her, she was like a pop psychologist. Passages. Wrote a book called Passages. Yeah. But it was about women. It was about definite stages of development. And it was very much saying women in their 20s are like this. Women in their 30s are like that. Women in their 40s are different still. They're like this. But you wouldn't do that with men because men in their 50s can act like a man in his 20s. Right. As we know. By the way, just... It has nothing to do with anything, but I actually long ago went out with uh, Michelle Pfeiffer. Right? Really? Yes, and I, I it was a bad experience because she had a problem with pfeiffering. <laughs> just thought you'd like, just thought you'd like to know that. The P is silent. The P is silent, and so are the farts. <laughs> <laughs> this is why my mother's in love with you. You, I don't blame her. You, uh, Gail Sheehy. I, I, that's yes. a tough name to have. Sheehy? Sheehy sounds, yeah. Yeah, it's a bit we like can't, Sheeny. Yeah, we, we can't. Talk. But uh, yeah, that there are seasons we don't recognize that. We will just keep going and going and doing the same thing over and over again. I have a lot of friends who I started comedy with 
who, I, I'm not being judgmental, they don't evolve. They, they learn a skill and they foolishly think, and I'm not just talking about comedians, I'm just talking about guys I grew up with. They learn something in their 20s and they foolishly thought, this is my career, this is what I am. And then it turns out nobody needs buggy whips anymore, and but they still want to make buggy whips. That's how do you protect people from the economy changing and the world changing? Do you just have to teach them to change with the world? Suppose you don't want to change with the world. Suppose you don't have the capacity to change with the world. What do we do? Well, I know a lot of comics that I started with who are, you know, very lucky that they married uh, spouses that have good jobs because they're not doing much. They didn't transition to anything. Um, there's a comic in Toronto, and he's he's a brilliant guy. He's a brilliant comic. Um, but, you know, life is kind of starting to pass him by. And I said, you know, the place that everything's happening now are these festivals. There must be a festival every week. I said, and, you know, we bring in all these buyers and bookers to show them the comics. I said, but you don't, you've been emceeing, you don't have a, a good tight 10 minute set. Why don't you do it? We'll put it together. And you know what? He left the business rather than putting a 10 minute tight set together. Right. Because he couldn't even change that much, right. which is really sad. Right. Which is really sad. Right. But he shouldn't end up on the street and in Canada, you don't he's not. He's not on the street because he has a wife who works. Right. But in Canada, you don't let people fall through the cracks the way we do here. Not in the same way, but there are homeless people in, in Toronto. I, I, I've gotten to know some of them. Actually, um, you know, you, if you, one of the first things to start, if you want to really sort of help the homeless problem, one of the first things to do is to stop calling them the homeless and start calling them Bob or George or whatever their names are and get to know them. Because usually these homeless people, are, they occupy the same real estate all the time. They're on the same corner, the same neighborhood. So if you have a neighborhood homeless person, you should get to know them and get to at least know their name find out their story, humanize them whatever way you can. Right. Now, in America, according to... What's sad is, Bob and George, that's not even their real names. I just call them that. But but at least it shows I'm trying. Right. (laughs) Uh, You call them homeless guy, number one, and homeless guy number two. You don't want to do that. No, No, okay. One in six U.S. families with children don't have enough to eat this holiday season, according to Feeding America. 50 million... People have food, have food and security in America. Look, I saw the, I saw shots of, um, you know, I guess it was on CNN of cars lined up miles, miles long to get food for their families to eat because they're out of work. They're out of job. They're out of money. Does that happen in Canada? To a lesser extent, yes, but to a lesser extent. And I, I think most of the people, most of the people who are on the street in Canada have mental issues as well as economic ones. Right. But certainly there's there's poverty. People lose their jobs. People lose their their income. Um, but we have a good social net or at least a decent social net, if not a good one. And you can lose your job and be absolutely broke, but you can still get a checkup. You can still get your your medicine. In yes, and you and it's pretty easy to get welfare, and it's you know. So, you weren't here for our Thanksgiving show, which was a lot of fun. One of the questions not for the turkey. The turkey was a little rubbery. Uh-huh. Uh, 
I asked a question. I found a condom I was wearing the other night. I found it a little rubbery. You found it a rubbery. Uh, there's I found a joke. A little rubbery. Yes. Yeah, there, <laughs> <okay>. <laughs> so at the end of our Thanksgiving show, nobody would answer this question because they were all, I think they were all Americans. Uh, the question I asked is, is there such thing as an American character? Is there a way to define us as a people? Nobody can answer that. Uh, you know, with the flaws, with the positives, I, I said, you know, if you run into a Jewish person anywhere in the world, doesn't matter what country you're in or what country the other Jewish person is, you have some kind of connection. There's, for, there's something... You, you can recognize that person. You can also recognize an American. When you're traveling around the world, you can, right? You can spot an American. Yeah, um, sure. And usually I said, it's, usually it's the, it's the guy picking his ass with a piece of um, McDonald's burger. <laughs> um, but, um, yes, you can certainly spot the American. What is our character? We've talked about this. Americans don't seem to understand the character. And I bring this up because there's an intransigence politically where some of us, including me, we don't accept who we are. I don't think we can change who we are until we accept who we are. I have this friend, Jim Earl, who does the show. And he, he and I keep saying, but what if that's who we are? Or that's who we think we are. I think we have to identify our origin stories and what we believe about ourselves and our national character before we can figure out how to change it. You looking sideways at the United States, how would you define the American character? If I came to you, if the United States came to you, you're, the, you're a shrink and America comes to you and says, we have an identity crisis we don't know who what is our identity as, as americans who are we you are a people who find it impossible to use the word sorry canadians on the other hand every other word is sorry mm -hmm. and i've seen like comedy sketches i think there was one on on saturday night live not that long ago which supposedly you know took place in canada and everybody's saying sorry of every other word right so but americans cannot say sorry um and again, I don't want to put down the American character because so much of it is so refreshing in a kind of vulgar way, um, which is not true in Canada. Everybody here is, is quite polite. And the politeness is really great to live with on a day-to-day -day basis. But once in a while, you just want somebody to burp for a joke. And mm -hmm. um, that's your American. Okay, so sorry. Okay, pizza. Blech. Love means never having to say you're sorry. If you love this country, you don't have to say you're sorry about anything. You don't have to. Only if you follow Eric Siegel as some kind of seer. <laughs> I mean, just because Eric Siegel said it in a stupid book. But, you know, saying sorry means what? It means I apologize, right? It means I know I'm in your way. I know that all people are in all people's way. I wish it were different. But as long as we find ourselves here, I just wanted to let you know we're all in the same boat, which is a really great place to start. Right. Isn't it? Right. Do you yeah. say I'm sorry? Other all than say, other than when you do time. this show, 
never when I do the show. But when I do this show, I'm I'm performing. Right. It's a bit different. But but in in the real world, in the real life, yeah, of course, I'm always uh, I'm always apologizing for occupying or almost occupying somebody else's space. So it That's is a it, comes from. it's part go of the a, just just go to a, a supermarket in Canada. And what you'll see is people pushing their carts. Sorry, 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 in between squeezing cantaloupes. Can you use the word too much so it loses its currency? No, that's a good that's a good question. I don't know. I think maybe it's one of those words like love that doesn't lose its currency. The more you use it, it only burnishes its currency. Really? I like that Canadians say sorry all the time. I think it's so charming. It's one of the best things about Canada. Does Canada have truth and reconciliation? Do you look back? It seems like we're hearing a lot about, well, we're hearing a lot about problems that you're having with your indigenous people and they're being violated. But we're also hearing about some sort of truth and reconciliation that we refuse to do with our indigenous people do you have truth and reconciliation in canada Uh, well we're working towards it that's for sure and that's a major part of what trudeau wants to do um but it's not something that happens overnight it's you know you're talking about how many hundreds of years of history and abuse but even just even trying to i mean the germans certainly did a good job saying they're sorry they have a lot to be sorry for it's not that hard for them to say sorry. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> Sir, shouldn't say, I don't know. I'll, I'll say sorry, but what, what am I saying sorry for? I, I can't exactly remember. Just refresh my memory. And, uh, you know, so, yeah. Do you find that as you get older, the darkness that we see in front of us, it's December is upon us and... We're all going into lockdown and COVID is going to be worse. It's going to be worse in Canada. But you're able, because you're older, you're able to see past this. You're, are, are you able, are you less frightened than you would be uh, if you were 30, 40 years younger? If you were your son's age, there would be more of a sense of permanence about this lockdown, right? Because the difference between the the span of uh, December 1st until March 1st, if you're 10, feels like it's as a percentage of a a young person's life. Of course, it's greater. Um, And when you figure that he has no memory of the first five years of his life, because memory is one of the last thing that the brain actually, you know, manages to manufacture. So that's why you don't remember what it was like when you were two. Uh, um, nobody does. Right. You're breaking up a little. Anyway, I got about 10 good years left, and I resent every... Sorry? What? You're, you're, no, you're, you're freezing a little. I have about 10 good years. Oh, okay. Uh, let's try it again. You have 10 uh, good have years left. 10 years. Yeah, and I want every single day of them. I need every day. Um... The fact that we're in lockdown and I can't do much for the next six months, those six months, I need those six months. And do you feel do you feel a sense of loss or do you feel spoiled? I'm not sure that those two things are mutually exclusive. There's a part of me 
sometimes I'll be outside and I'll walk into a store and I'll smell something and I go, oh, I remember that. Yeah, that I used to smell that all the time before, you know, a, a fragrance or some food. And I have a sense of loss. And then I immediately go, I'm in a bubble. I'm privileged. I don't have COVID. I have a roof over my head. Do you let yourself feel a that do you do you let yourself feel that you've lost something because of COVID, or do you feel we're all in the same boat? Everybody's suffering. And no, I feel we're all in the same boat. I'm not a particularly um, nostalgic or sentimental person. I'm a romantic, which is different because a romantic fantasizes and uh, about the future, and a uh, a sentimentalist. Uh, fantasizes about the past. I have had a great past. I've done so many, you know, things that I've enjoyed. I've been in such a, an amazing position. My my life in my 30s, especially, was spectacular. But I try not to let that influence how I operate on a day to day basis. Now that I'm, you know, in my late 60s, um, I still have enough of a touch of it that I I still feel part connected to that. Right. And what do you think COVID has robbed of you? Time. Time. But hasn't it also given, it's given you time. No, it's robbed me of time because I am a very public person and everything I do, my best is in the public sphere. Um, My best is in talking to people, meeting people, getting to know people, having a basically flirting with the world. And that's a great name for your next book. Flirting with the world is not bad. Yeah, um, yeah. Um, but I, I, I can't do any of that now. I can't have a random discussion with somebody because they just want to get away from me because I might have something that right. they don't want. Right. And I don't blame them. I, right. I feel the same way. So this is what it's robbed me of, of time. And the reason I, I, I was talking about something just a little bit before that was about having the 10 good years left is that's why time means so much to me. If I were 30, time wouldn't mean that much because I would have a lot left. But I know I don't have a lot left. And I hate when people say, oh, you'll see, you'll live to 95. And maybe I will. But let me tell you, those last 10 years are going to be crap. Literally. Maybe not. I don't know a lot of people who are that age who are, my father was. My father had was great right to the end, and he was ninety-one when he died. But he was great right to the end. Yeah, and what what people call eighty now? I mean, eighty was decrepit thirty years ago. Eighty now, there there are. I have neighbors who are pushing ninety, and I can't keep up with them. This my neighbor is ninety years. I cannot keep. I just wrote a joke. I cannot keep up with him. This guy pees eight ten times a day. <laughs> I just wrote a joke. All right, write it down. I can't Don't keep up it. with him. It's a pee joke. Uh, I love it when you. I love it when you know you're about to come up with a joke. Yeah, and then you. Uh, anyway, I miss the the comedy and and the laughs and here you know hanging out. And all that stuff. I, I, I even I even miss hanging out in a supermarket. It doesn't matter. The fact I don't have to hang out with comics to have a good time. Right. That was never true for me. I love comics, but I I find the humanity always interesting. How are they? Com- how are the comics before you go? How are they? Unhappy, desperate, broke, um, feeling like they have no purpose in the world. So Pretty things bad. are normal. 
Yeah, that's right. <laughs> that's right. What? How many? What are we looking at? Two years? Three years? No, another year, and things will start to return to normal, and then it'll take another year before things are really back full steam. And I like to think when things are back full steam, everybody will want to catch up and see every show and go to every concert and uh, see every movie and and just pig out because they were starving for so long for culture. I like to think that's happening. I don't know. We'll uh, we'll just have to see if that happens or whether doing nothing and sitting in your house is now going to be the new normal, which would be a real shame. It would be. And I can't imagine it because we're social creatures. We crave other people. Yeah, and I'm especially social, and I know that. Mark Breslin is the author of the new book, what is it, Flirting with the Flirting with the world? Flirting with the world. Yeah. Uh, Co-written with Jeffrey Epstein. Uh, Follow Mark. He did more than flirt. I'm sorry? He did more than flirt. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. He was what what they call uh, a closer, I believe. Yeah, I think so. Yes. (laughs) And what's her name was the knocker. (laughs) Mark Breslin is the founder and president of Yuck Yucks, the largest comedy chain in North America. And when there's live comedy, there still is live comedy. Go support live comedy. Uh, You'll be doing yourself a favor. Thank you, Mark. You're welcome, David. Please, please give my best to your mother. Well, you're going to give her your best, if you know what I mean. (laughs) And then some. (laughs) Thank you, Mark. Okay, bye. Bye. Let us now go to Washington, D.C., where the Reverend Barry W. Lynn is standing by and let us now go to what looks like cape cod are you in cape cod ethan hershenfeld that's right my friend dr feldman i am in uh, i'm back in cape cod and uh, by the way i wanted to jump in when you said what do you miss the most with the pandemic what i miss most is the whoring (laughs) (laughs) because you know i was making quite a good living there Yeah, you, yeah, you did. I was cleaning up. Yeah. uh, As it were. So, but you know, you do what you can. Now I'm in the floral arrangement business. (laughs) I'm jealous of both of you. I'm jealous that you're in Cape Cod and the Reverend Barry W. Lynn. It looks like you're at the the stack, the Vatican stacks, I believe. You're in Vatican City. Yes. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. I, uh, I have been offered a job as a cardinal. Ah. Do you know that there was a movie back in the 60s? This is what I did every Saturday. My friend Robert, who's since died, but he was—he and I used to go to the matinee at the Nile Theater in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. And you, you, there was a kiddie matinee, like an Abbott and Costello meet the mm-hmm. Invisible Man. But then they'd let you stay unless it was too, too adult a film. You could also sit there and watch the next film. So one day I saw The Cardinal with Tom Tryon, maybe. It was, um, the, the, re- the only reason this is important. No, I'm is thinking Shoes of want- a Fisherman, right? No, not Shoes of the Fisherman. No, this is The Cardinal. This was a, this was a, a young a guy who was fighting the Ku Klux Klan. And uh, he was... Um, and I thought that's a great thing to do. I mean, you could be spiritual and you can still fight bad people. 
So for a brief period of time, until I remembered that my neighbor across the alley was a Roman Catholic and I would have to become one in order to be a cardinal. And then I, I just gave it up. Well, I'll tell you an interesting story and then we'll uh, talk about your big fundraiser in Georgia. All right. I read that a lot of Jews converted. So you, you weren't interested in converting, right? To, to join the Catholic Church. I was never Jewish. Well, I'm just saying, I'm going to tell I a story. I was up here. I'm going to tell a, sto- a story. But in other words, there was an opportunity to be a cardinal. You could have converted and moved up the ranks, right? But you chose not to. That's correct. Well, during the Inquisition. Please. Um, yes, which is still going on, by the way. The, it is. Uh, but enough about my show. During the Inquisition. <laughs> At the height of the Inquisition, a lot of Jews became what are called conversos. They just decided, what the hell? I'll join the church. And they they changed. And about 100 years later, the Vatican, <laughs> the, the hierarchy, they had a meeting and they said, we're lousy with conversos. The, the Jews who converted walked into the Vatican. How does this work? All right, where, what, what do we do here? How do I move ahead here? And it, like within a hundred years, they had a, you know, the Inquisition was really about rooting out uh, heretics. So they had to start get cleaning house. They were, there were too many conversos trying to run the church. So, you know, I, I actually tried to convert many times. Uh, because I went to a, a religious elementary school, I would get sent to the rabbi's office frequently, and that was my opening offer. <laughs> and I guess, <laughs> can I just leave this whole thing? But they, they weren't. Yeah. yeah. Once you're in, it. it's like the mafia. Yeah. It's they hard don't. To get out. They don't they even. Keep pulling me back in. They won't even excommunicate. I think uh, Spinoza was excommunicated, but that was it. Yeah. I think yeah. we should bring and back Fonzarelli, ex- also Fonzarelli. Arthur Fonzarelli. Uh, a, maybe oh. the, anyway, let's talk about Georgia. The two of you have gotten together. I would assume you met on the John Fugelsang show, correct? <laughs> no, we, we actually met on your show. Is this an example of another yes, it is. love connection that has been yes, made on the David Feldman show? I absolutely think it is. is. This, it this is. is what makes me happy because... Uh, None of this is real. It's all virtual. We're not in a studio. We can't touch each other. We can't smell each other. And I I say to everybody who comes to office hours, Friday nights at 9 p.m., that it's great to know somebody virtually, but it really takes on meaning when you do something with somebody else. If you meet somebody at office hours or on the show or you know, the chin wagging that goes on in the chat room. If you make some kind of connection, there's nourishment, right? Reverend Barry W. Lynn. There certainly is. There certainly is. So that you and I, you and Ethan. That's right. Have met. You just to actually describe my business model back to my, my whoring days. It, a lot of it happened online, but then I would explain to the clients until we actually meet. This is not real. So, so many gigabytes. Right. Right. Yeah. Right. 
a lot of people we're all lonely. We are we we have a we have a plague of loneliness in America. They actually have a minister of loneliness in Great Britain. Hmm. That's how bad loneliness has gotten. This is pre-pandemic, and now we're completely sure. isolated. So I like to think that people come to our Zoom room and do what you're doing. So tell us what you're, you're, you're doing in Georgia. So, Ethan, um, why don't you go ahead? Yeah, so I got turned on to this organization. I told you about it a few months ago, MVP, Movement Voter Project. They call mm-hmm. themselves Movement Voter Project. Uh, the the website is movement.vote and they raise money and then they give that money straight to grassroots organizations that are doing work in primarily young and black and brown communities to get people to register and get them to vote. Um, Black Voters Matter is one of the organizations that they support. Um, Latasha Brown, I believe is the founder, who's an incredible speaker and and motivator. they also give money to the New Georgia Project, um, and um, they are focusing their efforts. They focus their efforts in the fall on the presidential thing nationwide, and right now they're focusing uh, as much as they can on Georgia to help these two candidates win in, in this runoff election on January 5th. January 5th. And, uh, January 5th, and uh, we're holding this event. Uh, Barry and I decided to co-host it. The Reverend, I asked him if he would do it. And he had a great idea for a way to spice up the event, which he'll tell you about. But so December 13th, that's Sunday, 7 p.m. It's a Zoom thing. And uh, it's uh, give what you can or give what you want and um, support MVP and enjoy an hour in our company. And I'll let uh, the Reverend tell you what else is going to be happening during that hour. Yeah, one of the things I thought would be very interesting would be to get a musician uh, who would do a few songs and uh, kind of uh, aliven up what what might be perceived as just too political. And uh, Guy Davis uh, is someone I've worked with in the past, and he is a marvelous uh, blues musician. And he's also the son of the iconic activist actors Ossie Davis, who I believe actually was in... And Ruby D. Check this. Ruby D. D. But I believe that Ossie Davis was actually in the movie The Cardinal, which someone in the chat room ah. reminded me was an Otto Preminger film. Ah. And then coincidentally, my favorite, my favorite Cardinal is Ozzy Smith. Ah, that's a ah. baseball joke. <laughs> I have no idea Sorry. what that joke meant. <laughs> I, I would assume that's it. That's it. Nineteen sixty-eight. Or whenever the Philadelphia Phillies lost 17 games in a row, I was a fan. I mean, I memorized statistics. I collected baseball cards. And then when they lost 17 games in a row, I will never forget this. I'm sitting in the bathtub at the last game where if they just had won that, they would have gotten into the playoffs. And my mother was banging on the door of the bathroom. What are you doing in there? And I could honestly say I'm just listening to the baseball game. That may have been the only time I could have honestly said that. <laughs> but to get back to Ossie David, no, Ossie Let's Davis. Talk about Ossoff. Let's talk about Ossoff and Let's Ossoff. Let's talk about him. So talk about Ossoff. Ossie Davis and Ruby D. And, and their son is, is a musician. Absolutely. But he's, and he, uh, the last time I saw him was at the... Um, 
the uh, Woody Guthrie Center. And one of the things he does when he did there was not just play music, but he also went to high schools and talked to young people about music. And uh, I, I'm on this little uh, board of an arts foundation. And one of the things that we really like to do is give small grants to organizations that are going to go out in the community and work with young people. And uh, he, he did a wonderful job of that, as did a couple of the other singers that I've, I've crossed paths with. But it was a, um, it was a, we're looking forward to it. I think, I think people have a great time. And, uh, and it is to raise money for MVP. And absolutely. what you're trying to do is get money down to Georgia so that the Democrats can win both Senate seats, which means Correct. it'll be split 50-50, and our vice president gets the tie-breaking vote, and then Joe Biden can't claim that his hands are tied when he introduces progressive legislation. That's absolutely right. I mean, it's the predicate to doing anything. So on the Thanksgiving show, when we, when uh, uh, Jim Earl and I got into a little thing about uh, what difference it made and how terrible the appointments were. Uh, and I kind of thought we, we ought to do that. We, we ought to make sure that people are held accountable, but we also need to make sure that there's a realistic chance that something can be done in the United States Senate. And if Mitch McConnell, who just yesterday said he wouldn't even answer the question of whether he thought Joe Biden was elected the president. I mean, Mitch McConnell is an idiot, but I kind of think he he knew the answer was a yes, he is, but was just so spineless that he couldn't even say it. But what are we looking at? Are we looking at the Republicans acknowledging Joe Biden after the Electoral College meets and votes and it's certified? Or are they just going to keep referring to Joe Biden when he's president as somebody who may or may not be president? What what alternate universe are the Republicans willing to live in come January 21st? I think a lot of them are going to behave just like they behave. When Obama was elected, you remember that whoever that senator was, a congressperson who just yelled at him and you lie you lied yeah i mean joe uh what was his name joe this is unwilling to acknowledge just unwilling to acknowledge the legitimacy of this guy and that's that's their whole strategy so some of these guys who are in very red districts are just gonna i think hold on to that strategy for the next two and four years just uh to be able to say they did Um, it's gonna be it's gonna be interesting because clinton was the first president, at least in my lifetime, who I can remember delegitimated because the Republicans decided he's no good. We have to get rid of him just because he's a Democrat. Uh, Then you had Obama and we immediately said, well, this is racism. And I remember thinking, yeah, racism is bad, but this is the Republican Party. They're going to delegitimate any Democratic president, even if he's a white male. It doesn't matter. And now we're going to see that again with Joe Biden. He is a white male. Some would say 
conservative, neoliberal, it, it it's only going to be read as party politics. There's there's. Do you think McConnell would have done that to Obama if sure. Obama had been white? It had nothing to do with his race, right? They hated him just no, because I mean, he was a Democrat. Well, he, yeah, but I mean, the fact that he was black was an add-on, but I think they would have done exactly the same thing. And they would have had a little more trouble, perhaps, claiming that uh, he wasn't born in the United States. Well, exactly. It would have changed, it would have yeah. changed their strategy, uh, the, how to delegitimize him but they're they're looking for uh any any excuse there's uh it's a pretext at this point but it it stonewall it's going to be interesting because biden's made this the most multicultural administration in american history his communications team all women he's appointing it feels like, it seems like, more women than men. Yeah, the so, head of the CIA was just appointed also, that, that woman. Uh, right. Uh, yeah. Uh, not to touch the third rail here, but I can remember as a Bernie supporter being accused of sexism anytime I criticized Elizabeth Warren or Hillary Clinton. So... It's going to be interesting to see how the Biden administration is treated and whether or not they're going to claim it's sexism when it's just neoliberal BS that these women are guilty of. Are they going to be seek cover claiming this? You wouldn't talk to a, a man this way. Are the Republicans going to be reluctant to no, be, they'll, they'll come after the women harder than they would have come after the men. Uh, certainly as hard, I think. I don't think, and we've already seen it. I mean, look, Mira Tandem, I wish was not even being considered as the OMB. Tell everybody who Nira Tandem is. Well, she, she is the, know, she, if you're a Bernie bro, yeah, she is a nemesis. Just, she is a nemesis. She's a person who's never taken seriously the left wing of the Democratic Party. Uh, she's run the uh, Center on Ameri- for American Progress for a long time, which is, of course, was created out of the Clinton administration and really became, as, as I viewed it always, a surrogate for getting Hillary Clinton the nomination uh, for the president. And they take money from pretty from nefarious, everybody. from nefarious characters, from from Saudi Arabia. Uh, the UAE defense contractors. She's taken money from uh, the Netanyahu wing of sure. Israeli industrialists. So she's she is a uh, and she went after Bernie unfairly this year. And she there is a wonderful, pathetic, but wonderful. If you want to know more about her, to just watch her on C-SPAN as she talks about the negotiations for what to do with tax cuts. And there's one that I just looked at again today where she's saying, well, we should put uh, certain tax cuts on the table, but we also need to put on the table the possibility of cutting you know, entitlements, which she includes not just Medicare and uh, 
Social Security, but even Medicaid, which a lot of us don't even think of as an entitlement. It's, it's part of the social safety net. Right. But now, and, and of course, uh, John Cornyn is the head of the Budget Committee from Texas, a terrible person. John Cornyn is a guy, when I used to do a lot of uh, cable television, uh, the, uh, how quickly you forget, who was the guy that, that had all the, uh, the sex scandals on Fox? Bill Riley. Bill O'Reilly. Which will hold it. Not just him, Roger Ailes. And, Roger Ailes. Yeah. And the ones Bill we don't know about. Bill O'Reilly says to me one night, of all the people in the Senate that you think want to turn this into a theocracy, Barry, who is the top of your list? And I said, John Cornyn. And it's the only time O'Reilly ever seemed to be silenced. I mean, he, he didn't really want to argue about that. So Cornyn's a terrible person. He said she can't possibly get the nomination. For OMB. Bernie, of course, is the, yeah, Bernie's the, the ranking member on the budget committee. But I, he has not said anything about her. And I think he should. And I think he should say, no, not on my watch. Yeah. Are there any, has he nominated anybody to our satisfaction? Is there anybody who Joe Biden nominated that will appease the left, that will appease the Bernie camp. Because we talked on the show, I see Professor Marianne Cummings here, and one of her chief complaints about Bernie is that he gave a blanket endorsement to Joe Biden without offering up, without getting anything for the left in return for his endorsement. Well, Bernie... But for Obama and Clyburn would have been the Democratic nominee. It seems like well, it never happened. We, it seems like I the Biden it. administration is spending more time placating the neoliberal wing and yeah. the lobbyists than anybody from the Bernie camp. Is anybody from the Bernie camp been nominated for anything? Have they been brought on for anything? Well, what about Janet Yellen? I mean, look, she she's not a perfect Treasury Secretary. She's got a lot of baggage, but she's certainly better because she knows what she's doing. She's an actual economist. She's not just a play actor like the people in the Trump administration. But you could, I could chalk her up and say that's a good nomination. She was the former chairman of the Federal Reserve. Of the Federal she wasn't Reserve. a Bernie supporter, and no. she although people have said I'm wrong, she too has talked about cutting Medicare, Medicaid, and Social Security. She's addressed income inequality. But Janet Yellen, what did she do during the, uh, as Federal Reserve, she came after Bernanke under Obama. What did she do that was so great? She She ran the economy hot. She kept interest rates low. That was good for the cool. banks. Yeah, but you said, uh, and and there's some dispute about this, of course. But I mean, she she knows what. One of the things we need to do now, and I want to get back to Georgia in a minute. Yeah. One of the things we one of the things we need a government that actually functions. We don't we don't need to pick people who are completely outside of their realm of knowledge. To run, you know, the, the fact that Ben Carson runs the Department of Housing and Urban Development is literally unbelievable. 
the guy knew nothing about it and apparently hasn't learned anything about it either. And uh, this is the this is the kind if you believe in government, if you believe that it can work to do the people's justice, to do good for people in this country and around the world, then you got to have people who understand how the bureaucracy functions and are not evil in and of their own right. We've got too many evil people in government now. Yes. And, and, and that includes the two senators from Georgia. You know, uh, John Ossoff was running against um, uh, David Perdue down there. In the one and only debate that Perdue was willing to have with, with John was uh, he called him a crook, a crook. And he is a crook. And the more that we know about the financial dealings of Purdue, say nothing of Kelly Loeffler, $800 million heir, or that she is the richest person in the United States Senate. But Purdue just trades off of Inside the information, information that he yeah. gets. Well, he, and you know what happens is there were investigations. First of all, the Justice Department investigated whether either one of them was engaged in insider trading based on information they had gotten from confidential Senate deliberations about COVID. And they cleared, surprise, surprise, they cleared both of them of doing this. The Securities and Exchange Commission is still looking at the conduct of uh, uh, Kelly Loeffler. And Purdue uh, has a bunch of very strange trades. He used to be the chairman of the board of a, of a company in Atlanta, and he had enormous stock holdings in it. Right before, uh, he, he mysteriously decided to depose himself of a million dollars worth of stock all of a sudden. And it was revealed by the Associated Press and the New York Times that he had gotten an email from the, the, the current CEO of the company and that the company's CEO said, big change is coming. Then when that was revealed, he said, well, uh, the CEO said, well, it was a clerical error. We, we sent it to, to a different guy named Purdue. <laughs> yeah, I think so I just looked it up. That. It was Cartolictics. It's a financial company. Yeah. Which sounds dirty. The, the, uh, the stock's price bo- uh, bottomed out, according to the New York Times, in March of this year, it was selling at 29 and he got inside information and he bought back a substantial portion of the shares that he had sold. And now it's gone from 29 all the way back up to one hundred and twenty dollars per share. Yeah. So he's trading, yeah. he's trading stocks while he's supposed to be taking care of uh, our country. Yeah, he also he owns a that. mansion. He, he's a climate change denier. But he's built a mansion in Georgia that's on the shore that's going to have to be rebuilt after the next storm. But it's insured by the federal government. So he keeps rebuilding along the shorelines. And he's a climate change denier. And he has nothing to lose because he's living on federally backed uh, property. So also he has what what he has that appeal to a lot of the voters He's a kind of late middle-aged, very white, white guy who just looks like 
business guy right. <laughs> of common casting. People right. actually go for this. Yeah. They actually go for that. Oh, that guy looks like a senator, but in like a background role in like a ABC movie of the week. Right. I remember right after 9-11, right after 9-11, a very conservative friend of mine who's a comedian, I no longer talk to him. He says to me, after 9-11, I know you're a liberal, but when you saw Murderer's Row, when you saw Rumsfeld, when you saw Cheney, when you saw Rudy down there at the rubble, you knew we had a murderer's row of people in charge. And I thought, yes, Laura House is joining us. I am going to go get some coffee. Can you talk to Laura House for two minutes? Because we don't take breaks on this show. So, Laura, why don't you talk to Ethan and the Reverend Barry W. Lynn? And I will be back in one minute. Okay. All right. Can you say hello, Laura? But you're muted. There you go. No, you're not. You're good. You're good. We hear you loud and clear. I will will not be muted. No, no, you're good. We hear you. You should never be. You should never be. What's what's, what's the deal? How did you end up at this party? (laughs) Um, I'm, uh, uh, thanks, Ron Fitch. I love looking at the chats. Um, I'm a longtime friend of David. I opened for him doing comedy in Austin in the 90s. Maybe the 90s. Nice. Wow. And um, he, this is how we bonded. He, a lot of comics who came, so I worked at the comedy club and sold tickets and started doing comedy. And I would get to know the headliners. And a lot of them had like a, they had to have like an extra hobby on the road and um, like collecting records, stuff that kind of Google made less interesting because you can just mm-hmm. order anything now. Right. But Feldman was like, you know what I love? I love presidential libraries. So we went to the LBJ library wow. together because he nice. like, he didn't have a car. So I was in Austin one day. I was working at the Dallas Opera and I drove to Austin mm. to do an audition there. And I took a walk in Lady Bird in the park around Lady Bird Lake. I remember oh, nice. with the dogs. That was nice. It was a beautiful place. Oh, that's awesome. You're an opera singer. I was. I'm a comedian and an actor, but for a long time, that that was my gig. Really? Would you? This is a crazy question, but the answer has been yes before. So I'm going to ask again. Do you know David Blackburn? I do. I know him well. We sang together in Tel Aviv in the late 90s. And then he ran that organization that would do these kind of brokerage house of auditions. He would get a lot of theaters in the room at once to hear singers. Yeah, he's a good guy. And I sang with his wife in Puglia in Italy. Yeah, we sang in some Wagner stuff together. Yeah, That's incredible. He's a friend since sixth grade. That's crazy. My mom was his reading teacher in seventh grade. And yeah, I've known him since sixth grade. Where I'm in the, I'm back in my hometown for a couple of months. And we grew up here in Grand Prairie, Texas. That's incredible. What a small world. Wow. We spent a New Year's Eve one time. Hmm? Wow, it's a small we, world, but opera is a real small at, world. No, it yeah. is a but I but I too. I, well, let me stand up. This is not. I'm not going <laughs> to do a, a Jeffrey Tubin. But see this T-shirt, oh, wow. which I happen to be wearing. 
of Austin, Texas. Oh, oh wow. that's that's amazing. It's the one place in America that I would always go, no matter what somebody wanted me to speak about, I'd always go, if it's Austin, I'm coming. And uh, my, I have a good friend, uh, uh, you know, who uh, ran, runs Ram Planned Parenthood, and she took me to lunch, or she took me to breakfast there, I think, the first time I was there. And uh, it was a... Uh, it was an amazing place. It's a, it's a wonderful city. It's not the most liberal city in Texas, though, I'm told. El Paso is. Because oh, really? Austin, once you get out, once you got to know what he's doing. But once you get out of the center of Austin, you get into some pretty uh, red territories right oh, outside yeah. the city. But, but I love it. And it has Waterloo Records, which is, that's the thing I always did was to collect vinyl. Uh, Abba recorded on Waterloo Records, didn't they? Who did? Abba. No, I don't think so. <laughs> hang on, I, I, I was you. working on my. Hang on for one second. Keep uh, uh, keep writing. Abba. Um, oh, but keep talking. Hey, Laura, I'm going to tell. Uh, I'm going to tell David we met. Okay. Yeah, t- I'm here. I'm here. Well, the other David. Which David? <laughs> This is delightful. David Blackburn, opera singer. and opera Oh, singer. yeah. David Blackburn, the opera singer. And impresario. Yeah, it turns out we have a friend in common. Okay. We all have a friend in common. You're talking about the rapper, right? He's You're talking friend. about the Lord? I was talking about Jesus. I was, Laura. Yes. <laughs> all right. Um, let us, let's so. plug yeah, your... Uh, Please say hi. Let, let us plug your... Big event. It's December what? December uh, seven p.m. Sunday, December thirteenth. That's uh, a little under two weeks from now. Seven p.m. on Zoom, uh, December thirteenth. MVP Movement Voter Project. I'm going to put the link to the event, and I'm also putting my email. If anyone would like the invitation to the event, please send it to us. MVP. They're helping to flip. Hopefully, flip the Senate blue. And uh, I wrote a personal note to John Ossoff just yesterday saying he needs to smile more like the Reverend Warnock because Ossoff, his default look is this very sanctimonious, self-righteous, peering into the distance like in a Sears catalog, like he's selling dungarees. He has that kind of. So I want him to smile more, but whether he smiles more or not, we're going to raise some money for them. Now, Reverend Warnock, he speaks from the same pulpit Martin Luther King spoke from? That's right. Yes. There have only been yes, five, there have only been five apparently uh, people to stand in that pulpit, and he, he's one of them. And, and what I heard him t- explain was that it wasn't just the Reverend Martin Luther King. Uh, the, the Reverend King's, I think it was his grandfather, had that pulpit as well. It was a real lineage in, in his family. That's right. And what are That's your right. thoughts as for nearly a quarter of a century you ran separation, Americans United for Separation Church and State, are you, is this bittersweet for you to, do you have, are you torn? No, I think, no, not at all, because I think people who are in the clergy have a right to run for office, as long as they don't try to convert their religious beliefs, whether they're mine or somebody else's, into the public policy of the country. And, and how? Actually, it was, it was a very, that was a very big deal. A lot of states prohibited members of the clergy from running for office until a guy in Tennessee, a minister, took it to the United States Supreme Court and won. Wasn't there a congressman? Decision. Wasn't there a congressman, Ryan, who got pulled by the Pope? 
the, the Pope didn't want no, him. No, Bob Drynan. Drynan. He wasn't allowed Bob to. Bob Drynan. No, he he was a very, very fine person, a good friend of mine. And he, But he, the Pope basically told him, get out of politics. And Bob said, I'm going to get out of politics. And he went on to become the chairman of the Board of Common Cause. Was, was he a liberal? Was, was he a lefty? Oh, super liberal. He was the guy who wanted the impeachment of Richard Nixon, not because of any kind of uh, technicalities, but because of the bombing of Cambodia. He, he introduced the first articles of impeachment against Nixon based on the bombing of Cambodia. Fantastic. And he was uh, a super liberal guy. Fantastic. The Reverend yeah. Barry W. Lynn will see you Thursday for the recording session. And Ethan Hershenfeld will see you Thursday, I hope. Give my yes, best sir. to, to all, give my best to your better halves. Let us now go to Austin, Texas, where Laura House is standing by. Her her new comedy CD is Mouth Punch, and she is the showrunner on the BBC's Life of Boys. Welcome. Welcome back to the show, Laura House. Hi, David. Wow, this is that's too much. Do we talk? Um, can I ask you some personal questions? Sure, but I'm not in Austin. I am in Grand Prairie, Texas, which is a suburb of Dallas. Um, or maybe you were trying to keep my location secret. Yeah, I mean, anyway, I'm in Austin. Why not? So you're you're back in the the home that <laughs> that you were raised in. Uh, no, um, Glada, um you're very close. I, I'm in, there's a lot of things in this home I was raised with, but my parents just moved here about 20 years ago. Right. And they're no longer with us. But it's the same time. <laughs> no, they're no longer with us. And uh, I'm, I'm sorry to, to hear that. Thank you. It It is hard to be around my, you know, this is where my, I'm like in the home where my dad passed a year ago. And, uh, Bring, must bring bring back memories. It is. It's a lot of memories. And he, um, I was working in his workshop yesterday. I've decided I'm going to start doing projects out there. But it's hard. It's hard to be around. You know, like all of his stuff. Like there was a, <laughs> there was a a, um, a wood carving that he had started and didn't finish. And I don't know. It just brought up a lot of feelings. <laughs> And how are you? How is it's, how? It's such a good bit. How are you? <laughs> it's just such a good bit. I. Uh, how are you holding up? Well, you know, I'm okay. But a lot of a lot of sad days. Sometimes it's hard, hard to get out of bed. <laughs> Bad days, hard to. Life doesn't feel worth living sometimes, right? Um, yeah, a lot of times it just feels like you know, air is water, and I can I can barely catch my breath. But, but, you know, you just keep chugging along. Yeah, but you you've been really, really. I mean, we've talked on the phone every day for the past month. Mm-hmm. That's and, what we do. Uh, I mean, you've been really, can I say despondent? I've been, um, I would have to, 
cheer up to be despondent. <laughs> All right. So now Brian is Brian. Please tell me, Brian. I don't want to. You're still with Brian, right? Brian. Yes. Yeah. No, we're good, actually. It's. Oh, but it's tell me, very, broke up. Tell, tell, tell me that he left you for the purpose um, of this bit. Well, that's the thing. Brian and I relocated to just for winter. And, oh, that's um, good. So that's good. So you, you have the love of a man, which everybody needs you. It's good. So you're. You're, you're in love and you're fulfilled. So that must, you know, you erase some of the sad thing. That must erase some of the pain, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it does. It does. No, you're supposed to say he left. Of- no, I, I won't tell me oh, that he left you. I thought and, you were trying to. No, I want to play. I didn't know what you were. Tell me that he. After a few days here, yeah. um, I found out he was sleeping with the neighbor. Well, that's good. She's 73. <laughs> <laughs> well, how are your uh, two, those two dogs you have? How did, how did they, did they make the... Well, they uh, didn't make it, David. <laughs> what? They didn't these make it to ter- Texas? These are terrible questions. <laughs> no, they didn't make it. Oh, one of them, uh, we'd let them out at a gas station to, <laughs> to do their business. I'm sorry, I was. Right wait, 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 hang on, hang just, on. Just well, ran into a field. I, I didn't hear what you said. But you were so you were traveling with one, and you stopped at a gas station. Yeah, we let them out to do their business. That's and, good. Uh, just ran right into the into a field. By the way, that's the most depressing one. This one, <laughs> the animal one. No. Oh, <laughs> so that, that's the one where like the guy doing the rim shots actually hates. It's like an obligatory, but oh yeah, he's, he wants. Miserable. It's yeah, like, good one. Yeah, I, I want. I want to go home. Do you hear the <laughs> wind whistling? Can you hear that? That's real. Yeah. I'm not making that up. We, we are having serious wind. The wind is has whistling. Any, has anybody talked about your mustache? Uh, no. Go ahead. I'll answer. Not one person, and you've been on, you've been on air for six hours or something now, right? Right. Not one person has noticed that it's just a little darker right in the middle. Mm. Not one person. Do you think that's surely a- every? Surely every single person has mentioned that you are clearly you're like a Hitler with stubble. <laughs> that you're just doing the stubble Hitler. Are you trying to bring that back? I'm I'm Hitler after a long weekend. It's like it's like uh, the Hitler George Michael. Is this your thing now? It, you're you're right. It, I'm uh, it, podcast, podcast Hitler. My, says Dave M. My beard is gray, and for some twist of fate, <laughs> just the Hitler comes in. The, the Hitler comes just in under Hitler. my nose. <laughs> I have a gray beard, but uh, for some reason, I I have a Hitler mustache. You're, you're absolutely right. Incredible. Yeah. I cannot believe how polite other people have been on here to not, to not mention <laughs> They There's so much that they make fun of. About oh, me. got it. All right. So, you, so you're in the suburbs of Dallas. You're with Brian. And you're, yes. you're, and you're, and my dog is alive. Right. Wah, 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 wah. Now, what is the dog's name? Lucy or Ethel? What is the, that dog's name? Minnie. Minnie. 
Why did I think it was Luth- Lucy? I don't know. And how could I know that? And, and she's a, a pug, right? Oh, uh, kind. She's a bulldog. Right. So she has a smushy face. Or are you just confusing me with someone else? And her, how is she dog, adopting? Who has a pug named Lucy. How is she adopting to Texas? Texas. Um, she she's assimilating very well. She voted for Trump. Mm. Yeah, that's bad. She's the reason Texas didn't go blue. <laughs> so she fits right in. She just started peeing on Biden signs. Like, unbelievable. <laughs> you think you know a dog. Um, so, so- no, she's, she's okay because, um, to be honest, we have, uh, we've had um, apartment living you know, we've been in L.A. and um, you're in New York. You understand apartment living. Yes. And um, now it's we're just in a, in a regular house. It's not like an enviable house. It's just a, re- a suburban house. But it, there's a yard. <laughs> there's just stuff that we have not had with apartment living like. We're like, there's a dishwasher and a washer dryer. Like, you never get both. And right. um, it's, the, fridge, it's, it's, the fridge makes ice and the water just comes right out of the door. Right. We're like, the most basic things. We're like, oh, my God. I know. I know. We feel we're in like a middle, I'm just middle class family, middle class area, middle, mid, like not. Fa- and we're just like, oh, my God. We're like kings. Like, there's a. A pantry, you know, apartment living is just like what you can't keep stuff. This is I found thumbtacks from like 1973 yesterday because <laughs> my parents are like they kept everything. They kept everything from their parents. So there's just it had a um, this little thing of thumbtacks had an SNH green stamp on it. When did Gr- they stop? They stopped making those in like 76. Green stamps. Yeah, there was an SNH. My grandma collected them, and I was like, I don't know. I'm really into. But you still just, keep your your Raleigh coupons. Like every carton of Raleigh's comes with coupons that allows you to buy more Raleigh cigarettes, right? Oh yeah, yeah. You're yeah. You're gonna keep your Raleigh coupon. Well, because then you're just generating more Raleigh's, which yeah. obviously is a great great experience. Right. <laughs> See, like, look at that cough. That's that's called a Raleigh cough. That's, I'm afraid to cough now because of COVID. <laughs> talk to me about the conveniences of modern living because I've never had a refrigerator. I've I've never had a refrigerator that had that made ice oh. indoor, you know, inside or out. I've had dishwashers. Mm-hmm. I still have a dishwasher. Our uh, last apartment, the building was from like the 1920 or something. And there was like one plug in the kitchen. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so there were like, there were like two. So we had to like route the refrigerator plug like over the sink and around to this one. And then this other one was like, you just had to choose whatever you were doing. It didn't come with an oven. We haven't had an oven for three years. I don't have an oven. You don't have an oven? Nope. Is because it's a weird New York. It is. 
it, does it, is this like, it looks like you're I've, just looking at your living room, I, but you know maybe what it, I, I have an apartment. I have an oven that I've had since I was four, but the light bulb went out and Hasbro won't replace it. It's an easy bake oven. Joke. Oh, wow. No, I, the, the, po- it, I have the easy bake air fryer. <laughs> They're much better oh, for you. It's no, it's nice because we we can make like one or two little French fries at mm-hmm. a time. It's pretty. It's not bad. But uh, the the convenience is those little things. Oh man, they have to be forced to. You and I are comedians are pretty much the same. We we live. We're accustomed to living out of a suitcase. Any anything that you can't leave yeah. that you can't take with you, you don't need, right? But conveniences yeah. are forced upon us and we enjoy them, right? If, if we're... It, it almost feels like you won't be funny, too, if you have too many nice things. I mean, there's a weird... Yeah, com- also, there's something great about being a comedian where you're like, pen and paper, that's all I need. That's you know, all my, I need. I'm rich in my, in, right in here. Right. And, just, <laughs> but then my, and these medications. Yeah. <laughs> Plus medications. <laughs> my medications. Yeah. Plus you're either drinking or you're sober. There's, so there's right. all kinds of, but there's, um, uh, yeah, we're just, so we feel really like we put, um, a little fire pit on the porch and a couple of chairs and we're just like, Whoa, like, like we have, like we have a yard. We're just like, look at that dog run around the yard. Like when we take her out, we're like, I just opened the door. We're, it's just been a month. So we're, we're still marveling at the, like, insane well, it what happened so, it, and it could not be more middle class it's just regular it's not fa- it's not like oh we're in this fancy house it's incredible we're just like oh my god normal things normal it's amazing normal things that normal people want that we don't understand that 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 unless yeah. you're li- you know we, i always I have mean, to point out that there are 50 million americans who don't have food but and or health insurance. Or, yeah, no, it, it's de- it's definitely. But, but there are these th- this idea of what it, what a normal American life consists of is a lot of convenience. A lot of convenience, and um, again, like my my mom was a teacher, and my dad worked at City Hall. It was very, you know, sort of. I never thought of us as rich, but. Maybe because of the shift in the country, or maybe I just have not been successful. But it feels it feels very. It's just really anyway. It's yeah. very lovely, um, and um, I'm not sure how to even bring this up because I'm not trying. I'm. I want to say this as a nudge to anybody who might be thinking about this. But I took food to a food bank today, which I really recommend. That's good to do. Uh, food banks are great because you put the food in the bank and it collects interest. <laughs> and then when and you, then is 10, that, that kind of food 10, 15 bank? years, you, you're like... The food doubles. Food. Yeah. No, I tell, tell us food, about the food bank. It's important. I watch the food market every day, ups <laughs> and downs. Um, well, uh, tell me about the food bank. Well, for me, and this is like maybe... Uh, in embarrassing to even bring up is like I can be I guess like a lot of just I can be lazy about that or like I can feel when there's something I haven't done before I can feel like well I don't know where it is I don't know what I'm supposed to do or whatever like what am I 
And I just was like, just do like, just go like, or is there one closer? Or am I doing, am I doing it wrong or whatever? And I, it was <clears throat> a bit of a drive. You had to like drive through Dallas to get there, but then they were so grateful and it was great. And I just like, I can't stand waste anymore. I have a real, you know, would have been nice I'm, if they, if they made it a little easier for you. <laughs> no, I was so glad that I had, I had, I don't know. I told you, I don't know how to bring it up. Cause it seems like a weird brag, but I guess I just say it. If there's anyone else like me, that's like, Oh, I should take that to a food bank. Like take it to a food bank. Like the food bank lines are insane. And the, you know, the hung, the hunger crisis is. In the richest country in the world, we have Dr. Harriet Fraud coming up. Hunger like they've never seen it before. There's an article in Common Dreams that's in my Mm -hmm. newsletter today. One in six U.S. families with children don't have enough to eat this holiday season. One in six. It's just incredible. They've seen a 52% increase uh, from last year. Oh, really? In the people needing food? 50%. And it gets worse among blacks and Latinx households. 27% of black households, 23% of Latinx households with children don't have enough to eat. 12% of white families don't have enough to eat. It also feels so much like there's food. It's just not getting... It feels like even in a town, like there's food and then there's people in part of that town that need food. There's just, it's just not like there is food. It is, it seems like there is plenty. It just is not getting to, you know, people who need it. Why do you think that is? Why do you think that is? Um, that we're a, a brutal people that we're, we're cruel to each other, uncaring. And uh, can you hear the wind? I'm sorry, do you hear the wind? It is, yes. I'm in an air shaft. I'm in an oh. air shaft. So if it's that windy in the air shaft, I can only imagine <laughs> what, what, what's going on it's in the street. It's something that came with your apartment. Yeah, no, it's, it's pretty, uh, yeah. Dr. Harriet Fraud joins us. She's the host of Capitalism Hits Home, and it's not just in your head. Welcome. We're talking about hunger in America. Yeah, but I have to weigh in listening to this. Look, if food is for profit, you go where the profit is. Poor people can't afford it, so they don't get any food. It's nothing personal. It's the way it works. If you're a food company, you sell more stock. You get richer, which is the whole point, and other people starve, and you can't feel for them. They're collateral damage. The same with the for-profit healthcare system or anything else. And so the problem is a capitalist system that is unmitigated here by the strong socialist, communist, anarchist, whatever that they have in Europe. And so we have this disgrace of one in six. That's such an impressive statistics one in six families with children doesn't have enough food so it's and what you say is right there's enough it's just not getting around just like 
there's enough warm clothes, there's enough good education. It's just, if it's for profit, it only goes to those who can afford it, those who have the money. That's the way they distribute it, not those who need it, but those who have the money. And And mitigate forces that are in socialism have not operated here because we don't have a socialist presence. We pay farmers not to grow crops, to to keep the prices up, to create Mm -hmm. supply and demand. Uh, It never occurs to anybody that that money should go towards food banks or, you know, they're now delivering food. If if you're so disposed, Blue Apron will deliver food to your home so you can cook it. Never occurs to anybody. What about sending meals to uh, to to these families? Joe, you raised your hand. I'm sorry, Dr. Fred. Uh, let me just take this call. Please, I'm sorry. No, 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 no. I, 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 Joe has his hand raised, and I uh, I just wanted to. Yes, I do. Hi, Joe. Um, I, I, I hope this question isn't trivial, but it's for Dr. Fraud. And it has to do with the juncture of capitalism and relationships. And... Um, I'll just cut to the point when a, a, a man is it entertaining a relationship with a woman who makes more money than he does. Mm-hmm. Um, how, how do we deal with that? There was a story. When a, when a woman makes more than a man, it's yes. not a question. There's it's a okay. 33. I was just reading about but, that. 33% chance of a divorce if a woman makes more than a man. And yet 39% yeah. of marriages, women make more than their husbands. They earn more money. Because yeah. of old stereotypes, I think the only way out is to go through it. It's like if you're going through a wave, you don't stand there and just stiffen your body against the wave. You'll be ground up. You dive into the wave. You come out the other side. You have to talk about what this means to you, what it means to your partner in this relationship, mm-hmm. how you feel about it, what you can do about it, because the very discussion is a bridge to one another that will help you get through it. And, and you'll learn from each other. Thank you. It's a great question, Joe, because Dr. Harriet Fraud is one of the founding mothers of the women's liberation movement. A lot of women I know who are the beneficiaries of the work you did say that the punishment that they pursued a career, but they were punished in their personal lives for being strong and powerful and unable to find a man who would accept them. And now you read that 33% of marriages fail because the man, they They don't know if it's because the man can't handle a woman making more. But where the man doesn't make as much as the woman, there's a 33% chance that marriage is going to fail. The problem is for men, not women. Problem is that men have Mm -hmm. to learn to accept, right, Dr. Fraud? That they have to accept... Yes, that people have to accept that they're in it together, in this life together as partners, and that it's nice if somebody 
gets more money, that's nice. You could share it. But that this idea, the old idea that the man is not a real man unless he is a primary provider, and that's one of the things that's a big crisis of masculinity, that men can't be sole providers, the mass of men, because they can't afford to, because their wages have been frozen since the 70s, as costs have skyrocketed. And so it's a problem within the old definition. Look, women whose husbands earn less than they do more housework in order to make it up to him that she's making more money because of these stereotypes of the little lady provided by the big, strong provider man, rather than two equals making a life together with whatever comes and dealing with each other as equals. These are vestiges of a very patriarchal past mm-hmm. that's functional now. When you look at the picks that Joe Biden is making, it is unprecedented the number of women who are joining this White House. He's got a communications staff that's all female. The I think we just found out the head of the CIA is female. The the ambassador is going to be a woman. It's it's a lot of women. Are you shocked by the number of women who are coming into a neoliberal White House? And no, these are professional women who are successful professional women and being recognized. They're not radicals, but they're, you know, they're someone like Heather Bushy, who is an excellent economist, is coming on. She's an excellent economist who has been really excellent in her analyses of women's labor. But, um, and I think, I'm not shocked. I think it's wonderful. On the other hand, I think if that's a replacement for class justice, it's not going to work. It'll just make Trump's people more misogynistic because they'll think those women are getting it and I'm not. So that there has to be class as well as gender and race justice. But certainly I'm impressed and I'm pleased that his picks are intelligent, thoughtful people and women also. Right. So you do see some people who you're happy with in the transition. Yes. Yes. Not Avril Haynes, the new director of national intelligence, not Linda Thomas-Greenfield, the U.S. ambassador to the United Nations. Who 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 has he picked? That's Heather Bushy is an impressive economist. And Janet Yellen, although a, a neoliberal, hardly a radical, is an honest economist. You know, he has not. It's not crooks. Big improvement. It's right. not fascists, it's neoliberals. Much preferable to have neoliberals than fascists. And as far as Heather Bushy goes, whose work I've followed, she's a really competent feminist, fair economist, excellent economist. So, you know, I'm generally pleased that the people that he has on board are not crooks who are looking for graft in their fields of expertise. My and sister... I, my sister was talking about you yesterday and, and one of the things that you that gave her the courage not only to vote for Biden, but to do so unapologetically was when you explained that neoliberals are better than fascists, that we, we would prefer Bernie 
But if you have to yeah. pick between neoliberals and fascists, you go with the neoliberals. And I think you said the difference is that when we push a neoliberal president, he's not going to shoot us in the streets. Right. He'll move. Right. So you sound a little more optimistic than some of my friends, some of my Bernie bro friends who, who just won't accept Biden. They, they think it's more of the same, that they're all coming from the, the same K Street lobbying groups. We're, we're seeing more of the same. What, what do you see a year from now that, that makes you optimistic? I see a hope. I see the hope of that progressive groups will join together and push Biden because Biden got 38% of Biden's votes were black votes. And there's a big race class uh, conjuncture there that black people are poor Native Americans. He got huge Native American votes, many more than anyone else because Native Americans are the poorest people. The only non-refugee population are the poorest people in the United States. And I think that if the left could get together and push him to the left, he would be pushed. And that would be a chance. I don't think we'd have a chance with Trump. And I think we have a chance with Biden, who counted on the progressives to get in office. And how do we put the economic system up for debate in the next two years? How well, do we think, reimagine this economic system with a, a neoliberal cabinet? Well, I think what we have to do is push them to the left. There has to be an enormous movement. FDR wasn't, didn't do what he did because he was a sweet guy. He had the Farm Recovery Act because... Judges who condemned family farms were hanged by the Iowa militias and the Nebraska militias. And people weren't allowed to get away with that. There was battling in the streets against the National Guard. Unemployed marches in New York. Hundreds of thousands of people wanting work and organized by the CIO, which was very much built up by the two socialists and the communist parties, as well as many other people who were unaffiliated. But there was a threat. And so he could go to his buddies in the wealthiest circles, because he came from the wealthiest circles, and say, look, you don't allow me to tax you at 96.8%. You won't have any business anymore. They'll take it over. And they were scared enough that they agreed. And so we got 11 million jobs at that point, which would be 22 million jobs at decent wages. And he could say, if your private employers won't hire you, we will, and we'll build up America, and we'll build up schools, and we'll build dams and give people cheap electricity at the TVA, and we'll start the WPA and hire people to create and beautify and hire artists and writers and comedians and anyone who wants to make life better for the mass of people and will have social security and unemployment insurance. Wow. And they got that money because they took it. Just think Jeffrey Bezos has $200 billion. If you left him with 500 million more than he could spend in a lifetime, 
unless he was taking himself on bizarre voyages to the outer space, which mm-hmm. he is. And he should but stay there. Exactly. And not even rotate the globe. <laughs> but in any case, if, if you left him with 500 million, okay, you'd have $199.5 billion to build up this country, to have free childcare and after school care and care for parents and Wow, you could have a wild thing. And if you took the money away from the rest of the billionaires and also went to the Cayman Islands and the other and Panama, where they have these offshore accounts and said the army's invading unless you give us the money from those accounts, you bet they would. Of course they could. And so they won't get away with it. Just stop, close the loopholes, bring back the money. What? So we could afford it. What what's going to happen with the Trump supporters? Because he, I was talking to Mark Green, he was on earlier, and he says they're not going away, uh, and neither is Trump. But not having the presidency behind him is going to make him feel weaker. Although I, I have a feeling Trump is going to, in five years, be worth billions. Don't you book contracts, you know, movies? He's got yeah, inside he information. He has some insider information. I think he's making the big fuss because he, the big donors have checked out. He's not successful. Adelson is Sheldon Adelson's not giving him any more money. Stephen Schwartzman, the last one of the big um, stock people, told him, forget it. You're defeated. He's trying to get people so riled up they send in their little savings because he's all about graft and he wants that money. He's like Bannon with his Save the Wall Foundation where he took a million million dollars off of it and was on a yacht caught for fraud because he took the money. Of course, he bailed himself out with his million dollars, so he's out and about, but nonetheless, I think he won't be too much of anywhere Unless these people, especially if the United States had real alternatives, because where there's a narrow band of choices, people go for the most extreme. And he was the most angry and the most different. And I think they were attracted to that. And if and they were attracted to Bernie too. Fox News people loved the viewers loved Bernie so much they never allowed him on again. Right. After his first time. So I think if we provided a real alternatives, many of them would come over. Right. Not died in the wool racists, but the one who says, I can't get by. I can't get by. My dream is robbed. I want it back. And he's the only one talking about the swamp, even though he's digging it deeper. Biden so, is offering what? What is he offering to us right now that, that you know, the personnel, they say, it's who you pick. I wonder mm-hmm. about that. The fish rots from the head down. You can have Bernie as labor secretary, but if the president is saying, don't overturn the fiduciary rule, uh, or you know, don't, re- don't bring it back, he ain't bringing it back. So well, they keep Bernie's saying it's- Bernie's a wild card. I think someone like Bernie might say, they're not letting me help labor. Get in the streets, have a general strike and show them labor's power. That's why they're a little weary 
and Leary are burning. Because I think Biden can be pushed in a way that Trump couldn't. And I also think Biden is, you know, he comes from a state whose whole economy is based on tax breaks for corporations. Mm -hmm. He's not exactly radical. And he was right there condemning Anita Hill. And he was right there for three strikes, you're out, getting people put in jail for small crimes if they had no money to get off. And so I, I think Biden is somebody who could be pushed if there were a powerful left. Can he be threatened? Sure, just like FDR was. FDR's election slogan was a balanced budget. He got pushed by the necessity that he saw, because he was smart, he saw, whoa, if we don't provide security for people, they're going to take over this country in a radical revolution. What do you see happening? What, what do you see happening if we're hearing, you know, Janet Yellen and uh, Neera Tandon, one of my favorite people, who's going to be nominated for OMB? Both of them have suggested that Medicaid, Medicare, and Social Security are ripe for cutting. We need to practice austerity. These are our progressive female leaders that Biden wants to bring into his cabinet. What do we do if Biden turns out to be the fiscal hawk he always is? We take to the streets? We, may, yes. how do we, we do everything we can. We have general strikes. We take to the streets. We demonstrate. Both the Democratic Party establishment and the Republican Party establishment do not want people activated because it's a threat to the way they do business. Right. But that's what we have to do. We have to be active and we have to get out there. And there will be labor leaders who come along with us. Sarah Nelson wanted a general strike when they, uh, Trump tried to get the flight people to come in with no money. You know, not be paid. Right. So, you know, the only good thing about these people is they'll move. And we have to move them. We have some questions. Uh, Professor Marianne has a question about <laughs> our vote. But the invisible ninja raised his hand first. So let me do this in the order in which, hello, Invisible. It's good not hello. to see you. It's good not to see no, you again, always. Invisible. <laughs> always. Very now, there was, an, there, there was an email exchange between you, Dan, and Dr. Fraud right before we started. And I was, is there a video that I'm supposed to show? Uh, well, no. Um, what, what our plan is, is, well, we, you know, we're having the viewing party for Ed Larson's movie, Right. How America Killed My Mother. Right. Um, and we're going to be putting together a compilation video beforehand of just some important voices talking about just the simple fact of how you shouldn't, you know, have to die if you're poor. So, you know, we thought who better than Dr. Fraud to give just a little bit of a, um, you know, a little bit of an elaboration on that for a couple minutes. And then we, we will clip it and we're going to edit it into the compilation video. I see. So all we, all I need from you is for you to like highlight Harriet's screen or Dr. Fraud's screen. And then 
Just let her talk. Don't interrupt her. Oh, right now? <laughs> well, when, uh, yeah, I mean, we were thinking about, well, let's get this done. Okay, let's do it right now. So I'm going to highlight, uh, well, what I can do, I'll do this. Why don't I just do speaker? And what would you like to ask Dr. Frott? Well, um, and we kind of went back and forth a little bit on an email, but basically the topic that the, that the video is going to be about is just the, like I said, the simple fact that you shouldn't have to die if you're poor and how we have these systems set up in America to basically make us poor. So we're trying to reach out to a, a little bit, you know, a little outside of our circle. So we're keeping it basic and just some of these common sense things that I think Dr. Fraud could could really hit home yeah one of the things we had uh we had uh, ed larson he's the star of uh i'm gonna mute you uh invisible and then we'll uh we had ed larson on our diabetic fury show his mother was a nurse who took care of people in a nursing home she administered to people but could not afford her own insulin I mean, it's just incredible. Would you like to speak to that, Dr. Frank? Yeah, well, I think I'd like to speak to the whole business. I think Ed Larson's mother died as collateral damage on the road to profit. Because if you have a market-driven healthcare system, then the idea is to please your stockholders and to make money. And the people who die because they can't pay the money are collateral damage. It's like I remember in the Sackler case with the pushers of OxyContin and OxyCodone who made $17 billion. There was an interview with a doctor who worked for them. And it, they asked him about, you know, killing people. He said, hey, they were on the road to $37 billion dollars. You're speeding. You pay the traffic ticket, right? Wow. That's and what they left. said. Yes, he said, you pay the traffic ticket. And I think there is a callousness to human life that comes with capitalism and needing to make a profit off of people, regardless of their circumstances. And Ed Larson's mother was collateral damage to people who didn't care about her life. They cared about their money and they saved money on her. And I think if you have a market driven healthcare system, instead of the public healthcare systems that the rest of the civilized, you know, wealthy countries have, whether it's France or Germany or Scandinavia, then the idea is to regulate just those forces that the United States as profiting from the healthcare system. There are four of them. There are the doctors that join the American Medical Association to keep their numbers down and their prices up. There are the hospitals that work with the doctors because the doctors are the ones who admit their patients to the profit, profitable hospitals. There are the insurance companies. And there's Big Pharma with the medications. Would you like to would you like to speak at all to McKinsey? We're finding out that Pete Buttigieg, Mayor Pete's old firm, McKinsey was advising the Sackler family and Purdue Pharma on yes. on how to mitigate costs due to the overdoses from their OxyContin. 
That's right, because they made money off it. It was a good deal for them because they made money off of trying to excuse these murderers who murdered 600,000 people died of overdoses between 1999 and 2019. That's 600,000 more than died in Vietnam. And yet there was the Sackler Wing at the Louvre, the Sackler Wing at the Guggenheim. There were the Sackler chairs at all sorts of medical schools. And there were Sackler fellowships. And they, just like Jeffrey Epstein, bought his way as a philanthropist while he was raping children, they bought themselves a position as philanthropists while they were killing people. And now they've settled with the Justice Department. They're going to pay about, I don't know, $220 million in civil penalties. Meanwhile, they're worth... $15 $15 billion. They started selling stock the minute this, the overdose story yeah. came to light. They're worth billions and billions of dollars. And they get a slap on the wrists. $225 million in civil penalties, which I bet are a tax write-off. I bet it's a tax write-off. I bet it is. And look, they made off of the drug OxyContin, the Sacklers made $37 billion dollars the Sackler family and, you know, the whole Purdue Pharma enterprise. Maybe the clear profit was only $17 billion. But It's the cost of doing business. That's the cost of doing business. That's the collateral damage in that business. And I think that that business has to stop. You know, you, you need Medicare for all. Those other countries that have public health services have regulated fees for doctors. They have regulated fees for hospitals. They, they don't need insurance companies. And their pharmaceuticals are regulated so that the cost is not as much. You know, if you go to the doctor, if you're employed in France, which my husband was for a while, so we went there, if he was sick, you give your card They put in a little machine, that's it, because they don't need a whole bureaucracy because there's no insurance involved. And that card goes right to where it's it's needed. And if you if you had high car fare to get to the doctor, they refund your car fare. Before you go, let's talk about Coca-Cola and Apple. They both market themselves as progressive corporations. They're all about diversity. And youth, there's a bill before the House. It passed in the House unanimously, and it can even pass in the Senate. There are enough votes for this to pass in the Senate. It's called the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act, which would prevent any goods that are made by forced labor in China from entering the United States. And we're discovering that Coca-Cola is lobbying to prevent the Senate from passing this bill because the Uyghurs, uh, we get sugarcane from the Mm -hmm. Uyghurs, and Apple is lobbying uh, for the Senate not to pass the Uyghur Forced Labor Prevention Act because a lot of our iPhones are made in uh, forced labor camps. 
That's right. I think they should add to that list, in addition to the Uyghurs, any product that's made by U.S. prison labor. Exactly. Which is also forced labor, because they like to look abroad, and that is a gross injustice, but they don't like to look in their own backyard at their own slavery. Right. Why isn't that? I mean, I kind of, well, I, I genuinely am curious, even though I know the answer, but why is that not common knowledge that we have prison labor in this country? Because we make the connection. I'm fascinated how they frame our knowledge. We, we know about the loophole in the 13th Amendment. We've, we've learned about the new Jim Crow. We've learned that there's a loophole in the African, uh, loophole in the 13th Amendment. It, you can't have slavery, but if you're in, I'm sorry? Except in prison. Except in prison. And we've, we've had a discussion that the police round up African-Americans and put them in the system because of the, the loophole of the 13th Amendment. But nobody on MSNBC, CNN, names names. They never mention the companies, the products that are made because of this loophole. God, I get so angry. I'm, I, I just want to. I want to break something. Well, I'm they sorry. What? They may be advertisers, and though exactly. and CNN wants to make money, and NBC wants to make money. It's a system of right. interlocking parts protecting capitalist profit at people's expense, whether right. it's healthcare or whether it's anything else. But they've trained. They, they've done. They've done a great job of taking away our critical thinking, because mm-hmm. anybody with half a mind would say, "Okay, we're learning about Black Lives Matters. We're learning that the police are rounding up black people to put them in the system because prisoners can work for free." Okay, nobody then makes that next step. Nobody asks, well, who are the companies? Nobody asks that. Well, partly they don't ask it because it's frightening to know. Partly they don't ask it because we don't have a left making sure they ask those questions. If you're in France, there's the on the magazine rack, there's Humanité, the communist newspaper. There's Le Monde, a socialist newspaper. You know, you have mainstreamed viewpoints that are critical we don't have an opposition. We have a very narrow band of choices and people stay within those narrow bands. Where are they going to learn how to think critically about this system? Right. Not in public school, not in college. We are the only country in, in the, you know, the industrialized West where there's no courses in Marxism, thinking about a great thinker who influenced most of the world's population, if you count up what was the Soviet Union and China and all the others, that you may be critical, but it's worth reading. They've done, well, they've uh, done such a great know. job. They've done such a great job uh, preventing us from connecting the dots in our own head. We don't. It's the, it's must, it, Professor Marianne is a is a, a, a physics professor as well as the com- a commissioner of parks in Aurora, Illinois, you, I think, are going to ask Dr. Harriet Fraud about the left. Uh, we have Dr. Adnan Hussein coming up, but uh, 
Professor Marianne just raised her oh, hand. There are so many things I want to ask Dr. Fraud, but I'll make a comment on what you were just talking about. The fact that we don't have a left is actually reinforced by things that left-leaning people do and insist on, like insist that we have to vote for Biden, that we have to vote for the Democrats. Well, we've been doing this for 40 years that I have been like politically aware and I have just seen the Democrats are there to make sure that nothing swings to the left and the Republicans get in and they swing it to the right. And, you know, they did not uh, conspire. I mean, everyone from uh, Tom Perez to to Obama to make sure that Bernie Sanders wasn't the nominee just to adopt his policies. Of course not. But by a left, I mean a unified left. What we do have is a lot of leftists. We have climate people. We have people who are in Black Lives Matter. We have gender um, awareness people, but we don't have a unified left. Well, here's here's an an idea. And this is for maybe 13 people, it looks like, in the House, 13 progressives to Mm -hmm. basically use their power and tell Nancy Pelosi, you know, we will not vote for you for Speaker of the House because she's voted leader. She's the majority. She's the Democratic leader. But Speaker of the House comes, you know, when the Congress is a whole it would take. I think it's going to settle out to be like 223 to uh, 212. There's not going to be many people. Thirteen could just say you bring Medicare for all to a vote. You bring, you know, like UBI to a vote. You bring, uh, you know, a moratorium on evictions and guaranteed housing for people for the length of this COVID and then thereafter. Or you won't be Speaker of the House. Great idea. Great idea. But the thing is, is that people are always too scared to do. They need to be united in a party. They look, one of the reasons the squad with only four members was as effective as it was, is they worked really together. Now there are 13. And And 13 is all that will take to it to flex power. Yes, they have to do that. They they've been influencing. And I think they're still very uncomfortable with just flexing raw power which you'll have to do. Well, I think you also have to have something behind it, which is a powerful left organization to make the threats come true. Or we will replace you, Democrats. We will take the progressives out and you will lose every time. Not Not if the primaries are just so slanted and rigged and controlled by the Democratic Party and the debates are controlled by the party so that we really don't have like we had, you know, 30 or 40 years ago. But anyway, I... I, You know what? uh, This is a great... I'd like to... Let me... I want to bring... Let me thank Dr. Harriet Fraud for joining us. Hang on. I'm getting... I just had a computer meltdown. Uh, uh, Professor Marianne, you'll be here Thursday, I hope, and we should pursue this and find out who is organizing that campaign to threaten Pelosi's speakership because that that is really worth discussing. Let me thank Dr. Harriet Fraud. She's the host of two great podcasts, Capitalism Hits Home 
and it's not just in your head. My sister loves you. Uh, how do people reach you? They could see my work at harrietfraud.com, um, F-R-A-A-D-H-A-R-R-I-E-T, fraud.com. Or if they want to reach me, they can send me an email. Just not, you know, no insults. Criticisms are okay. No insults. No, no criticism either. At gmail.com. Great. Thank you so much for joining Before us. Before Dr. Fraud goes. Yes, please. I was, let me introduce... Professor Adnan Hussein, who is the chairman of the religion department at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. He's the host of two podcasts, the Mudgeless podcast and Guerrilla History. What is your question for Dr. Fraud? I was just wondering if before Dr. Fraud uh, departs, if she could perhaps finish or maybe make the statement for Ed Larson that I think she was in the midst of I doing. Have, I don't have a written statement I'm supposed oh, okay. to. okay. I didn't, maybe he sent it and I didn't get it, but I didn't get it. So I just oh, said okay. what I felt about okay. this. We're trying to film a hostage video, Dr. Fraud, and you're being very uncooperative. <laughs> so just, <laughs> this is the problem. <laughs> we were talking about the Uyghurs and Professor Hussein and slave labor is there any justification let me let me play devil's advocate uh that apple says i'm throwing you a hard ball or a curveball whatever they say in baseball is, is if it's an unfair is there any way to get in the head of apple and coca-cola who are lobbying to not pass this bill that would prevent products that are the result of slave labor from China entering this country? Is there any rational justification other than it's cheap labor? I don't think so. I don't think so. And I think the only thing that would stop them is enormously costly bad publicity. So people, you know, that's the... That's the benefit of having a party. You have people to make statements and organize demonstrations and so on. Then then it might cost them too much in terms of the bad publicity. People wouldn't be buying Apple. Okay, then maybe we shouldn't do this. Professor Hussein, is there anything? To- it, it, it did work, I think, to some extent with the sweatshop, anti-sweatshop campaigns, you know, a decade, decade and a half ago. I think it pressured Benetton. It started with Benetton, United Colors of Benetton. They had this big diversity, you know, campaign, different races, etc. But they were using sweatshop labor and that became unacceptable to the public and was so damaging to their image. So I think you know, things like this can certainly have an effect to constrain them where the cost-benefit analysis of exploiting labor to the nth degree uh, becomes a little bit um, too risky for um, their continued domination of the market and competitors could make inroads. Unfortunately, I think they're very clever, however, at um, shifting, uh, you know, shifting the discourse and making a show of conforming to the new uh, requirements and the new standards while still finding ways to still exploit people because that's what's necessary for capitalism to make profits. So, 
one has to keep up the the pressure and that's kind of a theme that seems to come from um the discussion that you were just having with professor marianne and dr uh fraud about um you know the new wave of reinforcements that are going to be in the next congress if they are to actually wield any power and be effective in doing so and feel emboldened to do so because it's a it's a risk there has to be a movement behind them that is really supporting them that gives them the confidence that they are being backed up by the public and if they are going to you know face the ire of the establishment democrats and leadership in the house as it's a st- as it's as it exists and also all of the media the msnbc and so on that will start demonizing them there has to be big pushback they ha- this has to already be in place that this is a demand that's emerging not because the squad has good politics and these ideas but because they are being responsive to the community and the movements that have put them there and so they have to be pushed into it as well and they have to be supported if they actually do take some courageous political stance that reflect um you know a real canny sense of using using the leverage that they might have we have to be backing them i think in those moments i think so too and i think otherwise trump's supporters have you know when they say it's all rigged they know it's rigged we know it's rigged too now trump then expresses their anger and then worsens the conditions of their lives. But they do sense that it's rigged. And we know it is too. There's a lot, there's a lot that's rigged. I also think that Apple, Benetton, all those companies have an appearance of diversity, racial, gender diversity, but class exploitation remains unchanged. And that's what would have to be changed. That class exploitation. But but and, here here's the the thing that I don't understand, and I want to go back. Am I pronouncing it properly? The Uyghurs, we, so. yeah, that's right, yeah, right. the Uyghurs. Uh, first, you should give us a brief refresher on uh, who they are and why they're a million of them are in internment camps in China. But there's a uh, again, I, I, there's a bill before the Senate. It was passed unanimously in the House. It would outlaw any products made by slaves in China from entering the United States, according to a congressional watchdog group. Back in March, they said that Adidas, Nike, Coca-Cola, Calvin Klein, the Campbell Soup Company, Costco, H&M, Patagonia and Tommy Hilfiger, among other companies, are using slave labor in China, specifically the Uyghurs. There's a bill before the Senate. It seems to have bipartisan support. But according to uh, some congressional aides, Apple and Coca-Cola are lobbying the Senate not to pass this bill. Explain to me. First, who the the Uyghurs are, why they're in these concentration camps, and then explain to me how you can justify this if you're Coca-Cola or Apple, because there has to be, you know, evil sleeps at night. So what do they tell themselves? What, What does Calvin Klein 
tell Marcy Klein, his daughter, who uh, used to produce 30 Rock, if, if Marcy Klein says, you know, I just came back from a party at the Hamptons, Daddy, and they say we're using slave labor in China. Tell me we're not evil. What, what does Calvin Klein tell Marcy Klein? Well, I know what I think he says. He says, look, you know why you live in the Hamptons? Because I'm a good businessman. I don't believe you. I don't believe that, Dr. Fraud. I I think evil sleeps at night. I think they I don't think I I don't think he would say that to her. Do you? I I think he'd have a he would he would have plausible deniability. Wouldn't he? I don't know. And I, I have a very I had a very rich uncle. And when I used to argue with him, he'd say, well, someday somebody's going to put me up against the wall. I just hope it's somebody in the family. (laughs) (laughs) So he he knew he was evil. No, he knew that was business. At Thanksgiving, his do-goody wife, who was supposed to give, you know, she joined lots of charities. She was supposed to put the patina of sweetness on his predations. And she stood up, my Aunt Rita, and she said, let's drink to this world that everybody should be good to each other in this world. And he stood up afterwards with his aquavite, and he said, in this world, each man pisses in the other man's eye. Wow. <laughs> wow. Wow. And he was proud of it, that he could get into this world and he could make his way, and that he wasn't pretending he was anything he wasn't. Maybe we don't, maybe the problem is, maybe the gift of Trump is he introduced us to the face of evil. Too many of us have not met enough evil people and realize they walk among us. And that they're very proud of it. And that he saw through the game, because he won the game, and he saw through the game. On Christmas, he'd go to Tiffany and buy his wife some jewel-crusted crap that he saw there, and it would be 24 grand, and he'd say to the guy, it's Christmas Eve, I'll give you 12 grand, and you'll be lucky you'll get in cash. And the guy said, we, sir, we must see the manager. The manager said, okay, take it for 12 grand. You know, he had no, he had, he knew the game, and he was proud. Now, he was a first-generation capitalist rich man but he was very proud of it and he was progressive as far as things go when they tried to kick out the communists that were in his union he said you can't tell me what to do it's my business that's how i got rich fuck you fbi right. by the way here's something that will make you happy before professor hussein answers your question dr fraud i was saving this for you you can mm-hmm. read the headline this was We were doing the show on Thanksgiving. This was in the news Thanksgiving Day. Why don't you read that headline? This came out. This was announced on Thanksgiving. Disney increases number of planned layoffs to 32,000 employees. This was on Thanksgiving Day. I always joke about the show having lots of employees. And, you know, I'll say to people, let's let's uh, fire everybody on Christmas. That would be fun for me. That might give me an erection. Uh, who, who, I mean, that's Disney announcing 32,000 layoffs. I'm, that's I'm, a family, um, uh, you know, uh, business. Uh, they love, uh, family values and family entertainment, you know? 
Yeah, and they are making money for their stockholders, and they're going to, you know, because less people or fewer people are going to Disney activities and buying things because they're poorer. Look, that's the logic of capitalism, and within that logic, it makes sense. Within any kind of human compassion, it makes no sense. But capitalism is not a human compassion system. It's a profit system. So and we have to understand that. Unbelievable. Professor Hussein, who are the Uyghurs? Why are they being rounded up, placed in concentration camps? And then how, how do you justify? How do you think the other way? Do you ever try well, to think? I'll start with the, with the latter because we were sort of talking about yeah. that. And then if we have time, talk a little bit more about the, the group involved. But the general uh, issue here is that um, this is what's necessary for these companies to make money. It's endemic to the system of capitalism. So when we decry a particular case of extraordinary abuse that comes to our attention, uh, the reason why it's possible to justify it broadly, perhaps on some level, is because the sad truth and the secret that we all know and understand is that Lots of other things that are being made in China, not by the Uyghurs, but by others, are also under horrific conditions. This is happening also all across uh, the globe. And if you go to places like Africa or, you know, um, uh, factories in, you know, India, Bangladesh, there are all kinds of abuses and um you know, sometimes the state is involved in actually corralling uh, a, a population and exploiting their labor, like the China is doing with the Uyghurs, and like the, you know, various states in the United States are doing with the prison population. We just talked about that. There's prison labor taking place. These are people whose liberties are constrained by the state. They're incarcerated and they're exploited in their labor. And the United States has more people, you know, in. Um, the, this condition than any other country. So, you know, uh, one problem that we have in this is that it's endemic to the system. We have to fight against it everywhere. And it, but it makes it easier for these companies to justify certain occasions of it because unless they get a lot of attention, negative attention about that in particular, that's really just how business operates. And um, it's just something that they have to take into account. Right. There's this kind of pushback on this. Okay, we have to make an adjustment because of the negative attention about the Uyghurs. But they'll look for some other place where they can reproduce as close as possible the same cost saving and conditions in order to control that labor. So we are paying attention to the Uyghurs because it is a tragic situation that a distinctive ethnic group, uh, they speak their own distinctive language of Uyghur. It's a Turkic language. There are people that um, historically, we're aware of having established uh, written records uh, of themselves since the 5th, 6th, 7th centuries in Central Asia. They're a kind of nomadic Turkic people like the Turks, like the Mongols. They were uh, nomadic people and they're in this, you know, far uh, uh, northwestern, uh, you know, province of what is today China. Yeah, um, could an argument were, be, be made yeah. that because they're I believe they're Muslim, correct? Yes, that's right, yeah. Could an argument be made that they're perceived as a threat to the, the Chinese communist government, which 
kind of doesn't approve of religion, although they're opening it up a little. But they, that they that they're cracking down. I guess the argument is they're cracking down on quote unquote radical Islam. Is that is that yes. Yeah, so just well, like the Tibetans that are a distinctive kind of ethnic people with their own religious and cultural traditions that made them a little resistant to assimilation into the, you know, Han Chinese and communist uh, state, the Uyghurs also had a nationalist sort of movement trying to achieve, and they had a certain autonomous and ethnic rights. Ethnic communities, people who were described as ethnic communities, had for a long time. And have they been? colonized by China? Uh, well, over a long period of time, yes, China was the dominant regional power and other areas came under their political sway. And at a certain point, um, you know, the Uyghurs were also under um, control of the Chinese state. And when it became communist, um, you know, you have uh, an accommodation that's made. They were somewhat autonomous. They had different special rights. They were treated in a different way. But I think, you know, China has changed. And ironically, it's under this more capitalist mode of um, uh, transformation that China is undergoing that they have needed to exploit uh, labor in a different way. And also there were, you know, some violent, you know, attempts. um, So is it about exploitation of of the Uyghurs, or is it, you know, Lindsey Graham told Donald Trump, it never ends. The war on terror never ends. Radical yeah, Islam, right. they're the Nazis. The, the way some people are selling the internment of the Uyghurs is they are Islamic separatists. They mm-hmm. commit acts of terror. Do we know if they commit acts of terror? If do the do the Chinese, does the Politburo fear that left to their own devices, they will be troublemakers? Yes. Well, there has been longstanding nationalist movements, as I mentioned, and there were some radical groups that did actually uh, engage in resistance against the state. There were some kinds of attacks. They've been pursued. Many of them are exiles outside of the country. But what I would suggest. And what do they want? What, what do they want? They want their well, own. What they want is an independent, you know, state of their own. Right. Like a lot of ethno nationalist movements. They want to be independent. And why won't China affairs. do that? What, because. Well, China will not do that because they are part of China want to, you know, have the state just like they in their relationship to Tibet. They don't want Tibet to become an independent country. It's important for the integrity integrity of the state as far as they're concerned. And, you know, to be honest, the other part that's not really talked about is the Belt and Road Initiative, um, which is a, a kind of geopolitical and economic development project of trying to integrate many of the parts of Central Asia into um you know, uh, for uh, natural gas and oil exchange, to have pipelines, but also to integrate uh, kind of uh, the the market and for China to have uh, control and access to all of these markets and to be the dominant power in moving its goods in a different vector than, you know, to the West and so on. But China is doing a lot of business. Uh, This is something that's in the third world, in develop, big development projects. And, you know, this is a major initiative for them to expand and extend their dominant position geopolitically and economically, not just 
in the Far East, but into Central Asia and other parts so of Asia. So in terms of these concentration camps, there's supposedly, not supposedly, a million Uyghurs are in, in an area that's just been cordoned off. Uh, would you say that the Chinese Politburo is more concerned about access to rare earth and and the travel routes and, and spreading their financial influence throughout Africa and, and the Uyghurs are in the way. They, they need that land. Uh, is this financial or is or is it primarily the war, like a cultural religious war? What what is what would you say? Uh, ways in the balance. Yeah, that's hard to determine exactly. The things mutually reinforce one another. And so when they all come together, then you have a real adamant position. Mm-hmm. Um, it seems to me that um, the cultural, national, and religious dimensions are very useful because there's already an existing discourse about Islamic radical terrorism. It's a discourse that with the global war on terrorism in the 2000s, it was something that other um, authoritarian leaders, uh, dictatorships, and so on could use to justify their suppression of resistance by saying, well, we're also combating terrorism. We saw that in different parts of Central Asia, in Tajikistan. We see that also um, in India. You know, Modi is really using and in the BJP ideology of uh, Hindutva, Hindu supremacy and Hindu nationalism. They're using um, the global war on terrorism discourse to say, well, look, we're just combating the Muslims who are causing trouble just like you're doing elsewhere. So um, so that that's how they framed useful. 9-11. I don't know if that's the decisive reason. They framed 9-11 as an attack by radical Islam, but they attacked the World Trade Center and they attacked the Pentagon. They didn't attack St. Patrick's Cathedral. They didn't attack our religion, our, you know, Christian, Christian buildings. They attacked our, a symbol of commerce and a symbol of war. But they, yeah, but well, they framed it I, as a religious I, thing because yeah, we're not. So al- interesting. It's interesting that you point that out because I have, for the last twenty years, been teaching and trying to, in public forums, articulate why I don't think this should be reduced to some kind of civilizational war. This idea of culture that we have unchanging identities that pit, pit us together, and that there's incompatibilities between these cultures and religions that make it impossible for there to be any change or any kind of peaceful coexistence. And if you listen, for example, to the uh, videotapes back in the day when, you know, videotape was the way you, you know, got your message out to the world, the first videotapes that came out from Osama bin Laden after the attacks made very perfunctory and cursory, you know, and formulaic kinds of religious uh, points. The substance of it was, you've been occupying Iraq, you, you know, this we, there's been a continuing problem with Israel and, you know, the Palestinian refugee, you know, situation. And, you know, in Afghanistan, you came and you, you know, uh, left and destroyed and you've been taking the oil. And, you know, he had a litany of complaints that were 
broadly political. And even in his argument about um, non-combatants and civilians, the argument he made was not based on religion that, oh, it's okay to kill civilians because it's not, you know, in mm-hmm. religious doctrine, it is not allowed to kill civilians. What he said is, well, you did it in Hiroshima and you killed all these people. And this is nothing compared to Hiroshima. And we are just trying to get you out of our lands. Right. So fundamentally, it was a political position that, of course, was embodied in religious ideology it it bolsters a religious identity and that's the way in which people try and think about it but when they really tried to analyze what was their complaint what was the justification they wanted to give it was really in political terms and so i think that's the case here as well is that um yes of course the uyghurs want to keep their culture keep their religion um, but they also are trying to be an independent uh, nation and this is very inconvenient for a lot of other material interests that are at stake let me ask you i don't know if you've read thomas friedman uh i try not to i know uh, sometimes you can't avoid hearing about what his latest outrage was right he he wrote a piece Sunday, which uh, was about a month after you and I talked, uh, I raised a question about whether or not Jared was actually succeeding when it comes to the Middle East. And can an argument be made, and I, I think that Thomas Friedman was suggesting so, that Trump has actually succeeded in the Middle East in dividing it into uh, Iran versus everybody mm-hmm. else that that that, right. that 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 Jared Kushner has succeeded in essentially splitting I think the Middle East between Sunni and Shia Iran versus the uh, the Saudi Arabia and uh, the UAE and Bahrain and mm-hmm. that you now have a potential uh, of that, that they triangulated. They got they got Benjamin Netanyahu going to Saudi Arabia to meet with the Crown Prince supposedly last week. You have Bahrain. You have the UAE. They're all uh, either acknowledging Israel or admitting mm-hmm. that that they recognize Israel. Uh, they they if you are. A Zionist, if you are uh, pro-Israel, would you say that Trump has succeeded in uh, figuring out a way to marginalize the Palestinians and Iran and make the Israelis feel safer? Well, I I definitely would have to say that if you're uh, pro-right wing, you know, uh, Israeli in the sense that you think that there really needs to be military hegemony rather than some kind of peace um, or finding a way to coexist with the Palestinians. If your goal is to reduce the Palestinian question to something that really doesn't uh, command much attention, but create the political and economic arrangements in the Middle East that allow for commerce and business and and, and so on to take place, 
that yes, this has definitely advanced that to some extent by dividing this and exploiting the tensions that were created, I think, principally by the U.S. invasion and occupation of Iraq of exacerbating the Shia-Sunni kind of sectarian division. Are the Palestinians, I'm always confused by this, are the Palestinians Sunni? They are prince. They are Sunni. Yeah, they are Sunni. They get rolled into it because Iran uh, maintains a very anti-Israel, uh, you know, anti-imperialist sort of foreign policy ever since the Islamic Republic. You know, where um, Ayatollah Khomeini, for example, you know, declared that Israel was the little Satan and the great Satan was the United States. Right. So, so there was this kind of. So when Hezbollah, which is Shia, and they're supported by Iran, when they're firing missiles into Israel, they supposedly, if you're looking at this from 30,000 feet in the air, one would think maybe that Hezbollah doesn't care about the Sunni Palestinians. Well, see, that's why this doesn't really make sense to organize it around the sectarian divisions uh, among uh, um, in, in Islam. That is something that I think at different times in history has mattered more or less. And this is a period where it's being used to foment and foster the division that is more fundamentally about geostrategic alignments, control of oil and, you know, rivalries within the within the Middle East of conservative regimes like the, um, you know, Gulf oil states versus somewhat more radical populist anti-imperialist type regimes, Uh, at least, you know, they're also very hierarchical and we're not talking about democracies in either of these cases. Right. In terms of how they orient themselves geopolitically is anti-West. And also basically these Arab monarchies in the Gulf are very concerned about the dominance of Iran because Iran is a natural natural regional sort of superpower um, of the region with a large population. You know, it has a lot of oil resources as well. And it has a 3,000 year history of statecraft and, you know, diplomacy and geostrategic sense of its of itself ever since, you know, Cyrus the Great, right? We, we're talking about um, a civilizational memory here of being the dominant, uh, having a dominant role. And, and, you know, these Gulf monarchies are, you know, two, three generations away from being Bedouin in the desert, you know, so they don't have the same kind of sense of um, uh, security about their states. Um, these are recent constructions out of the colonial uh, period, post-World War II, mostly. Some of them, of course, post-World War One. if you remember the great Arab revolt in, you know, um, in uh, Lawrence of Arabia, um, you know, there were there were attempts to establish something of an independent state at that time after World War One. But so that's the real rivalry. That's the real problem for these other monarchies. So they need to enlist U.S. support uh, in order to feel secure militarily, politically um, in their rivalry to uh, be independent of Iran's kind of predominating influence in the region. So that's more important to, to my analysis than whether they're Sunni or Shia, though that makes some natural affiliations and there are sentiments, empathy and so on that puts Hezbollah, for example, in alliance with Iran. Uh, But Hezbollah is an Arab Shi'i 
you know, community and, and movement. And they're in the Levant and they're supportive of, um, you know, Palestinian, uh, you know, Palestinian rights uh, right. and have solidarity with them, too. We have to wrap it up. Uh, but next time I want to talk to you about Zoom censoring any Palestinian. Yeah, I happen to know. Uh, I happen. I, I have met Leila Khalid at a conference, in fact, actually. Um, and the organizer of that conference is a good Would friend. Would she do my show and we'll see if I get censored? Oh, that's interesting. I'll see if I can get you into trouble. Because <laughs> uh, we do show. this show via Zoom and I would love to have her on the show uh, and see if they shut shut us down. That would be interesting. Well, my, my friend, Dr. Rabab Abdulhadi, who teaches at San Francisco State University, is the one who organized that Zoom session. And in fact, actually, Layla, I met Leila Khalid in Amman at this World uh, Congress of Middle Eastern Studies, a big academic um, uh, meeting where we give papers. And I was talking about Malcolm X and Bandung um, and its effect on the Middle East. Uh, and um, I was I was actually with Rabab Abdulhadi, um, and she's the one who introduced me because Leila Khalid came to our panel because she was interested. Well, let's, know, to, let's talk. I want to see if Zoom yeah, we will. Uh, shuts me down. Uh, Professor Adnan Hussein is the chairman of the religion department over at Queen's University in Kingston, Ontario. He has two podcasts, the Mudgeless Podcast and Guerrilla History with our very own Henry Huckamacki. I look forward to talking with you. I'll email you tomorrow. And uh, how do people follow you on Twitter? Um, they can uh, follow me on Twitter uh, at Adnan A. Hussein, one S, A-I-N. Thank you. I could have, there's so many to be continued. It's an honor to have you. I'm just trying to, uh, you know, uh, have a simpler Twitter handle with Harvey JK's advice. And so yes. I'm following his same uh, model. It's good right. to see him. Thank you. And now the only reason Professor Harvey JK is here. Harvey JK, he's got a lot to say. About Thomas Paine and FDR. St. Peter, don't you call me, cause I can't go. Harvey JK is on the show today. Harvey JK. JK wants you to be radical. He ain't dogmatical, won't take a sabbatical. St. Peter, don't you call me, cause I can't go. Harvey JK is on the show today. Harvey JK.
That is uh, Professor Mike Steinel. Do you want to stick around now, Professor K? You don't mind. Sure, I. Um, but you know, I. I if could, only to hear that song played again as I leave. It's amazing. <laughs> it, that that so, for some reason I don't know. It's because I love you. That <laughs> song, I'm constantly humming throughout the day. I don't know. It's just it's very catchy. I, I, I can't tell you how, even now. I'm I'm every time I hear it, I feel so honored by Mike. Whether which night does does he come on? One of the he's going to be here tonight. Actually, he is. What to, how late is it? He's going to be debating. We're going to Ian McEnany is coming on a little later on, and we're going to try to debate uh, Steely Dan. <laughs> okay, Ian Li, Liam insists that yeah, yeah, rock, yeah. How was your Thanksgiving? It was good. I mean, it was just you know it was quiet. We it, missed the you. Really the food was really good, and in fact. I, I do want to apologize because you wouldn't know that I have reason to apologize, I don't think. But I really had thought about coming on at the end because I, I was going to say hello to you and Dave Cyrus. Mm-hmm. That was Thursday evening, right? Yes. Yeah. and I But we got involved in a movie. So I. I what movie? Now yeah, I knew you were going to ask that. Was it another Laurie Laughlin film? <laughs> no, 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 no. It was probably some fantasy thing. I, I can't recall. So, so let me ask you, did you get my my email with all the stories? Because I, I have a new thing that I'm trying. No, I don't think <laughs> I did. <laughs> I all right. Before we talk about the near attainment. Oh, sorry. The stories. The, it's, you said stories, and I thought we had some good fiction going. No, you mean the articles you were looking at today. Yeah, oh, you did get it. Oh, I saw that because did you get mine? Yeah, I put it on the list. That's why it was. I saw that because that's the that the article that was in the New York Times regarding Biden's economic choices. Yes, his nominees. That was the first story on the reading list. I didn't get to. I I I don't remember to what extent I looked at the others because that one has been on my mind all day. Okay, we'll talk about that in a second. I just want to vent. Give me fifteen seconds to vent, and I see you can vent. You can take your time because and Priscilla has her hand raised. I have been using this lockdown to, you know, try new technologies. Yeah. And I found a really, what I'm, I have a, a reading list that I prepare for myself. And I thought, wouldn't it be great if I could drag and drop all these stories into an email program and then send them to my guests so they can read them and talk about it. And yeah. then I also sent it to the people in the Zoom room. I'm sure, I'd be curious if they found that to be, Annoying, or they enjoyed getting my reading list for this show. So I'll ask you later on. Uh, but I, yeah, I kind of like to see if they're saying anything. Yeah, what? it's a, it's a, it's kind of nice. It's just a list of What's twenty. This, what is the technology? What what do you mean? Uh, it's a new email program that oh. uh, and uh-huh. uh, but it's a drag and drops. If I read something, I can just pull it into the body of the text. Oh, and, anyway, yeah. so. Let's talk about Neera Tandon and you You and Dr. Harriet Fraud are both more optimistic about Joe Biden's administration than I am. And oh, I wait, keep- just, hold on, hold on. This is interesting that you've just said. So there are, there's a group of anarchists on, uh, on Twitter. I, I, great people, okay. And um, all along, you know, they kept telling me there was no distinction between fascism and neoliberalism, which bullshit. Okay. But at no point, at no point 
to use the word Biden and optimism, they don't go together. Okay. I mean, don't forget, I, I made my decision based on despicable, okay, was worse than deplorable. So I may, I, it may well be that I had hoped that Bernie might well have a greater influence on Biden than it may well be the case is going to turn out. But optimism about Biden, I think I, I, I rarely use the word optimism. Okay, I, I, oh. I, hang on okay. for one oh, second. Hope. Okay. Because I, yeah. I like to make order out of chaos on this show. Yeah. And you said something that Dr. Fraud said about an hour ago that I want to cement in our consciousness okay. because yeah. my sister is a Bernie bro, hates Joe Biden, and she said that uh, there's a Professor Mike Steinel joining us. Hello, <laughs> Professor Mike Steinel. You're going to be on a little late. We were singing your. Pr- you are the best. You are yeah. just. I mean, yeah, sure. The, some of those solos on the Harvey J.K. Love theme, I giggle when I hear something that I just giggle every time I hear it. It's just, the flourishes are just. Anyway, uh, go back to reading the, the New York Times. I'm in the middle of uh, solidifying. What are you sure the New York Times is there with a smile on the face? Yes, <laughs> Professor Mike Steinel. What a gift. Question. Oh, that's not oh. working. Oh. listening over here. Um, I have a question about an article in here, and I would be curious when you have time, I'll, you can come back to me and I'll. Yes, absolutely. Is that, is that from Sunday? Yes. Yeah. I haven't seen a hard copy in the New York Times in a long time, cause, and I can't. And I can't, It's really hard for me to read the Times online. I mean, I can everybody do it, but... took the holiday off. No Bruni, no David Brooks, ah, no that other guy, Friedman. No, we had Friedman. No Friedman. Fried- and Marine Dowd. Marine, Marine Dowd. Her brother wrote it. Her. She let her brother put a pro-Trump letter instead of her article. For a minute there, anyway. I thought I was reading their editorial page. <laughs> anyway, I no, just... You know, I, by the way, not their editorial page. They're articles these days. I know, I know. Our editorials. All right, let me, let me get a hold uh, of this for a second. Okay, so, thank you. Uh, I'm leaving. Okay. Uh, so my sister said, you know, when she listened to Dr. Fraud, that Dr. Fraud gave her permission to vote unapologetically for Joe Biden because... She was listening about two weeks ago, and Dr. Fraud explained the differences between neoliberalism and fascism. And I think a lot of people like me have been caught up in uh, our hatred for the Clintons and the Obamas, as you just pointed out. We, we were blinded. We, we can't see that there is, in fact, a difference between Biden and Trump. And uh, and there's a difference between neoliberalism and fascism. What is the difference between neoliberalism and fascism? This is important. What is the difference? Well, fascism is a is a is a form of totalitarian, at the least authoritarian politics. And if we and if if indeed the fascist aspirant Donald Trump and the Republicans were to have their way, then you would for a start you would see a. a, a even more aggressive suppression of voting rights, the rights of women to control their own bodies, and basically the whole, you would see a national right to work law. 
now. I mean, that, that, that's for a start, for starters. Okay, you compare that to neoliberalism. Neoliberalism is just literally a, a, a political, a, 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 an array of policies to maximize the capacity of business to, for lack of a better word, you know, rake up all the more profits and income. Okay, neoliberalism is, is literally just a, it's, it's, it's a, you know, it's a suppression of, of, a, of a hell of a lot of uh, working class aspirations, and it's a transfer of, of wealth to, uh, to, to a set of elites. But neoliberalism is happy, is happy to, to make what it can of, of, you know, for lack of a better word, sort of cultural freedoms that, you know, I mean, they are. Well, it uses I mean, cultural freedoms. As, yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, right. I'm not I'm not saying they cultivate cultural freedoms, but, you know, I mean. So it's still you know, better than. Neoliberals didn't go. Neoliberals deferred to. Sorry, let, let me let me back off. Let me put it this way. Carter, Clinton, Obama are neoliberal politicians. OK, they've had no trouble imagining the decline and and, you know, literally a retreat from the greatest generation's legacy. Fascism is what the greatest generation fought against. Okay, that's a, it's a different. We're talking. I mean, it's utterly different. And by the way, I get into this this argument with these anarchists all the time, and, I, and I'm not going to, you know, you've heard me talk about this before. I mean, fascism is 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 authoritarianism. Look, if if fascism came to prevail, then then either they would continue to allow this kind of fun on YouTube that we all pursue. But if indeed it became of any consequence politically, it, they crush it. That's that's what fascism does. Okay. Okay. And anarchists. Neoliberalism, neoliberalism would just figure out a way to charge us to do it. Right. And okay. anarchists. Uh, uh, Noam Chomsky is, is is an anarchist, a syndical anarchist. Correct? Is that? Yeah. Yeah. Although I think far less so probably these days as he matures. But yeah, I mean, he's gone through that. He, right, he's an anarchist. Okay, Dr. Harrod Fraud earlier was pretty happy about Heather Bushy being named uh, I, to, I think, the Council of Economic Advisors under yeah. under Biden. I don't think that's approved by the Senate. I think that pretty right. much uh, she's just there. What does that mean when you have Heather Bushy and Jared Bernstein uh, Neera Tandon. Let, let's start with Neera Tandon. Uh, <laughs> as a Neera Tandon is the queen of the neoliberal people of yeah. the folks. Okay. Yeah. I mean, Neera. Neera well, Hillary Clinton might well be, but but Neera, Neera Tandon headed up the Center for American Progress. Probably still does, for all I know. And they were decidedly anti. They were they were hostile to Bernie. But they were a union shop. Good for them. They went union. Good for them. Good for them. Think progress but they, did. But but these were the folks headed by by Neera Tandon who were prepared, as was for many decades and may well still be. I hope not prepared to cut into Social Security to so-called entitlements. Okay. Right. So it's interesting that near. First, let's start with Neera Tandon. That's an interesting one. The Republicans have already said, at least leading Republicans have already said, there's no way she'll make it through. Which, by the way, <laughs> that just shows you once again how stupid they are. 
Okay. That's how stupid they are. Just as they were so stupid as to, as to fail to pick up on Obama when he made an offer of putting everything on the table. Because mm-hmm. that's what Neera Tandon was about. Mm-hmm. Okay. The irony, next irony is, if, the, if, if Biden's Democrats actually win in Georgia, then Bernie becomes quite likely the chair of the budget committee, which is the committee that decides whether or not Neera Tandon becomes the head of OMB. If that's the case, then the question becomes, does Bernie overlook the, the knives that they were prepared to stick in his back and say, you know, it's Biden's administration, not mine? Or does he say or does he call Joe? Come on, Joe, don't be ridiculous. <laughs> you know, right. And I, I can't I don't know Bernie personally. My fear is that he doesn't know how to he doesn't know how to say no when it comes to Joe. So. Uh, Okay, so that's a, a big pick. Aaron Bernstein is not is not a neoliberal. But that, now this is for the Council of Economic of uh, Council advisors, of Economic Advisors. Right. This is not that powerful an arm of the executive branch, is it? I mean, it's, no, it's not. It's not powerful. It's influential. Right. Once upon a time, by the way, just for the historical record, in in nineteen forty five when full employment was truly on the agenda and there were and in fact there was a the idea was to have a full employment bill okay this was a key thing that came out of the economic bill of rights idea it was going to be the case that full employment was the was top of the agenda for the committee the council of economic advisors or at least their counterpart their, their origins so that for years the idea was the council of economic advisors task was supposed to be making sure an administration pursued the full employment goal. That's right. clearly not the case. So yeah. Jared Bo- uh, Bernstein and Bush- Bushy, uh, what is their position on paid family leave, raising the, the minimum wage? I, I don't know the details of every one of those, but I would assume that they would generally lean in favor of those kinds of things. Right. Yeah. And the fe- federal government contracting. I mean, there's a lot of power that the federal that the executive branch has. In yes, term- a lot of power and a lot of things he can do by way of by way of executive orders. As we know, uh, there's a loophole in, in this in that what would have otherwise be called what the student loan uh, legislation which enables the president literally to forgive that kind of debt. That would be a, a remarkable thing. The, 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 what's not very, what's not very promising, is imagine that it's Schumer who's called for a fifty thousand dollar, you know, absolution, if you like, and Biden started made some reference to ten thousand as a you know a year kind of thing. And to think that Schumer is the the voice of at least moderate progressivism is a little disconcerting among the Democrats. Right. I mean, Bernie has a totally different agenda. And I got that email that I mentioned, I think, last week, the same email where he's really got this legislative agenda. What 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 sops have we seen for Bernie? What what have they thrown the left? What has Biden offered Bernie? You know, it's a, it's a look. I mean, I, I, I don't know what it is, frankly. Jared Bernstein has long been Biden's 
economic advisor, one of his economic advisors. As vice president, he was one of his economic advisors. I don't know to what extent any of the other folks are in any way aligned with what would have been the Bernie Sanders social democratic, or if, as Bernie would prefer to call it, social, social, sorry, democratic socialist agenda. I don't know of any SOPs that they've thrown, actually. Now, there are still people in the media who think that Bernie and Warren are candidates for labor and attorney general. I think that's, I think that's fantasy. And, I, and as I think I've said before, I don't want Bernie in the cabinet. Okay. There are those who say, well, Bernie in the cabinet will be able to have a voice in cabinet meetings. Well, I'd rather have Bernie have a voice at the, at the head of what has been a movement that he's helped to cultivate. I'd rather have him have a voice in the Senate to keep the Democrats going and have him chair of the budget committee. Right. right. That's the kind of thing. If the Democrats win both elections in Georgia, Bernie would be very powerful in the Senate. You're going to need Yes, it. he would. That's right. That's right. Exactly. And I think during the can during the actual presidential campaign when he was already on the sidelines as a candidate, he spoke um, in the media of chairing a committee that would be very important to healthcare policy. And I can tell you that I was really ecstatic at one point because I've been talking about, well, if the Democrats don't want to go all out for Medicare for all, which obviously the leadership won't, they might at least try the, the wedge of saying, how about Medicare for all kids, you know, universal health care for kids. And I could have sworn I heard Bernie say to somebody in the media, well, we ought to at least start with, you know, Medicare for everyone under the age of 18, something like that. So I don't want Bernie out of the Senate. Absolutely not. Is it it's funny? I do, a, I do a radio show every week with a fellow out of the Boston area, Jeff Santos. He's very keen on seeing Bernie go into the cabinet. And, and he and I, this is something we argue about vehemently. Right. Is it foolish to think that Biden is going to surprise us? Because you and I would talk after all the debates and we were yeah. thunderstruck that he didn't even bring up Medicare for children you know, right. so it, it is a fool's errand to imagine the following scenario, which I've played with and I've heard other people say that, you know, he's just Biden is just laying low. He's biding his time, biding his time. <laughs> let the, let let it sink in that Trump is going away. And then once he's in the White House, uh, you know, he'll unleash the, the, the liberal that's that supposedly was that that's never going to happen right well it should, well can, let me let me play off of that because I, I was reading people were sending me the new york times article today the one we were referred to yeah. earlier i want to i don't want to refer to the personnel named i want to refer to the new york times writer or writers who really were writing an editorial in an article in a supposedly a news article so you may recall they said they ch that Biden chose a team that is stocked with champions of organized labor and marginalized workers. And my, my head spun. I said, wow, I didn't see that, you know? Yeah. And then how about this? Listen to this. In a sign that Mr. Biden plans to focus on spreading economic wealth, his transition team puts issues of equality and worker empowerment at the forefront. Okay. And then, so the New York Times is fantasizing 
for the left on that, because listen to what they actually said in their news release. This is the Biden team's news release, quote, an economy that gives every single person across America a fair shot and an equal chance to get ahead. I swear, by the way, I, I don't mean I'd swear, but I bet if you go back and look at the 1952 platform that Eisenhower ran on, it probably sounded something like that. You right. know, I mean, that's the bet. OK, then how about this one? I mean, so I, as I said to people, you want to spread economic wealth, you tax the rich. You make public higher ed free, you enact Medicare for all, you guarantee jobs at a living wage, and you guarantee collective bargaining rights. And by the way, there's nothing in what I just said, which is actually radical, other than the fact that it has been so many decades since the Democrats started acting like FDR Democrats, that it sounds radical to say it. So the New York Times was, the New York Times was writing, an art, offered an article that probably should have been the article that would have framed Bernie Sanders mm -hmm. transition team. If you know what I'm saying? Yes. I mean, it was hilarious to me to see that New York times article. We have two fake news, you know? Yeah. We have two people with their hands raised. Let's go to Texas. Tom, uh, Tom Weber. Yes, sir. How are you doing? Good, there, good. Both? What is on your mind? So I had a uh, question for you. I wondered if you might clarify for us uh, by kind of drawing a verbal uh, Venn diagram of the differences between uh, neoliberalism and fascism. Uh, I would contend that there is some overlap, but the way in which you were presenting it, it seems to me that uh, you were highlighting stark differences, which I'm not going to argue exist, but I think that there is some overlap that shouldn't be neglected. So I'd like to hear your comment on that. Well, I would assume that neoliberalism is different from fascism is in that I don't think fascists promote freedom or hide behind the cover of freedom, especially when it comes to the free market. I think that there is and Professor K would know more about this than I, but it seems to me that the commanding heights of the economy under a neoliberal regime are a little more open and a little less serving of one party. Under fascism, it is uh, one party rule du jour. And in neoliberal, it's uh, pro forma uh, one party rule. In other words, they in a, in a in a neoliberal regime, they they give us the illusion of choice and freedom and other parties, even though they're all answering to. Well, I think that you're making my point in as much as you are introducing a number of qualifiers. There are you not, David? In the uh, and I, I would I would rephrase a little bit of what you said in that I think in neoliberalism, it's not even so much protecting a party as you're protecting class. You're protecting the wealthy. And, uh, you know, uh, more. Well, but the, but there's a more porous. You're celebrating the free market, the animal spirits of everybody and. 
you're dealing with more truth, I believe. More, not, I'm not defending neoliberalism, but I, I think when you're talking about economic liberalization, you're saying mm-hmm. less government, more marketplace. And mm-hmm. I don't agree with that, but I, I'm saying uh, a, a fascist regime is kind of when the government and the corporate powers become one uh, and government is very strong under a, a neoliberal regime, you have a marketplace, supposedly. I'm not defending neoliberalism. I'm just saying. No, but don't keep saying it's supposedly. But the, I think there's where the, the devil is right there. I think that that's the, that's the charade of neoliberalism. But I think that there is uh, such a connection between the the state power and that of neoliberalism that, that right. I think we kind of we're, we're we're not making that clear. But I'd I'd really like Professor Harvey to address this in terms of this kind of verbal uh, Venn diagram. Although maybe perhaps you or he would want to say that there's no connection whatsoever. I think that there is. Uh, and part of it, I think, uh, comes down in both effects and in terms of uh, conception of power. But that's my view. Well, but the effects, but, I mean, you can, um, have, you can have the same effects from two different economic or political systems. Right. That's why you would do a Venn diagram. Look, for a st- look if it, historically, here's the deal. Okay. Neoliberalism, as it, in its origins in the 70s, Declare, there's no question. Declared war on de- declared war on a host of of social social groups in America, and most fundamentally, pretty much declared a kind of de- declared a kind of class war on um, on labor unions and working people. And here's the thing to remember: so in the early 1970s, there was a profit squeeze. Okay, a profit squeeze in caused by the fact that Germany and Japan were now once again industrial powers and were basically a challenge to American capital. And American cap- capitalists really were in, seemed to be incapable of responding creatively and basically decided that they were going to make sure that they reduced the costs of, of, reduced the costs of capital, basically, in producing goods and services. So the idea was to bust unions, to bring an end to uh, high cost benefits that workers in organized industries had, um, to deregulate uh, to deregulate the businesses and lower taxes on business and the rich, and and they declared war. Okay, and so for forty five years we've seen, for lack of a better term, class war, on working people. So that since the early 1970s, basically the working class as a collective entity in the economy has not seen a real rise in its wages, period. Fascism is a unitary state. Those who would pursue fascism basically have no place for individualism, no place for the fundamentals of the Bill of Rights. The... um, The Bill of Rights were... The Bill of... The Bill of Rights are... Are... What's the word? Um translatable, contestable, and all of that kind of stuff. 
they were just literate fascists would just have no bill of rights period it's done okay and if you can't tell the difference between authoritarianism and neoliberalism and and don't get i'm not talking about small a authoritarianism i'm talking about capital a authoritarianism you can't tell the difference no venn diagram and i think i knew that venn diagram when i lived in new york by the way you know him he, he lived up uptown right <laughs> He lived uptown and downtown. Parts of him lived. You got it. He lived so, in parts of it. I mean, so, so the difference is, the difference is a word we haven't used in many, many years, but the difference would be dictatorship. Now, the contemporary Republican Party has become a party that is essentially white, filled with white supremacists, not unlike the Democratic Party was for generations in the South. And, and Trump was literally the Republican Party on steroids. So what we ended up with was a, a regime, uh, the, Trump, the Trump years, where if, if indeed, if indeed if we had four more years, we would see a decided pursuit of the crushing of the last elements, uh, which, by the way, goes along indeed with the neoliberal agenda. But there was an authoritarian streak inside of Trump, which we've all seen. And the best example is his inability now to, I mean, Given the choice, if these Republican state legislatures had had their way, and this was not a neo neoliberal initiative, this was a fascist initiative, but if Trump and the, and had had his way, and those state like Wisconsin legislators had decided, they would have literally thrown out the election. Right. That no fashion. and no remorse. Not a tear shed for democracy. Not at all. Right. Not at all. It's probably crying now that they didn't have the audacity to do right. it. Right. 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 So, again, my interest is not in saying that there's some kind of uh, false equivalency between the two. I think that's ridiculous. I'm just interested in the question of whether or not there is some overlap in terms of some both effect and in terms of uh, concept power. Now, with, I would argue that Trump is somehow a hybrid between fascism and neoliberalism, because in many ways, much of his M.O. is classic uh, neoliberalism in terms of his pursuit of deregulation. And, uh, you know, so in many ways that made him the Republican wet dream, but also the wet dream of closet, you know, uh, uh, Neoliberals within the the, the uh, I shouldn't say closet, but uh, people who do not like to have somebody be so brazen in their celebration of deregulation and some of the things. That he's yeah, done. I, I, I'm gonna I, let's have this. Well, anyway, that's just my thought. Yeah, I I, I I don't want to get the last word here, but I will say that. Trump is an outlier. He he uses whatever ideology he can to loot yep. what he sees in front of him. I mean, he would be a, a communist if it would put money <laughs> right. in his pocket. Right. He's a gangster. He's a mobster. He the only core ideology is how do I transfer money from your account into mine? And he surrounded himself with basically grifters. Except for maybe Steve Bannon. I think Steve Bannon, <laughs> I think he believes uh, in ethno-nationalism. I think Steve Bannon yeah. believes that crap. But yeah. can, the, I ask a, can I ask Tom a question? Absolutely. 
I thought you were in Wisconsin with me. What's this Texas Tom Weber? <laughs> That's your big question. I, I think we've covered this before. I grew up in Texas. And Got it. Texas follows okay. me everywhere. Got it. Thank you. Right. Yeah. Okay. I'm not really be... proud of being a Texan, except uh, when it serves me. We're, we're, we're running a little behind schedule. Okay. Anyway, thank you very thank much. Thank you. And Pastor Jonathan Conrad is up next. So I want to hear talk, Texas Tom Weber weigh in there. Last question. Let's go to Mexico, where the brilliant Rodrigo is standing by. He Rodrigo. He, this man is brilliant. You, you should read his stuff on this. We have a Discord server, Professor K. As I've heard. And once you once you learn what Discord is, it's fantastic. But yeah, you showed I, me I, Zoom. I, right. I, but I, I literally am resisting just I'm resisting Discord just as I resist FaceTime. But you resisted. You were the one who got me into Zoom and look at the mess you created. Go ahead, Rodrigo. You look better I, than ever, David. <laughs> I think we could maybe make a point that fascism is not so ideological either because studying the history of how the fascists and the Nazis came into power, there were rich industrialist people who blocked uh, Mussolini and Hitler from obscurity and backed them, much like uh, this guy, Sheldon Adelson, and the Mercer family. Sheldon Adelson and the Mer Mercer family, yeah. They kept donating millions to Trump even after all the regular Republicans started distancing themselves from him. So... You could maybe say that the reason the fascists and the Nazis were turned out the way they were was because rich people decided, oh, this fool is crazy, but people like him, so we're going to prop them up. And as long as they don't mess with us, they can do whatever they want. I think... We can make that argument that the ideas. The I, ideas that was. I apologize to. for that. I, I hit the wrong button. I was not. I now, let, me, let me respond to that, to that, to that argument because I'm very familiar with that argument, and I, and I think that's true about about uh, Nazism and, fa and fascism. That there were many an industrialist who favored just that kind of authoritarian regime because basically they were so severely threatened by the, the communists and socialists in Central Europe. The difference is that, in fact, um, and, and I mean, Biden has probably had probably as many billionaires backing it, probably more billionaires backing him than Donald Trump, as a matter of fact. Um, by the way, the, the Koch brothers and their sort had no desire to see Donald Trump win the presidency. Uh, Scott Walker was the, the favorite of the of the Walker. So I think the, the billionaire class in America is a very is very divided in this. Because as, as it's always been the case with wealthy people in America, quite often they donated to both parties in the past. What's surprising is these days, the, the, most, the wealthiest personalities versus the standard corporate executives, generally speaking, seem to align themselves with particular, 
with particular candidates, which because, you know, they're all in competition for which part of the country will get the benefits the most. Um, but I, I don't disagree with your argument about the rich favoring um, the, the politics that, that would serve their interests the most. But it's also the case that, you know, George Soros is a billionaire, or at least I believe he's a billionaire. And he, he gave his, gives his money to folks on the left. So um, I'm just not, I don't think we're at the point where we could say that Donald Trump is backed by the billionaire class. I just don't think it's the case at all. I think we have to allow a certain autonomy to real politics. And Southern white supremacists have always been aligned with the richest people in the South. And, and in fact, uh, have effectively used class and race to uh, to maintain that 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 power, not simply not simply money. Right. I'm not arguing that there was a meeting of the billionaires and they decided to back the Nazis. I'm arguing that this is what happens under capitalism. And oh, for example, oh. the QAnon people. The Republicans thought, oh, these are like the Tea Party people. Let's use them. And now they're running behind them. The tail is wagging the dog again with the Republicans. And this is what happens under capitalism. You yeah, I'm, glad you mention, yeah, I'm glad you mentioned the Tea Party because, in fact, I, I don't buy the fact that it was specifically launched by the by the, by a billionaire class, but it was quickly the case that they they glommed onto it and promoted it beyond uh, the confines of a of a small coterie of people. And didn't you don't you that. don't believe that Americans for Prosperity that the Koch brothers created the Tea Party that it was astroturf? I, no, I'm not convinced that it became as popular as it did merely because billionaires took it over. I think there was already this look. I mean, there was already this dynamic. That was hot. I mean, it's funny to think that there was this dynamic against the likes of the neoliberals. Uh, you know, that's the funny part. Keep well, in mind, we're talking about the Obama presidency. Before right. that, we're talking about the Clinton presidency. No, I mean, I, movements don't look. Was the term movement, neoliberal bandied look, about? Back in the 1930s, when the the billionaires went, well, then multimillionaires, I don't know what, if the term billionaire existed even. When they went after Roosevelt, they spent vast sums of money trying to generate a popular movement, and they failed. They failed in, in creating a grassroots movement. The point is that they, there was, it was pretty clear that there was already this, go back to the Gingrich Revolution, there was already this fervor among folks on the right that was driven by, if you like, white middle and upper middle class folks who really wanted their taxes lowered. And, mm -hmm. you know, the wealthy took advantage of that. I mean, it's... Was neoliberal, I'm not an academic, so yeah. neoliberal entered my lexicon, I don't know, five, six years ago? No, it goes back to the 70s. It became, it, it arose as a well, terminal. Well, yeah, but no, it goes all the way back to, I think it goes back to Hayek and like the fifth, even before. No, no, but they, but they weren't called neoliberals. Okay, but were we talking about neoliberalism the way we do now? Yeah, back in the 70s, yeah. Oh, we were? Into the 80s? Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Harvey J.K., I have some, we have to wrap it up. I have some sad news. Uh, White House Cora and a virus advisor, Scott Atlas, is resigning. I know you're a big 
here in Wisconsin. And uh, he is. Uh, Can I ask you, David, this guy, Scott Atlas, is he related to that guy they back in the 50s in the co- comic books? They always used to advertise mm-hmm. Mr. Atlas. Charles Atlas. Charles Atlas. Thank yes. you. Is this like his, uh, Scott Atlas is holding. Somebody should. I bet there is a cartoon already made of him ho- holding up the, the right? COVID-19 virus like Atlas holding up the globe. Somebody must have Somebody made that cartoon. Somebody listening right now, do that for next time. Create Invisible that. Ninja, are you there? Anyone? Somebody must have made that cartoon of Scott Atlas holding up the COVID-19 like it's the globe. It has to be. Okay. Professor Harvey J.K. has two books that, not two books, I'm going to mention two books that are great. Stop, stop, stop. Stocking stuffers, stocking stuffers, stocking stuffers. Yeah, that is a good door stoppers, I know, yeah. Uh, FDR and democracy. There was a time when we had a president who not only cared, but explained. FDR and democracy, Professor Harvey J.K. has assembled a collection of speeches given by our president, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, that predate his presidency. They go back I, all the way to his time in the... New York uh, Assembly, right? Senate. 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 And uh, so pick that up and pick up, I think, a a great introduction to Professor Harvey J.K. is Take Hold of Our History. It is a collection of his essays and speeches throughout, I don't know, the past 15 years. 10 years. 10 years. Uh, I'm just going to make a joke about you correcting me. Wow. Sorry, I'm trying. <laughs> Just that would be a funny I'm sketch. Tired. I'm tired. I have to correct you as one of my students. I know it would be funny if you just keep correcting me. Uh, no, wouldn't it be funny? Uh, follow Professor Harvey J.K. on Twitter at Harvey J.K. And we have to have Ms. Shelton on. The new yes. assembly woman in Wisconsin. Right. How are they doing? They're doing great. They're doing great. They're doing great, and things are already cooking. Big ideas are okay. being generated. So much to talk about. As always, a, an honor. Thank you so much, Professor Harvey J.K. Well, thank you. Dave. You can't go thank away, you. Harvey J.K. Are you going to play the song in spite of the fact we're behind schedule? We're never behind. Everybody, nobody minds waiting for this song. Hit it, <laughs> Professor Mike Steinel. Harvey J.K., he's got a lot to say About Thomas Paine and FDR St. Peter, don't you call me, cause I can't go Harvey J.K. is on the show today Harvey J.K., J.K. wants you to be radical. He ain't dogmatical. 
won't take a sabbatical St. Peter, don't you call me Cause I can't go Harvey J.K. is on the show today Harvey J.K. Uh, that is Professor Mike Steinell. He's a jazz trumpeter, a composer, educator. He taught jazz studies at uh, University of North Texas since 1987. And he's got two books out, Essential Elements for Jazz Ensemble and Building a Jazz Vocabulary. His latest CD is Song and Dance featuring Rosanna Eckert. And it's the Mike Steinell Quintet Song and Dance. You can order it by going to MikeSteinell.com or you can go to Patreon and listen to it the way I do. Maybe we can talk him into putting out a collection of his... I mean, I, I haven't even touched his songs today. Let's, let, uh, there's so much, so much great stuff that he's done just about Donald Trump. Uh, and Jeff Bezos, and he's going to be on a little later on to debate. We're going to ambush Liam McEnany. We're going to talk Steely Dan. But let us now go to Wilmington, North Carolina, where our backup pastor, Jonathan Conrad, is standing by. He is the pastor at St. Paul's Evangelical Lutheran Church in Wilmington, North Carolina. Please welcome... Pastor Jonathan Conrad. Welcome, Pastor. Well, thank you, David. It's a pleasure to be on with you tonight. Thank you. How are you doing? Good. I, I should introduce you to some of our new listeners. Pastor Conrad is our backup pastor. When the Reverend Barry W. Lynn can't make it, we call in our relief pastor, Pastor Jonathan Conrad, who came in fourth, I believe, in David Feldman Presents America's Next Top Pastor. You came in fourth. Not bad. Wasn't bad. I think I actually moved up. I believe I was originally in uh, fifth place, but uh, <laughs> I think uh, I've moved up in the polls, and I appreciate those who have voted me up to be closer to uh Dr. Lynn. Yeah. So it's an honor and a pleasure. Yeah, I would like to pitch that. I'd like to go to Bravo and pitch America's Next 
top David Feldman presents America's Next Top Pastor, where everybody competes to see. The joke was that uh, you panicked in the IC. Oh, it's everyone. We, we've done this bit enough times. <laughs> how are how are things in North Carolina? Tell us how the economy is, how the starvation is, how the health care is, how the COVID is. This is a country in pain, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And we've been dealing with that as as well as we can. I actually had a, uh, a family member come down with COVID and uh, they are feeling better. But tell you what, it really does add gravitas to the situation when it's a loved one right. who is going through it. And it's luckily, like I said, that they're feeling better, but they're not out of the woods. The, the taste and the smell hasn't come back. But uh, to know that they didn't really do anything and it happened. And a lot of it was choices of others and the choice of others who didn't take it seriously enough. Like, Oh, it's just a fever. It's just a cold. And they never got tested. So next thing you know, they passed it to people. Right. So without uh, wearing a mask, without, you know, you know, some, one of my loved ones didn't stay home on Thanksgiving. And I was like, you know, you have to keep your mouth shut if you want to have a relationship with some of your loved ones and not be judgmental. But I was appalled that someone very close to me had no problem taken to the air and visiting people. It's obscene, especially when it's somebody who was raised to know better. But I guess loneliness trumps you'll pardon the expression, there's an informed risk that some Americans feel they are willing to take. There are, you know, weighing loneliness against catching COVID-19. And I I guess that, you know, uh, I understand that. I understand that loneliness for some, to me, it's a blessing. I mean, the fewer people (laughs) in my life. The, the, the more Not calm much of a choice in your case either. Yeah, right? I mean, it, it just happens that way. My, I, I, to be honest with you, my life has. I, I just have to wear a mask every twenty days when I venture outside to uh, get my groceries. I'm joking, but uh, some people do better with loneliness than others. I believe you get Liam McEnany to pick up your groceries, don't you? I do. Yes. Okay. All right. That's, that's what friends do. Yeah. For a price, but that's yes. what friends do, right? Well, friends are the uh, are but, a price. <laughs> but so. But you were you were talking about loneliness, and yeah, it's uh, we've dealt with it in, in the congregation because one of the reasons that people desperately wanted to be back together, let's say in a worship sense, uh, like especially inside the sanctuary, and it went beyond just the. Uh, conservative and liberal like it went to this sense that they wanted to see one another mm-hmm. and to be with their uh, their their family their fa- faith family and so when we started doing outdoor services and then we did very limited indoor uh, you started seeing a change in some people's attitude like they got to see people and uh, it, it made a difference for them. It still doesn't make it easy. I mean, you still have people who are like, you know, 
it's, it's, it, everybody has a choice. Everybody has a choice. And I'm like, well, we, we've had a choice the whole summer and look where the numbers are. So right. it, and then it also it's, it's really a, it's disappointing that many of my Christian brothers and sisters have really pushed aside this whole care for the neighbor. I think that this was one of those moments where Christian Christianity could have taken a major step forward. If they said, even if you said, look, I may not agree with it, but I'm going to show that I do care for my, my neighbor and I'm just going to wear the mask. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I think that they've entangled these ideas of personal freedom over the the care for neighbor. And how did that uh, happen? How does it happen? Well, I think David, it's actually been, been coming around for like the last two generations. I would say, early eighties when certain Christian leaders went from trying to change things from a grassroots level, they decided to go to the top, to the bottom. And so there was this very dangerous open marriage between some groups of Christians like the uh, evangelicals with the conservative party, the, the Republican party. And I mean, over time you see it too, also on the, on the liberal side, uh, but I, to me, it was just I became aware of this marriage that I knew was not going to end pretty just because of the uh, the goals. They were means to an end for power to change. And I think over time you start to hear things and it just becomes part of your system. Like back in the early 80s, it was uh, you know, blame the liberals. Uh, hate the gays or blame the gays for just about everything. And, uh, and then you started hearing more about, well, how public education doesn't preach about God or teach God. And so over time, you just have a lot of this new belief system come in. And so then when you have a pandemic and you have people in government telling you, or some people in government saying, look, we need to do this for the best to get, to get through this quickly, we need to do this. But you had people who were just been taught a different way when it came to their belief system. So where, where I you, think Ray? it's just been two generations. Yeah, where are you from? I'm from North Carolina. You're from North Carolina. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm just thinking out loud here. Maybe nothing's changed. Maybe we're just seeing who all 350 million Americans are. Nothing's changed with the police, but now we have iPhones. So we get to see, oh, African-Americans, they weren't, it's a completely different experience when a black person gets pulled over. Thank you, iPhone. Although some people are saying the police are actually getting worse, but I suspect the police... I know the police have always been this way. There's been a democratization of what we get to see. And I I sense that the religious, there've always been a large swath of atheists and religious people who are idiots, but they have bullhorns now we get to see them seems to me there was a time in america where we only saw 
I don't know. We we didn't they Jerry Falwell and uh Franklin Graham were always around. But they were on backwater radio stations, not uh on Or you mean time. you mean Billy Graham. But uh Franklin and, the uh, right. Uh yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, he was I prominent. I, I, I'm just talking about the the, the crazies. Uh, mm-hmm. That might be unfair to call Billy Graham a crazy, but I, I, I uh, anyway, uh, I'm not going to say anything bad the, about Billy Graham. Well, I, I think that one of the things, uh, and I, I am not a, well, this may come as a shock to you. I'm not as much of a student of history and you can just look at me and kind of guess that. But, uh, like Billy Graham was a true crossover artist, just like if someone's, uh, in a, who's a country singer mm-hmm. makes a big popular hit that's nationwide. I think that Billy Graham was a once in a lifetime performer. And I do think that he believed what he was saying. Whereas now I think a lot more of these Christian uh, rock stars uh, who are supposed pastors. I think some of it's more show than belief. You know, I'm I met Mike Huckabee. Agreed everything that Billy Graham uh, believed in, but I think that that's a major difference is that when he was speaking from the heart, I think those now in the last couple of generations of pastors, especially on TV, I think they're they're serving too many gods. Or the wrong god. Or the wrong gods, yeah. Uh, yeah. With the, the asking for money and, and, and diving into certain uh, political waters and just going head first in. Yeah. So. I think, oh, it's, I, and, I think uh, they've always been with us. Uh, Jesus said yeah. the poor will always be with us. I, I think the uh, ill-informed religious zealots who aren't really religious will always be with us. I think they just have a platform now. They're, it's louder. But they, they were well, always there. Well, I think also, uh, from, from my observation of life and growing up in North Carolina, I think that you know, maybe, maybe it started back in the late 60s when you started to see, let's say, those who were prejudiced and those who were bigots, they, they kind of joined one political party. And they were just always kind of in the corner. And it was kind of like I, I was thinking more like the difference between conservatives and Republicans, like the as I learned more from some some people who are true conservative thinkers, uh, they just kind of underestimated the influence that people had for people who uh, who hated black people or who hated people of different color. And it just kind of festered. And then with the, the birth of talk radio and, and more voices were telling them, you know what, you, you weren't wrong all, the, that, all that time, even though history proved you wrong and, and humanity proved you wrong. You know, right. you weren't really wrong when you thought all those things. And so this started to open up this. Uh, I want to impress you by using the word fissure, but it's probably a better word. I'm probably well, we have plenty of professors who can correct me right. on the show tonight, but it just started opening up this whole. I'm not wrong about anything. And, and that's where you have more voices and you have things that now have, uh, you really do have alternative facts. People will believe what they want confirmation bias. And I think that that's where we actually are fighting a civil war now. And it's just a a civil war of thought with the whole issue with the election. I mean, you're going to have people who 
think Biden won. You're going to have a whole group of people who think that Biden cheated or or Trump was swindled out of it. I'm, I'm saying, yeah. you know, we should just tell the Republicans something like 70 percent of them think Trump won. We should just tell them Trump is president. We should create an alternative news network and just say President Trump today announced. Let them believe that Trump is still president. Texas Tom Weber, you've taught theology to high school students. Right. It's always been there, hasn't it? It's just we don't we're just seeing it. For it's being what? I'm sorry. What's always been there? That the. Uh, the idea that there are these religious religious zealots who are getting it completely wrong and and hijacking the gospel for their own nefarious purposes right, right. that's well, always I made this, I, when you say always it certainly goes back a long time and i've made this point before but i think it bears repeating the history of the uh, what we have seen unfolded in the contemporary evangelical movement, so-called. I say so-called because it's not evangelical according to the roots of what we should mean by evangelical. It's a bastardization of everything that the original evangelical movement stood for. It's inside out. But anyway, it really goes back to the 1930s, there was a uh, movement among uh, some of the top business CEOs, uh, beginning with DuPont, who was looking for a way to uh, counteract uh, the, the rise of progressivism, and especially since it became baked in with FDR in our system. And they found some uh, preachers that they could work with who were open to this. And they actually then uh, found a way to have these preachers develop a whole theology to, to uh, serve as a form of apologetics for capitalism. And uh, it really didn't take root until the uh, mid to late 70s, and then there, there was a uh, kind of a fundamentalist um, pastor, or philosopher, I should say, named Francis Schaeffer, who uh, got together. I've had with, his son on the show. Oh, yeah, yeah. He, yeah, he, he ended up uh, rebelling against his uh, father and then uh, became a progressive Christian and uh, yeah, that's a whole different thing. We don't want to go yeah. there right now. But uh, Francis Schaeffer and uh, uh, Jerry Falwell ended up forming the moral majority. And uh, Francis Schaeffer ended up being the providing the intellectual undergirding to the whole thing. In fact, when I was uh, in the 70s, I think I've told people for uh, a very brief time, and I'm grateful for this, I was actually a fundamentalist. And I'm grateful because it helped me give have an insider view to this, and I have uh, reflected on it endlessly since then to try to understand its connections, what goes on. And then, uh, so the, the main point that I want to bring up is that it's really interesting if you ever go and read through a lot of the literature by these uh, 
not just a prosperity gospel people, because they make it the most obvious, but most of your fundamentalist uh, writers of today have a very intricate theology and what lens through which they approach the Bible to where they, they have, uh, it becomes a handbook for defending capitalism. And it is a very intricate, very intricate system of thought. So, you know, uh, people who think that these people don't think and that they're stupid, I've made this point. They do not understand. This is a hyper form of rationalism and intellectualism, not in the way in which we usually use the term. But if you don't understand that religious fundamentalism is a form of rationalism, then you do not get fundamentalism. Okay. Uh, Frank Schaefer uh, is the son's name. I had him on about two years ago. So if you go to my website, just search for Frank Schaefer. It's an interesting, he grew up with Jerry Falwell Jr. and Franklin Graham, and his father resisted the baubles, as Mm -hmm. I understand it. But thank you, Texas Tom Weber. Oh, thank you for asking. Yeah, I, you're, a you, of, John. you're you're a font of you're you're a font of a font of information. It. Thank you. Uh, before you go, Pastor John, there's a load of hurt right now, and uh, you know I was reading, I think it was in the Times yesterday, about a Christian organization that is buying medical debt. And they can buy it pennies on the dollar, and I don't even see. I don't even understand. So apparently, you don't have health insurance, and you go to a hospital, and you can't pay it, and they send you a bill for fifty thousand dollars, and you don't pay it. Then it's transferred to a collection agency. They buy that debt for a penny. On the dollar, I don't. I can't do the math, but I would assume you owe the hospital fifty thousand dollars, so they buy that debt for five hundred dollars, and then start calling you and harassing you and collecting, trying to collect that, and they try to collect the fifty grand, and then they negotiate with you. So they've only spent five hundred to buy that debt. If they can get a thousand out of you they've made a hundred percent profit and so there are religious organizations that are buying that debt which is nice but it occurs to me you know instead of using that money to buy the debt why not push our government towards medicare for all why are religious organizations buying debt and you know, what is that about? Anyway, I was reading the comments underneath and, and a, a, a woman wrote with a Jewish last name. She says, uh, uh, people should not incur debt. They, they should be able to pay their bills. Uh, and, and it's wrong for a church not to preach personal responsibility. Read the Bible. Jesus was all about personal responsibility and uh, and the last name it had a very similar last name to mine 
because I wrote it. No, it had a very Jewish last name. And I just went, you, fuck, you, you know, and, how, you know. How is your mom? Very good. How very is good. your mom? Yeah, great. <laughs> uh, and there were like 150 comments piling on this idiot. How does somebody get it in their head that Jesus, pre, I mean, Texas Tom just spoke to that. How do you get it in your head that Jesus was all about personal responsibility and uh, taking care of yourself before you took care of others. How does that happen? I think it's the whole amalgamation of ideas at, uh, as uh, Texas Tom. God, I wish my name was Texas Tom. I just, it, it just be. sounds so cool. My, it's just I know. Jonathan. I mean, you know. Yeah. I, anyway. Uh, that's I can another, call you PJ. Uh, PJ Conrad. Pastor well, John. That is my nickname. Uh, PJ? Uh, the P, yeah, PJ. Right. Um, but... Uh, I think that it just, it, it starts like, okay, well, what is the message that we want to go? And it usually is an attack message. And so you're going to build yourself up by bringing other people down. And so you start to have this, uh, we are the uh, good Christians. Uh, we, we, we follow the Bible. We are, we, we admit when we're wrong, we humbly brag, but over time it, it goes from that sense of, like you were saying, you know, G Jesus, it wasn't about personal responsibility. If it was about personal responsibility as a Christian, then Jesus would not have had to come and be crucified. Right. It's like you know, there was a reason that he came. Uh, but I think it just it's it, it's all part of a domino effect that once you start to get away from that message of Jesus and whether you are a Christian or, or just someone who who is interested in, in the ways of Jesus to to see someone who I would say is a, an example of someone who put others before his own interest. It, it just, that that's charity. That's, that's love. That's grace and uh, personal responsibility. It just, it's, it's like a whole package that you get from certain ways of thinking because anything that makes you feel better, but it tears down someone else, be it another Christian or another religion, uh, that's where you see a lot of this happen. Right. And um, it, because, I mean, the, this is where, and I, I want to call out some of my evangelical Lutheran, uh, evangelical brothers and sisters, because they talk about personal responsibility, especially when it comes to very serious subjects like pro-life and pro-choice. And they, they're, they're very pro-life. But in, in some of those situations, if there is a young woman in their church who says, I am pregnant, I want to keep the baby, then they don't help her with that. They're like, well, so, you know, personal responsibility, sorry, can't, not going to help you. And there are too many stories of, uh, of people who've been thrown out of church because of that. And, and rather than getting support from a family of faith, they can say, you know, we're going to help you with that. It, it's just, uh, unfortunately, I think that that's, that's wrong. It's just right. like the other day I saw uh, on the street, I saw some people with uh, their signs of you know, anti-abortion, uh, pro-life, and yet right across the street was a homeless man. Right. And I'm like, if you're pro-life, why don't you spend a, a little bit of time to go over and, and speak and take care of them? Yeah. Now, I would have, but I was on my way to Hooters. So <laughs> I, I had things to do. I have to, when, I have to come down and watch you... Uh deliver a sermon when everything opens up. Pastor Jonathan Conrad 
is the pastor for St. Paul's Evangelical Lutheran Church in Wilmington, North Carolina. How do people contact you? Well, uh, on Twitter, at PJ Conrad. Also, uh, St. Paul's Lutheran in Wilmington, we have a YouTube page, and I have daily devotionals called God's Minutes, uh, and they're pretty quick. Uh, they also help you sleep if you can't sleep. Also, we have started live streaming our services on Sunday at 11. Uh, you can find more information about that on, on the YouTube site, and uh, we also have a pre-tape one. So just if you all need a little bit of good news, uh, hopefully you can check us out. Great. And we'd appreciate your support. Fantastic. Thank you, Pastor Jonathan Conrad. Liam McEnany. Is Liam here? I thought Liam was here. I don't think he's here. Dan Frankenberger in the newsroom. Are you there? Dan Frankenberger in the newsroom. Let's go. Well, I think we're going to we'll take some questions from the audience and, and we'll wrap it up. I don't know what happened to Liam. I saw him here. Maybe he doesn't like being kept waiting. That might have been it. Did you all get the the people in the Zoom room? Did you get the 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 reading list that I sent? And did you find it interesting or did you not read it? Dan, are you there? This is like a Twilight Zone episode. This is like just me asking for people and nobody saying anything. All right. Uh well, we lost. I, I'll be glad to still talk to you. I, yeah. I, well, uh, what, I, I don't know what happened to Liam. Uh, well, oh, he said he, he had some, uh, he had something to do. For, he's <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> uh, That's not hello, Mike Steinel, Professor Mike Steinel. This is like today is it was a good show though, Professor Mike. There you are. So, Professor Mike Steinel wrote the Howie Klein love theme, but he wrote that Howie Klein lives in San Diego instead of Los Angeles and had rewritten the love theme for Howie. And I said, come on the show. And then Howie had to cancel today. And I said, well, why don't you come on and debate Liam about Steely Dan? Because Liam maintains that Steely Dan... Uh, is no good. I thought, well, Professor Mike Steinel, we can ambush Liam about. <laughs> so why why is Liam wrong about uh, Steely Dan? Well, I don't know. He, he, you know, I, was, I wasn't going to approach it as an ambush. I was. I was going to approach it. My sound is horrible. You sound horrible. Do I sound okay? Yeah, you, uh, I don't think you're talking into your microphone. I think we're getting your computer. That's weird. Okay, built-in microphone. Well, while you're doing that, I want to thank everybody who showed up to our benefit for Diabetic Fury Saturday night. That was a lot of fun. There's a highlight of the show on our YouTube channel. Please subscribe to our YouTube channel. Please subscribe to the show wherever you get your podcasts. And please subscribe to my newsletter. Everybody here today in the Zoom room got uh, the reading list for today's show that I think is useful. Did you get the reeling, re reading list, Professor Mike Steinel? I did. Did you and, like uh, it? I read a couple of things. I didn't have time to. I was kind of taking care of some other things as that came in. Right. You get a, David, you sent out a lot of emails. 
I send out a lot of emails. I do. Uh, I apologize, but that's okay. I'm trying to stay connected with everybody, and some people I would assume would would like to get fewer emails. But I'm a one man band here, and I'm spinning a lot of plates with no food on them. So, Steely Dan. You know, I'm not an expert on Steely Dan. I did play those songs in a band. It was, I went through and kind of did a review. You know what's amazing is how prolific they were for about, I think they did five albums between, somebody will know better than I do, between 1972 and 75 or something like that. They were cranking out so much stuff. And um, I think probably... I was going to approach Liam sort of like maybe how a psychoanalyst might do it, you know, like, now, when did you first notice that you had an aversion to Steely Dan? And was there something going on in your in your life during that time? Right. I think it probably just for someone his age. How old's Liam? I don't 40? know. I would say he's in his 40s, right? Yeah. So he was. Probably. So, he probably they, they predate his birth right it could i mean the first album 73 so yeah that's 50 is that how many years that's ago almost that? 50 years ago yeah it's more than 40 yeah so it was it was and i have a feeling that it probably has the sound the sounds old to him you know i love some of the songs i'm not i'm not like a i wouldn't lay on a railroad track for donald donald fagan you know, I think he I would. I might for Bob Dylan. But I think anyway. Donald Fagan would lay on a railroad track for himself. <laughs> He's that self-destructive guys. Yeah, I, you know they had a they actually had a bigger band. There was this guy Dave Palmer, and then Skunk Baxter. That was the original band, and somehow you know, like those band things. Who controls the band? How do um, they figure it out? And what happens? Is there like when you like I know a friend of mine was involved with ELO on the early albums. Oh, yeah. And then he went ahead and re-recorded Jeff Lynn, and I do love ELO, but yeah. he did go but he somehow reclaimed the band and re-recorded some of the vocals and re-released the album so he didn't have to pay certain people money. But when he you know, it's it sounds identical, but it's a different voice. It's his or his daughter's. I think he replaced. I think Jeff Lynn put his daughter on the backups instead of the original singers, which is if that's true, that's just really reprehensible. Collaborative musical things are touchy, you know, and in some ways, the Lennon McCartney thing was amazing that it lasted as long as it did. Because obviously there's Lennon tunes and there's McCartney tunes and they shared the royalties, you know, and um, but that was bound to, you know, that was bound to come apart at some point. All bands come apart and then kind of the last man standing. I played in a lot of bands. I've played in bands since I was in the seventh grade. My but how does band. it but how does it work? So so a band like Steely Dan or ELO, they're a group. They're founded. They start writing music. They must sign contracts. And no, probably. See, that's the problem. There's agreements. 
verbal agreements. This is, we're going to do this together. We, you know what I, here, here's what I know, notice. If, if there is a band still touring, it's because of one person usually. One person left or one person? One person that wants to make it happen and either, either gets everybody back together or reconstitutes it with, you know, um, you know, you see this more with, with regional bands. Like why is like, there's a band uh, 30 miles from where I grew up, King Midas and the Mufflers. Isn't that great? Mm-hmm. That's a great name. And uh, they're still playing. Right. They've been playing for 60 years. Now the guy that runs it is probably 70 or 80. He's already, probably in his 70s, he's older than me. But, you know, so it's it's always, I really think it's one person that wants to keep it going and eventually takes control and has, you know, has the skin in the game to keep it happening. And maybe he buys out people, maybe they don't, maybe they, you know, like the Kingsman, I have a good friend who played with the Kingsman. And I think they're still playing, you know, the Louis Louis band. Yeah. I was traveling with Dave Cyrus and I were working together and it was about five comedy writers and we had to travel on this project. And, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm old enough so nobody was getting on my nerves, but I was. I said to Cyrus, uh, "Can you imagine if we were a band and we were stuck together? Like, because we know there's an expiration date on this relationship. We know in two weeks this is over. Maybe we'll see each other. You know, but can you imagine we were r- racing to get a train? I said, imagine." You know, if Bill is always keeping us waiting and and he smells and he smokes dope and and we're stuck with him for the rest of our professional lives because of one hit song that we have to just keep playing over and over again. A friend of mine said that's why drugs were invented, that, that <laughs> drugs were invented so you could share a bus with other musicians there might be well they were invented long before buses right but you might be right about that hey i've been doing some research yes on, uh, i'm writing you know, hey i showed you this on fri- friday my okay. wife got that for me isn't that nice okay a novelist yeah I'm, Could, I'm working on my second novel now you're writing and, murder mysteries yes now you're different you have an interesting twist your murder mysteries, as I understand them, are autobiographical. You're actually committing the murder. <laughs> and That's a great idea. Right, it is a good idea. You should do, do the next one. I had, a, I had a good idea for my wife and I, a couple months into the pandemic, we both, both woke up one day and we started talking about dreams. Mm-hmm. And we had almost the same dream. So I, what I thought was a story about a husband and wife who start having this weird, their, their dreams sync up until one day the dream is that someone's killing them, <laughs> that the wife is killing them. And all of a sudden it gets a little tense in mm-hmm. the house. <laughs> what do you think? I, listen, I, I write me a murder mystery. So how, uh, are you a big fan of murder mysteries? No, I'm not. I'm not. But I, I, 
I had a friend, I started to write a book about my time in Alabama doing uh, research on the Bama State Collegians at, uh, in Montgomery, Alabama, who basically pulled that college out of bankruptcy in 1929 and became, and the, co the college president was booking three bands and he was, and they made a lot of money and they, that Bama State um, came out of bankruptcy because of the Bama State Collegians and then uh, the, the the leader of the Bama State Collegians, it was a student band. It was one of the first real jazz programs in the United States. But he took the band on tour in uh, the summer and never came back. Hmm. <laughs> and he kept, he kept calling it the Bama State Collegians. That's what I mean about one guy. All it takes is one guy wanting to make it happen. But anyway, that, my uh, another friend and colleague who is into murder mysteries, I told her that I'm, I, hey, I'm writing a book about this. And she said, if there isn't a dead body on the first page, I'm not going to read it. So on this book that I wrote, there's a dead, on both of them, on the, the second one that I'm writing, it's, there's a dead body on the first page. And it goes from there. But I've been reading about the, the um, crime families in Kansas City and, and just the Cosa Nostra and the mafiosos and um, the, the families, the crime families. And I wanted to talk to Liam because the, the original crime families who also became the police was the Irish who became the police. He had any background with that. What happened? To, where, where is he? He, uh, you know, we're lucky that we get Liam when he, he showed up. I'm trying to do a better job of running this show. Well, uh, but I, you know, I'm trying to stay on schedule, but I was about 15 minutes behind and I think he, so he said he had someplace else not was to that go. a week ago you guys did an hour and a half or an hour and 45 something that was, like that it was very good well emilio called in that was really great that was that was like old times emilio cut to the bone he did what music are you listening to well today i listen to uh to uh, steely dan a lot you know i'm i'm like a lot of musicians I don't listen to music. I don't have it on. I have talk, talk on. And um, if I'm listening to music, it's kind of to check something out. Can you concentrate? I, I can read while listening to jazz. Can you? Yeah, I can. I, no, I you're can listening to the jazz, so you can't focus on anything else. No, I wouldn't. I, I, yes, probably not. You know, once I got audited by the IRS. And she looked at these, all these, C I wrote off all the CDs that I bought. And uh, she looked at it and says, well, how do I know these are for work? And I told her, I'm always working. When I'm listening to music, that's all I'm doing is working. Halfway mm -hmm. serious, but kind of making a joke. She didn't laugh. And uh, if you ever get, have you been audited? There was a yes. period when I kept getting audited. Really? Yeah. One thing I didn't know is that if you're small potatoes, they only have an hour to deal with you. And I went in totally organized. I had the receipts, had everything figured out, you know, boom, boom, boom. It would have been much better for me um, if I had been had a shoebox. Right. You know, where's the thing? Oh, let me see. Right. And fiddle through it, you know. They will be, audit more 
middle class people are audited, more poor people are audited per capita than rich people yeah. because rich people have tax attorneys and who can just well, drag it out. Ever since the first one I had an accountant and then he took care of it the next time and charged me $400. The first time... By the way, the IRS, just so you know, yeah, uh, is 40% smaller than it was 50 years ago. They have kept the same amount of people on staff, even though our population is something like has doubled in 50 years. So they have fewer people to audit more Americans. What a crappy job that must be. Well, it's actually, uh, I don't, uh, I'm not saying this because somebody from the IRS might be watching. I, <laughs> I prefer paying taxes than uh, having to do GoFundMes for friends who get sick. I mean, I, I would prefer paying mo more uh, for Medicare for all than these GoFundMe campaigns. I, I think something tells me that's more efficient than uh, GoFundMe. Yeah. You know, I think the biggest, you were talking to the pastor, I think the biggest breakdown is, I think there's a, a big, obviously a big group of our population who aren't billionaires, but are doing pretty good. Like for example, me, I'm, I'm a retired professor, made an okay salary, got social security, got my pension. This pandemic, all these people out of work, I'm sympathetic, but I'm not feeling it. I'm, I'm saving money because we're not going out to eat. We're not traveling, yeah. you know? So we're good. I mean, and you know, um, when I was up in uh, Kansas working on that, the house that became the, the focal point of that novel was fixing up the house. And um, it's a lot about, a lot of the novels about that. But anyway, I, it was pulling teeth to get workmen out to even do a, a, an estimate. Because they were, also, because they they were so busy. Because they're busy. They were so busy. If you, if you were doing roofs or doing concrete work or doing remodeling, a lot of people, I said, why are you guys so busy? They go, I don't know. Maybe it's like the stimulus money. Maybe people can't leave. So they're not spending money on going to, you know, Florida for the winter. And so they're going to remodel their house. And right. There, well, there's a I'm lot of money out there. One of the things in the, the newsletter I sent out to the guests and the people who showed up to the Zoom room, this is from Common Dreams. Paul Buchheit wrote an article entitled Inequality Gone Viral, The Obscene Numbers. I think this is what you might have been referencing. In the year 2020, the richest 10% of Americans got an average of $200,000 each more above and beyond the, their salaries from just their investments. Yeah. Uh, the 650 richest Americans each added $1.5 billion to their mattress. $25 billion each to the richest 15 individuals. Yeah. The five richest tech companies each made $600 billion this year. Yeah, since March, probably. Yeah. 
and yet Crazy. 50 million Americans are, are without food. I don't understand that. I don't understand how that's not like the story, the lead story every night. How is that just that should just be the headline 24 hours a day. How is that not the story? I agree. I agree. It's complexing, you know, and then you read that, you know, that Marine Dowd's brother. Yeah. You know, and you and and you go, I read that and I went like, oh, I know. I know 10 people who know this is, you know, in my immediate sphere who that's thinking. Maureen Dowd is a columnist, very readable columnist for the New York Times. And kind of funny. And every year around this time, she lets her conservative brother write her column. And oh, is that a this is the thing that happens all the time? Yeah, every year her her conservative brother writes a column and he's a Trump supporter. Problem is Maureen Dowd is uh, wasn't a Bernie supporter. But uh, hey, Benji, we're going to wrap this up. Hey, Benji, you're raising your hand. Have you been? Hey, pretty good, David. What's up to you, brother? Not much. Just, you know, keeping it unreal as I... (laughs) Keeping it unreal. I've been worrying about you a lot here lately, man. I I know this pandemic's kind of had you, kind of got you behind. I know you're probably at least one marriage and a broken engagement behind from where you probably would be without this pandemic. But (laughs) No, Mike, you don't realize, man, David's had had well over a dozen wives, plus three or four of his own. (laughs) Harry ain't the only thing he's been plugging. <laughs> Where's the oh, I, oh well, hang on. Can I do that, Benji? Do you mind if I... Not go right ahead, brother. Oh, there we go. Now I can use my soundboard that's finally working. <laughs> no, How I'm are you, stuff. Benji? Good, man. Uh, you know, David's been on the, annou- the marriage announcements page so many times, they thought they had an echo. Oh! <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. There you go. Now, David, this has to be the longest you've ever gone without applying for a marriage license. Or or as I like to call it, drilling rights. (laughs) Now, David, i got to give you a lot of credit, man. I know your bank won't, but I will, man. The the bank won't give me credit, no. But you will. will. No, David busted his ass to get where he's at. I mean, he didn't get very far, but I mean, he busted his ass to get here. I mean... He's not one of those, uh, you know, Beverly Hills comics born with a silver spoon in his nose. You know? <laughs> but no, David show, he's it's really, it's, it's a beacon of light, you know, and David, David's like a Christmas tree. You know, the wood's dead and the balls are just for decoration. <laughs> <laughs> no, David, hey, man, I'm, it sucks Liam didn't show up, man. I was wanting to talk to him, man. Um, I know, I know. Nice, typical Irish name, you know. You ever been to Ireland? Yes, I have. No, I've never been to Ireland. I know. I know every time I rub my penis, it goes to Dublin, but. <laughs> no, hey, man, I got to get out. But I only played that because I just wanted to mix it up a little. I like that joke. <laughs> I dig that, man. I, I love the sound effects, man. That's really cool, man. Now, Emilio was right about that, man. The sound effects are great, brother. Yeah. Anything now, else? Hey, man, it's uh, it's going to be 41 degrees in Central Florida tomorrow, man. I got to I gotta prepare, you know. It's, yeah. People go nuts down here. They lose their mind when it gets below 50 degrees. It only happens like four or five times a year, and they just, they don't know how to function, bro. Right. 
Yeah, hey, man, I'm going to get out of here, bro. Man, take a man. Great show, man. I love hearing stuff. I love you. Thank you, Benji. Who, who are you sponsored by? Benji is yeah. very smart. Benji Memory calls into the show. Company, baby. Well, I'm sorry. Memory Benji calls into the show and he, he's sponsored. He's very, he's very. Uh, so what, who's your sponsor for this call? Memory foam mattress company. The memory. Dude, until you've laid down onto a bed of boobs, you just don't know what you're missing, bro. <laughs> <laughs> Thank memory you, Benji. Foam? Hey, no problem, man. I'll get out of here, man. And hey, I talked to Kathleen today. We're getting started on CTS six. So good. Man, so it's gonna be good. 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 Thank right, you. I'll talk to you later. I'll see you Friday night, man. Thank you, buddy. Thank you. No problem, brother. My favorite one, and then we'll we'll wrap it up. Is this one? This one. It's just a, yeah. it's because it's the drummer doesn't. It, it's so insulting. It, it, he's not even. He's not into it. It's like, not oh yeah. <laughs> this one, he's he's in on the joke on that one. Yeah. Uh, hey, listen, we gotta play those fixes for Howie's thing. I I know. So next week, when next Monday, we okay. didn't have Howie Klein. Today and I have to play. Are you going to put out an album of all the music you've made in the past year? It How many songs on, have you written for you? Well, for us, I mean, for the show, man, there are eighteen songs. You've written eighteen songs in. Yeah, some of them aren't that good. They're some all of them great. You don't remember? You no, remember I have server. Time? I've had server problems. There, there are songs they don't go to die. There, I have three hard drives, Mo, Larry, and Curly. I'm being serious. And uh, a lot of my files are very big, and I have to keep Mo going, because without Mo, there ain't no show. But Larry and Curly, they, I had to bring in Joe Dorita. And because... Is that a neat real name? Yeah, Joe Dorita was one of the... Uh, was one of I think he replaced one of the actors. Yeah. Oh, was he really? Yeah. I think he came on after Shemp. But so all my hard drives have just they haven't crashed. They're full. So a lot of the music that was played on the show has been transferred to an external hard drive that I'm slowly incorporating back into the it there's been some computer problems that I never mention on this show, Professor. You wouldn't know that I've had. You would never know. You would never know that I've had tech issues. Issues. Yeah. <laughs> hey, let's wrap it up, shall we? Okay, I'll see you next week. Thank you so much for everything. Thank you. Uh, Liam McEnany didn't show. He showed up, and once again, it's my fault. It is always my fault. I kept him waiting, so I apologize to Liam. I want to thank everybody in the Zoom room for showing up. And I want to thank all my listeners who are listening as, uh, to this as a podcast. And I want to thank all our guests who uh, were kind enough to grace this stage as soon as I can find them. Here they are. Okay. Uh, first, we had my old friend, John Ross. Wasn't he great? Then we had Mark Green. Go buy his book. Uh, this is not, this isn't it. Go buy Mark Green's book, uh, Wrecking America, How Trump's Lawbreaking and Lies Betray All. He wrote this with 
Ralph Nader. And he also wrote another book with Ralph Nader last year entitled Fake President Decoding Trump's Gaslighting, Corruption and General Bullshit. Go buy those two books because it'll give you insight into the past four years. How did we how did we end up here? I want to thank who else did we have on the show? The Reverend Barry W. Lynn, as well as Ethan Hershenfeld. I want to thank Professor Adnan Hussein. I want to thank Henry Huckamaki and Dr. Harriet Fraud and Harvey J.K. and Professor Marianne Cumming, uh, Cummings. And I have lost the list of everybody on the show. So let's I will thank everybody. Let me thank it. Let me give everybody a proper thank you. Uh, let me take a call. Rodrigo, you you talk and talk about the the discord server uh, there. I found it. OK. Rodrigo, what's on your mind? Did you want me to talk about the Discord server? Sure. What, what have you written on the Discord server? Well, I often post news that I find interesting. Sometimes I add a little too much sarcasm on them. For example, I posted that Nina Tandem will be the first female POC in charge of caught in social security. Mm -hmm. I often do that. Uh, we have the Marxism channel, which we do weekly marks on the weekends. And I miss it again this Sunday because I was sleeping. I've been sleeping a lot. Good. It's always good to sleep. And Some of us can't. Well, I wish I slept less, but it's fine. And I haven't found my reading list on the email. I don't know if I should feel excluded or I should look for something special or something. Oh, I, I thought I sent an email out. Is Liam here? Is that or is somebody re, did somebody redo their name? <laughs> I thought I saw Liam and now he. All right, somebody was messing with me. Let's wrap this up. A thank you, Rodrigo. Thank you. And read Rodrigo over at our Discord server. In order to get on our Discord server, you have to be part of our Zoom room. So go to davidfeldmanshow.com, hit the attend a live taping menu, and we will send you an invite to sit in our virtual studio audience during the tapings of these shows. And you can meet the other inglorious chinwaggers who populate the uh, chat room, undermining my authority here on the David Feldman Show. And Andy Brown set up a, a, a Discord server that is amazing with great channels. I'll talk about it uh, on Friday's show. John Ross, thank you. Mark Green, author of Wrecking America, How Trump's Lawbreaking and Lies Betray All. Betray All. He wrote it with Ralph Nader. Henry Huckamaki, host of Guerrilla History. I want to thank Mark Breslin, president and founder of Yuck Yucks, the largest comedy chain in North America. The Reverend Barry W. Lynn and Ethan Hershenfeld. 
Check out MVP. They're helping to turn Georgia blue. Comic Laura House. Watch her show on the BBC. It's called The Secret Life of Boys. Listen to Dr. Harriet Fraud's podcast, Capitalism Hits Home. And it's not just in your head. Professor Adnan Hussein, chairman of the religion department at Queen's University, Kingston, Ontario, hosts two podcasts, The Mudgeless Podcast and Guerrilla History. Professor Harvey J.K., author of FDR on Democracy and Take Hold of Our History. Pastor Jonathan P. Conrad, if you're in Wilmington, North Carolina, check him out at St. Paul's Evangelical Lutheran Church. And, of course, the brilliant, the brilliant Professor Mike Steinel. Thank you. I'm going to say goodbye to our podcast listeners and the people who watch us on YouTube. And the conversation continues in the Zoom room. Remember to stay strong and protect the weak. As soon as I find our theme song, bye everybody. Stay healthy. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. He's talking politics and comedy too. He'll tell a dirty joke if you want him to. He's just a lefty from way back. He's a union man with an Emmy for writing. Someday he's mad and he feels like fighting. It's time right now for the David Feldman Show. To get your ears on right, buckle in real tight. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way. He's got a lot to say and he's coming your way.